Greetings and good afternoon, everyone. This is Cheryl, and I'm so pleased to be here to welcome you to Tara and Rama's Saturday afternoon program, The True Planetary and Galactic History Herstory, and True History Herstory of Nasara. It is Saturday, May 28th, so we are right in the middle of the time between Ascension Thursday and the new moon coming up on May 30th, Memorial Day. We have much to do here today. We'll be working with both of those energies as well as the blessings of the entire company of heaven as we begin. So please take a deep breath and go into your heart center. Going into the sacred heart portal to all that is. Within the heart portal, we call forth the full emergence and integration with our soul, with our higher self, with our monad, with our mighty I am presence. We are reminded who we are as we affirm, either mentally or out loud. I am the soul. I am the light divine. I am love. I am will. I am fixed design. Fixed design represents our divine blueprint, and we call that forth now. As we integrate with the monad or the muddy I am presence, we say the same mantra for the monad. Please repeat after me. I am the monad. I am the light divine. I am love. I am will. I am fixed design. <clears throat> and thus we call forth all of our multidimensional being. to merge with us the maximum that we can receive. And we see ourselves in our mighty pillar of light, our beautiful ascension column containing the highest ascension frequencies we can receive individually and collectively here today. Extending directly from the source, from the heart to mind of our Mother, Father, God, directly into the heart of Mother Earth. We invite in everyone to join us as we affirm, I am my I am presence. As my I am presence, I am one with the I am presence of all humanity. I am one with every man, woman, and child. I am one with all my family members and loved ones. <clears throat> I am one with all that is. And let yourself feel that oneness. It is important to feel the oneness that we may know what everyone is going through, is experiencing. We are experiencing it as a unity consciousness as well. 
And so we invite in for one and all, all soul extensions, planetary and galactic, <laughs> all of our ancestors, all of our genetic lineage or ancestral lineage, all the generations past and forward. <clears throat> our spiritual lineage, our soul families and soul pods. We invite in for one and all, all of our guides and teachers, our healing teams, our beloved guardian angel, our beloved twin flame, our ascension council and mission council. We welcome the assistance of the kingdoms, the plant kingdom, the tree kingdom, the mineral kingdom, the animal kingdom, the divi kingdom, the elemental kingdom, the fairy kingdom, <clears throat> all of the kingdoms of nature, the whales, the dolphins, and all uh, magical kingdoms. <clears throat> as I continue with my planetary clearing here. So we welcome at this time all of the realms of the angels, from the angels and archangels through to the cherubim and seraphim, all angelic healing teams and healing angels. We welcome at this time <clears throat> all of these into master realms, the Brotherhood of Light, the Sisterhood, the Rays and Rose, the Order of Melchizedek, the Radiant One, all of the enlightened masters, all Divine Mother Emissaries, Divine Father Emissaries, all of the planetary and cosmic hierarchy of light, and all Ascended Master healers and healing teams. <clears throat> We welcome as well all of the healing teams from the Galactic Federation of Light, especially those that we work most closely with from Arcturus, from Pleiades, from Sirius, from Andromeda, from Chiron, and from Venus. We welcome all cosmic galactic universal healers that can be of service. We welcome the assistance of the entire company of heaven, asking our Mother, Father, God, to overlight all that we do and magnify, magnify, magnify it 10 billion times, 10 billion fold, individually and collectively in divine order for all concerned. <laughs> we call in all the rays, all the flames, all the universal laws and ascension waves. And with every energy and frequency, every prayer and invocation, every blessing, every grace, every dispensation, every activation, we ask that it be received on a conscious, subconscious, superconscious level. Within every cell, chakra, meridian, layer of our work field, multidimensionally. On a conscious, subconscious, superconscious level, <clears throat> as we call this in, we ask to easily and effortlessly digest and assimilate, ground and anchor, integrate and embody these frequencies, the maximum that we can receive, ever expanding to perfection, with the greatest of ease and grace and joy and peace and bliss and ecstasy, serenity and tranquility, balance and equilibrium and love and light and laughter. And we welcome at this time... <clears throat> All those in our circle of support, from the very first name that created it to each and every individual, each family member, each loved one, each group or organization. (coughs) 
and I wasn't doing this earlier today, so <laughs> it's all coming up to be cleared. Each situation, each condition, each business, each corporation, each nation, each government, each military or governmental leaders, all weather patterns. We have in our circle of support, of course, this week, <clears throat> all of the mass shootings that have taken place recently, both in Buffalo and in Uvalde, Mexico, and um, all the children. We have all of the children in the circle. So all those affected, all those affected by violence of any kind across the planet. We hold them in our hearts, just sending love, compassion, kindness, peace. as we utilize all of this energy that is directed toward these events in our collective cup of consciousness for the transformation of the planet, for the creation of heaven on earth. As we recommit ourselves right here and right now once again to this work, to being the bridge between heaven and earth, the anchor for the new golden age, and the open door that no one can shut. We ask that Gaia partake of all that we receive through her chakras and meridians and layers of her orc field, multidimensionally, <clears throat> through every ley line and song line, <clears throat> through the grid systems, the love grids, the light grids, the unity grids, all the multidimensional grid system through every portal and vortex and monument and sacred site and place of power, every stargate, every city of light, until every place across the planet is filled with so much light to see blazing white and golden light flooding through the planet, affecting all upon her, through every molecule of soil, molecule of air, molecule of water, and everyone <clears throat> peacefully and harmoniously moving up with planet Earth, up the spiral of evolution as she takes her rightful place as Freedom Star. <clears throat> We're going to begin with a prayer for those who have recently left, those that may be leaving today or in the days ahead. Beloved presence of God, Goddess I am, in the hearts of all humankind. Beloved Lord Mikael, the Archangel of Deliverance, and your legions of blue flame angels of divine love. In the name of all humankind of the earth, particularly those who shall be called forth from their mortal forms this day, or those who have recently made their transition, I make this call. 
Let the angels of peace stand by the physical body of each soul and hold the energies of love and peace in the feeling body of the ones departing and their loved ones everywhere on earth where such release is taking place. Let perfect peace prevail. Let the aura of sanctity abide at the solemn hour of transition that the soul may easily cut free from its earthly tabernacle and no grief, fear, or sorrow distress it at the threshold of new freedom. Let the angels of deliverance be meet each soul. Let not a light stream belonging to our evolution pass through the veil of so-called death unattended. Let each one be taken quickly to the temples of mercy and forgiveness and be bathed in the purifying fires of St. Germain's violet flame and Kuan Yin's mercy flame. Let them be prepared to enter the halls of the lords of karma and dignity and in conscious awareness. Let each one be assigned to a schoolroom of the masters and joyously enter into the study of the law of their own life. Let the lords of mercy and love enfold all those whose loved ones are about to leave this earth and all those whose loved ones have just departed. Melt away all selfish grief and sorrow and fill each heart and home with happiness and gratitude for the opportunity afforded the loved one to experience a new freedom and progress on life's journey. So be it and so it is. So we call forth at this time the ascension frequencies, the white and gold light, and see it blazing in through and around the planet. Into every cell and fiber of our beings. Hold that image as I say the prayer for each of us. Connecting your heart with mine as one voice. We say, mighty, blessed, adorable presence of the I am. Do for all humankind whatever needs to be done now. To make everyone aware of his or her blessed I am presence. The host of the ascended masters. And of the necessity to make effort the ascension. Great ascended masters of light and love, great cosmic beings, and great cosmic light. Charge all humanity's consciousness everywhere with thy ascended master comprehension. Eternal divine memory, all powerful concentration, infinite patience, and divine love. until every human being accepts the fullness of the ascension and comes through into victory. I am the resurrection of life. I am the ascension of the light now made manifest. Great ascended host of ascended masters, give us the full ascended master feeling of this now and raise us quickly into its eternal accomplishments that we may be prepared 
return quickly and render assistance without limit everywhere until all are free. All that we have decreed and asked for ourselves, we decree and ask for every human being on the earth and all who come here in the future. That the whole planet may blaze forth the eternal victory and light of the mighty I Am Presence and sing the eternal song of joy, ecstasy of light, and evermore be at peace. We thank thee, thou dost always answer our every call instantly. And so it is. And we give thanks for this. We give thanks for this. We give thanks for this. Mighty I Am Presence, great host of ascended masters, mighty legions of light, great angelic host, great cosmic beings and great cosmic light. Come forth in your body as cosmic authority and power of the unfed flame. Seize, bind, and annihilate all human creation and its cause and effect of everyone. Cut us all free from the magnetic pull of earth, the things of earth, and all human creation forever. Enable us to make our ascension and mass quickly as possible that we may be prepared to assist those still following on until all humanity has made their ascension as well. And we give for this, we give thanks for this, we give thanks for this. And we call forth Archangel Michael, Mother Mary, Kuan Yin, all the archangels of all the rays that overlight the children, all Divine Mother emissaries and Divine Father emissaries. All in divine order, we call them forth to work with the children on this planet now. For whatever their needs may be, for their peace of mind, for their health, mental, emotional, physical, and spiritual. For all their requirements, for food, for medicine, for housing, whatever it may be. May all the needs of the children be met. Although infinite mighty I am presence, great host of ascended masters, mighty legions of light, mighty angelic host, great cosmic beings and great cosmic light, we make the call unto thee as never before to release thy blue lightning of divine love and thy sword of flame of divine love. Cut free every child and young person on this planet. Cut them forever free from every force, condition, and thing that would be unjust or bind them into destructive activities in any way. In the name of the mighty I am presence, to claim each child and young person on the face of the earth into the service of the light of the mighty I am presence and ascended host. We call forth whatever activity of the great cosmic laws required to seize, bind, and annihilate all that interferes with their full expression of the ascended master's perfection. 
we speak directly to the electronic body of every young person on Earth. To blaze forth the Ascended Master's activity of the sword of blue flame of divine love and cut them free from everything that would draw them from the pathway of light. Annihilate all injustice and every discordant thing by which they are now surrounded. Lift them completely into the octave of the light of the Ascended Masters and blast all teaching from the earth that is not the eternal truth of the mighty I Am Presence and great host of Ascended Masters. Charge forth thy mighty illumination into every brain and body. Charge them with Ascended Master obedience, self-control, management, marvelous directing intelligence and strength that refuses acceptance to everything but Ascended Master perfection. Clothe them in thy mighty glory which keeps them forever invisible invincible and invulnerable to everything that does not serve the light. Let these precious ones go forth completely. Release to render the service to the earth which brings forth the golden age. And bless them with the fullness of the ascended master's divine love, limitless light, strength, protection, and the victory of their ascension. In the name of the money I am present, I have spoken. And so it shall be established unto them. And we give thanks for this. Can we ask that all children be blessed and protected and provided with all that they require at this time? We call forth blessings for this nation. Again, see St. Germain overlighting this nation. Blaze the vial of flame as we ask for the blessing of this nation and all nations across the planet. Mighty infinite I am presence, the almighty guardian presence for America. Come forth in thy cosmic action of the unfed flame of divine love and the eternal quenchless light blaze forth everywhere in and through our beloved Americas. Thy light as of a thousand suns. Charge with ascended master consciousness and fulfillment of the divine plan for their freedom and perfection. We say to the consciousness of everyone in the Americas, awake, awake, awake to the truth of this mighty I am presence and the full perfection meant for the Americas. Great ones release throughout them that activity of light, which takes possession everywhere of the Americas, the governments, and the people. Control their resources. Direct their activities. Fill them with my lavish abundance of all good things and release that Ascended Master Consciousness which compels divine justice to come forth for everyone within their borders. Surround them with thy invincible protection. Blaze forth thy mighty activity of the light and love of the Ascended Masters and the angelic hosts that once and forever brings all into divine order. 
through divine love. Charge forth thy full perfection everywhere forever. In the name of the mighty I Am Presence, we decree that the Americas shall be manifest as nations of ascended masters to lead the rest of the earth into the eternal glory and the victory of the ascension. America, we love you. America, we love you. America, we love you. And our love and call to the mighty I Am Presence is great enough to bring forth your perfection now and keep it forever sustained. We charge you, our beloved America, with the Ascended Master's eternal victory of the light of God that never fails and the mighty mastery of the Presence, expanding its perfection everywhere within your borders. So long as the stars rain and the heavens send down dew, so long shall our beloved, beloved America carry the grail of light high and feed the rest of the earth with the ascended masters outpouring of freedom and perfection of the mighty I am present. America, we enfold you on our mantle of light and love. Within it is all power. We hold you sealed within our hearts and your mighty victory shall manifest every hour to the glory of the I am and the ascended ones forever. So be it, and so it is. And we give thanks for this. We give thanks for this. We give thanks for this. Take a nice deep breath. Since it is Memorial Day, we always do prayers around the Americas, the governments. We have a couple more. As we say... Mighty I Am Presence, great host of ascended masters, great cosmic beings, and lords of the flame from Venus. In thy full authority of the great cosmic law, project the great cosmic light with irresistible force throughout the government of the United States of America and hold all individuals true to their oath of office in obedience to the divine plan of the great cosmic beings for the perfecting of America, the government, and her people. Come forth. Take possession of all governmental offices. Hold your dominion and divine justice everywhere within our government forever. We thank thee, thou dost always answer our every call, and it is eternally sustained and ever-expanding. And so it is. And we give thanks for this. We give thanks for this. We give thanks for this. So we're asking for a special blessing for the all government leaders of this nation, all of our friends around the world all people who serve, all politicians, all government employees. In the name of love and liberty, we invoke the total empowerment of a governmental body that supports the highest good of every living thing. 
in the United States, in each state, in each county, all local levels, as well as in every nation and province of every nation. May the collective presence of the celestial realms come forth now to support the best possible outcomes in this deeply transformational work by and through universal law. Purifying the, purify the governing soul of the United States, of Washington, D.C., of all of the federal government, of every state, city, local, county government here in this nation and every nation. Purify the governing souls of these spaces, these places of all corrupting influences, instantly requalifying every device of thought, polarized emotion, and discordant deed the revolutionary power of love's intelligence. Saturate all leaders, all politicians, all candidates, all decision makers, and all the voters as well in this nation, along with all of the people they serve with the light of divine understanding. And as we call it forth for the U.S., we call it forth for every single nation. Motivate the government of this nation and all nations to take much greater action toward the cultivation of lasting peace and goodwill, both locally and internationally. Inspire the economic leaders of each nation of the U.S. and all nations to work together in harmony to ensure the health and prosperity of all citizens, the wildlife and the environment in this and every forthcoming generation. Empower the spirit of democracy in the U.S. and in each nation as well. Great presence, please open, augment pathways of light over every governmental building and office in the United States, in Washington, D.C., in every capital of every state, and every place of government across the planet. Send wave after wave of transforming love into the entire political consciousness of this nation and all involved with it and each and every nation to support the highest level of purification possible. Please let divine government and divine governance emerge quickly to serve as a potent catalyst for positive societal change and systemic change. May this intervention and its containing matrix be made imperishable, eternally sustained, all-powerfully active and ever-expanding until the evolutionary plan is fulfilled for the United States, all of its citizens, for Washington, D.C., for every state capital, 
for every place in this nation, every nation across the planet. And with profound gratitude, we say it is done, so be it, and so it is. And we give thanks for this, we give thanks for this, we give thanks for this. We also know at this time that there are a lot of activists out there ready to act. I consider us spiritual activists as we do these prayers. So we're going to say a prayer for all sacred activists. Great divine presence of all life, please reach your loving hand deep, deep, deep into the many layers of our human consciousness and enact the grand dissolution of all the limiting beliefs we may carry around judgment, self-loathing, negativity, including any fears around physical death. Empty us of all self-willed creations, misperceptions, and adored truths. Remind us of our vast and eternal nature, that we might stand courageously for the good, the true, and the beautiful. Raise us up your invincible power of evil. Strengthen us in every way to face the intensifying challenges of our time. Expand and accelerate the development of our divine human abilities that we may serve more effectively as an enlightened global avatar. Let the light of inspiration now compel us into greater and greater outpourings of creativity, joy, and world service. We are yours, presence, to use as you would see fit. Send us. Now we are ready. So be it, and so it is. And we give thanks for this, we give thanks for this, we give thanks for this. As we close out our prayer work, we're going to call in the new moon energies to work with us. This is a great time to be working on prosperity. We're going to do some prosperity work here now. Call in the blessings of the new moon, the infinite possibilities for us all. This is a prayer I have sent out many times. Again, I'll give my email address at the end if you want this prayer. Please contact me. Let me know. I just sent it out recently. So check your email if you're on my list as well. This is the Huna prayer uh, given by Joel Cool to a friend of um, Joshua Stone been working with his material since 1994. So. This is for the manifestation of money for all light workers on the planet. So let us say, go into your heart center as we call forth our divine inheritance of the full abundance on all levels so that we may do the surface work that we came here to do. Beloved presence of God, Goddess, all that is. We hereby ask and humbly pray with all our hearts and souls, minds and might for divine abundance made manifest 
through personal fortune and success. We are willing to move beyond fear in order to fulfill God's plan on earth and beyond. I personally pledge to open myself to financial wealth in order to fulfill my group and individual service commitments. In God's name, we accept our divine heritage right now and thank thee for the timely answer to this prayer. God's will be done. Amen. We're going to say that two more times. Beloved presence, God, God is all that is. We hereby ask and humbly pray with all our hearts and souls and minds and might for divine abundance made manifest through personal fortune and success. We are willing to be on fear in order to fulfill God's plan on earth and beyond. I personally pledge to open myself to financial wealth in order to fulfill my group and individual service commitments. In God's name, we accept our divine heritage right now and thank thee for the timely answer to this prayer. God's will be done. Beloved presence of God, God is all that is. We hereby can humbly pray with all our hearts and souls, minds, and might for divine abundance made manifest through personal fortune and success. We are willing to move beyond fear in order to fulfill God's plan on earth and beyond. I personally pledge to open myself to financial wealth in order to fulfill my group and individual service commitments. In God's name, we accept our divine heritage right now and thank thee for the timely answer to this prayer. God's will be done. Amen. So we're going to breathe the prayer of God as we say, our beloved subconscious minds, we hereby ask and lovingly command that you take this thought form prayer to God, Goddess, all that is, along with the manna and vital force needed and necessary to manifest and demonstrate this prayer. Amen. So please breathe the prayer to God. See it going directly to source including to your mighty source, I am, your divine presence, your God presence, your goddess presence. And allow yourself to open to receive as we say, Lord, let the rain of blessings fall. And please breathe and receive, feeling the energy coming back to you, soaking it in like a sponge. And we seal this with our own. Please join me. 
Now, remember, affirmations are the process of making something firm. So join me in affirming, I am prosperity. I let go of the misconception that anyone or anything can withhold from me all the abundant universe has for me now. I am an open door. And all kinds of riches flow to me now. I am an irresistible magnet with the power to draw to myself the supply of all good things according to the thoughts, feelings, and mental pictures I continually hold in my consciousness. I realize I am responsible for my life. And I have the power to create whatever I wish in my life. As of this moment, I choose to create for myself a life of health, happiness, success, and prosperity. I know that the universe is filled with God goddesses abundance and I accept these riches into my life now I choose limitless abundance for myself and for all of humanity I know all of my needs will be perfectly met at all times rapid changes come in all aspects of my life as I now open my mind to the unlimited resources of this universe. All of my financial affairs are now in perfect order. I love doing my work. And I am richly rewarded, both creatively and financially. I give my love, my gift, my all. And therefore, I am rich, well, and happy now. I am prosperity. I am prosperity. I am prosperity. I am that I am. I am that I am. I am that I am. And so it is. We once and ask that all of this work be sealed in the highest of ascension frequencies. As we call forth again the blessing of the golden ray of eternal peace and infinite prosperity for one and all across this planet. God bless us in every way of this new moon. May we achieve divine government in the days ahead. As we affirm, please join me 
victory is ours in love covering this planet. Victory is ours in love governing this planet. Victory is ours in love governing this planet. And so it is. And so, my friends, I thank you for joining me in this discussion work today and this planetary healing. And I invite you to join us every Sunday and Monday evening for the Ascension Meditation and Activation Calls. And we've been holding them since February 2010. And our role is to assist in fully manifesting heaven on earth, bringing in every aspect of this golden age. This is a teleconference call. And we begin with greetings at 8.45 p.m. Eastern Time, 5.45 p.m. Pacific Time. We've got about 25 minutes of greetings. And Tar and Rama join us about 10 after. And we begin our work of bringing heaven to earth in earnest, all of our meditations, our invocations, our visualizations, our prayers, our updates. That begins at 9.30 p.m. Eastern, 6.30 p.m. Pacific Time. The main number to call is area code 425-436-6260. And 425-436-6260. And the code is 946-7441-POUND. 946-7441-POUND. Now, there are many different numbers that you can dial in on if that number doesn't work. I can send you the way to um, get on by the Internet. There's an app, I believe, as well. And there's international numbers. So we can accommodate all of you. We'd love to have you join us to be a regular part of our family. Again, being love in action doing all that we came here to do to fulfill fulfill the divine plan. So we once again, I thank you for your divine service. Have a safe and wonderful Memorial Day weekend. And again, continue to pray for our children. Pray, Pray for this nation, this planet. Again, one of the best ways you can do that is joining the cause. And we thank you for doing so. So thank you, thank you, thank you for your participation here today. We thank you for being on the planet at this time in your divine service, all the ways that you serve. We want to thank Tard Rama for their divine service over these many years. And I thank my sister Rainbird for her divine service as well. I passed the talking stick. Again, it is blazed with the most incredible white and gold light holding all of the frequencies that we brought in, including the blue and the violet that work with divine government, including that 
beautiful gold of eternal peace and infinite abundance. It carries everything that we need to transform this planet and bring every aspect of heaven into manifestation. And of course, every realm came with us, all of the gems, all of the fairies, all of the angelic energies are with this talking stick as I pass it to you. Blessed be, Rainbow. Blessed be, everyone. Have a glorious week. Stay safe and at peace. And be all that you came here to be. Much love and gratitude. I pass the talking stick. I got it. Thank you. Thank you, Cheryl, for your divine service as well. So, I'm here to do the housekeeping as we are a listener-supported radio program. It's each of us that makes it happen. Each week we need $300 for our services with BBS, and that $300 is due today. (laughs) So we're looking for that $300 to come in, and it's pretty simple to do, so let's take a moment and see how to do it. You want to go to the web address of Radio Station 2, so it's bbsradio.com. Radio Station 2, or you can just go to bbsradio.com and click on Radio Station 2 and scroll down, or scroll down, you'll find the menu. You're looking for the menu, and on the menu, you want to look at Thursday, Friday, and Saturday, and for our programs, from the Thursday program at the 6 o'clock hour, and these are all Pacific times. It is a night at the round table with the panel. You can click on that icon there. That'll take you directly to our account with DBS. And using your bank card, you can make a donation in any amount. So that's how it happens. So for Friday, the program is the hard news on Friday night with Tara and Lama. And um, as you click on that, icon there, that'll take you to our account. That's also at the 6 o'clock hour. Then this program, The True History of History of Nisera and Our Galactic Origins on Saturdays at the 1.30 hour uh, with Carl Lama. So that's that. this program. You can click on that icon there as well. All of them work the same, so thanks for taking that action. You could actually click on all of them and make three donations, but... <laughs> We're grateful for all your donations and all the ways that you show up. So thank you. Thank you for taking that action. And we're also assisting Tara and Rama with their needs. And this week is super week. (laughs) It's the end of the month. The rent is due on Tuesday, the last day of the month. And that rent is eleven fifty, so all the help we can get, we're grateful for. And they also have five bills due this week, I believe. And it's an update from yesterday. The electric bill got added, and it went from four hundred and two to five hundred and eighty-two dollars that we need. So, um, for those those four or five bills. So, um, yeah, if we can make a donation to Tara and Rama for, for those bills, that would be great. Uh, and and the rent, and what else do they need? Oh, yes, they have an emergency need 
for gas money. So anybody who can um, clip a little their way this <laughs> for this evening and make sure that they're able to get out and go to the store and do what they need to do um, and get the things that they need. They need $300 for their personal expenses for the week, and they need gas immediately. So if anybody can help with that. Uh, here's the information. As you're making a contribution to Tara and Rama, you want to do that through Rama's PayPal. And you access that PayPal account through the rainbowroundtable.net. That's the, that's where you find that link. So again, the web address, rainbowroundtable.net. There on the home page, click on the menu grid, and the menu will drop down. Near the bottom of that list, you will see a donate link. Click on that, and that will link you to Rama's PayPal account, where you can make a donation in any amount using your bank card. So very simple, easy to do. Um, and as you have your own PayPal account, you can link to the friends option by using Rama's email at PayPal, which is as follows. It is Koran, K-O-R-A-N, 9999 at Hotmail.com. So Koran, 499999 at Hotmail.com. And that will keep you in the friends realm. <laughs> so that either way is perfect. We're grateful for your contributions and all the assistance that they that you can give at this time. And uh, lots of gratitude for your lives. Thank you. As you're sending something, please let Rama know. Uh, and his personal email is where you want to send him that information. And that is Koran, K-O-R-A-N, 999 at Comcast.net. So let them know what you sent, when you sent it. And then as you need it, the physical address, if you're able to send something tonight, is Ram D. Berkowitz, R-A-M-D Berkowitz, B-E-R-K-O-W-I-T-Z, Post Office Box 180, I mean 280, excuse me, 280. And that is in Santa Cruz, New Mexico. And that zip code in Santa Cruz, New Mexico, is 87567. And I'll say it again, 87567. So there you go. All the information you need for uh, making a contribution to Tara and Rama and also to the radio. So thank you, thank you, thank you for showing up like that, paying it forward like that. And may you be blessed many, many times for for your generosity. And let's see, I have two addresses to give you that are for um, Shop Freemart and for the New Gen site. So that Shop Freemart site, https colon forward slash forward slash www.shopfreemart.com forward slash T-A-R-R-A-M. That's the username. It's account number 7,000. You know you're in the right place if you've got that number. You know it's got to be the right place <laughs> with a number like that. So uh, that's the place you want to go to look around, see if you 
like their products and want to engage and know that there's no commitments about anything and really good products. So highly recommend it with this era that we live in. So that's the place you want to join and set up your own account and then you would order from your own account. And the same is true with the new gen wine. And I'll give you that address, https colon forward slash forward slash www.newgencoin, N-U-G-E-N-C-O-I-N, dot com forward slash T-A-R-R-A-M, or if you want to sign up under Marshall, that forward slash M-A-R-N-O-R. So there you go. That's all the information. <laughs> and um, good products, good Good crypto. The, the new gen coin is a, a cryptocurrency based on uh, backed by real assets, and so it's unique in that way. So you feel free to check it out and see if you want to engage. Um, and with that, I'm passing this talking stick, and it definitely has all that healing gold all over it, and everything else that Cheryl put there. <laughs> And lots of fairies and feathers and little people, the hobbits and gnomes and menahunis and unicorns and dragons. So greetings, Tara and Rama. Here comes this talking stick. Here we go. Greetings. Whoops. (laughs) (laughs) I hear an echo. There we go. Oh, okay. Thank you, Rainbird, and thank you, Cheryl, so thank you. much. Rainbird, thank you, Cheryl. Thank you, everyone. Divine government now. How's that for a statement? Mm-hmm. <laughs> At least six states passed election interference laws in 2022. That's the latest up there. But, um, Rama, I pass the talking stick to you so you can share what you learned today from your friend, Professor Nicodemus. Um, yes, I talked to Professor Nicodemus, and he said that human resonance is way up there along with the sun and the uh, solar flares and the frequencies they are very, very high. And this creates all kinds of new energies coming in for expansion and ascension. And as you're playing on the dark side, it's going to create more stress, more confusion, more chaos as they're trying to play with. And... um I'll just say that this new moon in Gemini and the aspects like the Oracle report is saying, you know, watch the energies. They are, they are playing with a very old, old ancient story. It is over. It is finished. Yet it is continuing. I mean, I heard so many things today uh, on the radio 
talking about Texas and the failed grand old pedophile party. That's what I want to call them because they are tied in with the 13 families and the fallen angels. And right now, no one's talking about this. I'm surprised Michael Isakoff isn't talking about it because he's kind of a muckraker reporter for Yahoo News, but Miss Maxwell has been singing and no one's talking about this, but Madame Palfrey's little black book is being up and like I opened up and I can just say, more than half of Congress is in that black book. And it ties in with the law. Having sex with little girls and little boys. And child trafficking, drug running, arms dealing. Why do we have an issue with... And the hologram of Hillary and the hologram of uh, former President Trump are still running that child trafficking ring. It's over 40 years, right? Yeah. More than 40 years. And that's why the energies coming in are just saying it's time for a shift. Enough. All we are saying is give peace a chance. And they have this agenda, as it was called in the old timeline of ethnic cleansing. And that's what they're doing. And like Mother says, it's over. That's pretty much what Professor Nicodemus shared with me today. They are out for blood. I mean, they're showing commercials, you know, for Jurassic World. June 10th, there's going to be another dinosaur movie. I don't know what it's called. And... You know, and that's a Friday, and June 11th, there's going to be a march in Washington and uh, calling out the Republicans, I think. And I need to say with great respect and honor and dignity, I serve with reptilian officers on the New Jerusalem. Well, they're good guys. <laughs> they are the good guys. <laughs> they might look a little like... Uh, some of our friends with scales, yet I had a companion. I still, uh, Ruth, the white dragon, and um, these are powerful allies, like one of our friends that came on the show on Thursday night at the round table talking about dragons. All these beings are here right at this time to help this planet and us ascend. We need to take it up and do it. And I guess how I can best describe it is like what Dr. King talked about, nonviolent civil disobedience with the fact that... um, We are watching Darth Vader's troops in the streets each day, getting a little more and more prepared for their uh, invasion force. And um, 
send more love. This is what Professor Nicodemus is saying. I passed the talking stick. I'm kind of going in circles because it's um, it, it's when you have the consciousness in that realm that you've got those blinders on and I have to say like Dr. Bruce Lipton says you can change your DNA and Greg Braden says that and Nassim and as you change your consciousness you can change your DNA you have to want to and Past the talking stick. So the Greg Braden one you're going to play now is just Greg Braden, right? Yeah, extraordinary scientific discoveries. This is called How Differently Would You Live If You Knew How to Use This Power? Talking about the Siddhas, our Jedi abilities. Yeah. I was going to play just a little bit. Um, Reverend Al Sharpton did the eulogy for the 86-year-old uh, Buffalo, New York, uh, black woman that was killed uh, all within, I mean, I don't know, uh, within a week of each other, the, yeah. the shooting in Texas and the shooting in Buffalo was about a week apart. Oh, my goodness. It is overwhelming, and I have to send more love. Um, it is and we're challenging all for all of us. We're all bracing for the Supreme Court to overturn Roe v. Wade now. Because of these life forms who still believe the old story Anki and Enlil whispered in their ears and I'll leave it there this morning uh, Yasmin Basugian uh, she interviewed this little boy he was actually 13 a very small 13 year old and he lost his brother at the school and his parents. And this little boy was just, through his tears, he was talking directly to Yasmin. And you know Yasmin's a mom. She's got two kids. They're a little bit younger than these. I think six and eight her kids are. I've lost four of my relatives with this story. They weren't kids, though. No, they weren't kids, but... How many millions, billions of us? And this is why I'm saying right at this time, like what Dr. King said. Well, these guys killed five and five to five and a half billion of us in the last three years. Yes. With a, you might say a. A vengeance. A, 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 yes. The, they created this little virus. And they added, this is really important, they added satanic frequencies and they had to have the technology where they can 
take the virus with those satanic frequencies and kill people that they want. Yeah. In other words, I just was thinking a couple of years ago, Amy Goodman, I think it was right around this year, right around this time, maybe in June, early June, she said the uh, figures for how many people are dying is at least 10 times more. And then Rama was talking to his faction, Three White Knights, and they said, multiply that 10 times more times 10. And then you got the right number. So right now, they're saying there's over a million people in the United States that aren't here anymore. So you multiply that times 10, you got 10 million. And then you multiply that times 10, you got 100 million. So the actual figure of people in the United States was something like 238, I mean 338 million. They weren't saying that, but that's the right figure. 338 million, so you subtract 300, 100 million from 338 million, you got 238 million people in the United States. And so you take that 238 million people and there's 140 million almost guns in the United States. And it's a very small group of the, as we we're just saying here, 238 million people left in the United States that have those guns. And these are the people, what are they doing with all these guns? They're doing all kinds of mass murder. It's the great lie that's been put out that, um, you know, they need to be very afraid of what's coming in and they want to change the narrative because right now this local sun system is shifting to higher frequencies and this old timeline is done. It is over. Yeah. Okay, so let me just play this little piece. Uh, just a second here, everybody. Got to get it queued up again. Where are you, Rama? Hmm? Where are you? Mm-hmm. You going somewhere? Oh. Uh, let me just find it again. Sorry, everybody. Some Joe Biden... Um, Signed an executive order today on gun um, oh on police accountability. I'm not exactly sure what it was, but he did that today. Okay, so let me just get this now. We're gonna turn the sound up here. Hey, you have baby, that's impossible. Baby's pretty special. 
for you to help us fix a terrible mistake. Is that a dinosaur on your shoulder? Yeah. What? <laughs> Back with Politics Nation, as I said, I'm live in Buffalo, New York, today where we had the funeral of Ruth Whitfield, who was an 86-year-old woman killed along with nine others in this race-based massacre two Saturdays ago. For you that could not watch it, let me play some of the eulogy I gave at Miss uh, Whitfield's funeral. We went from the back of the bus to the front of the White House. Ruth did not die in vain. Because in her name, we were put on the armor of righteousness. We were build a new buffalo in the name of these ten. We want economic development right here in Buffalo. Let the blood that was spilled be rewarded to seize a new Buffalo. Reason this man could come is because he did his work. He did his research. When Brown, he figured out Buffalo had a large concentration of blacks. And then he said, oh, wait a minute, they only got one black supermarket in the black community. So I wait till Saturday afternoon because a lot of them would be shopping. He figured out the demographics of exclusion. We got to break that down. I told the governor, just like they worked with her and I and others, about keeping the bills here, building in a new stadium. You can build a new stadium, you can build a new supermarket. Right. <laughs> and it's not either or, it's both and. We must fight to make a new buffalo. So when they know that they shoot us, whether we are black or Latino or Jewish or Asian or LGBTQ or disabled, if you only make us come together because we are the ones that put on the breastplate and the helmet of righteousness. And you can't fight us when we stand up because the God I serve got more power than you got. As we were giving the eulogy, I was glad Governor Hochul was there who did help to drive to build a stadium that is an economic engine here. And she pledged to help with the economic building in the black community in Buffalo. In fact, she's already been probably the first governor to sign executive orders around guns. And I stood with her, and I was glad she stood with the family today. We'll be right back. Okay, everybody. Um, just uh, know that um, Rama has been being told 
that intervention is very close at hand. Yes. In, in a very big way. And we don't know what it looks like, but there's each time Rami gets a message, um, they're saying that something's going to change over this Memorial Day weekend. What? I don't know what it is. Well, I know what they said. There's something that's going to be changed and it's good. Yeah. And I'll just really quick and then we'll go and play Greg Braden, right? Is that what we're going to do there? Yeah. Uh, I just read what Rama told me that the message actually was. He's, I received a text message from Professor Nicodemus today at 11.25 a.m. He said to me, Lord Rama, the energies are very high today. We are entering the early energies of the new moon arriving on Monday, Memorial Day at 7.30 a.m. Eastern Daylight Time. The dark side is out of center, out of control, and on a rampage of ethnic cleansing worldwide. The GOP is the grand old pedophile party. Their entire platform is about white supremacy and racism. This ties in with the billionaires across the planet who are, who are tied in with the fallen angels. So you see clearly the links in this old paradigm story. It is a failed story. And then the next line they said was, it is finished. And I re, I clicked on to I-N-R-I. That's a Mayan. Letters. Mayan letters uh, over the crucifix, over over the cross. And it means it is finished. I'm just saying there's a very strong statement there that was made. And it is finished, meaning that uh, may peace prevail on earth, may Christ return from the point of light within the mind of God. Let light stream forth into the minds of men. Yes. Uh, let light return to earth from the point of love within the heart of Christ. Um, uh, what's the next slide? Drama? Let love. Yeah, I have to bring up the right in. Okay, but let love return to earth. From the point, uh, uh, which is known as the center. Well, the will of, it's. (laughs) (laughs) Where the will of God is known. Yes. May it seal the door where evil dwells. Let light and love and power. Restore the planet on earth. Let light, love, and power restore the planet on earth. Let light, love, and power restore the planet on earth. Now would be good. Okay, Rama, tell everybody what this is about. We're going to play this. Um, how differently would you live if you knew how to use this power? This connects all things in existence for all time. And that, that's all it says. Okay. 
I was going to say before you push the button, just a second, I found the right book to get this. Oh. Um, I know it's in here. Right, Rama? Mm, I think so. It is definitely in here. We just got to find it. So maybe it's, it's okay. Go ahead, Rama. We'll find it and we'll say it later. Western science has just arrived at the understanding uh, that, that there is, in fact, a field of intelligent energy that connects everything, uh, certainly in our world, and it's believed beyond our world, even uh, the entire universe. Our science has only now uh, arrived at the understanding through the experiments and through the studies and the, the modeling of the equations that tell us, in fact, that field exists. So this is the place where we are now, and it's the place where the ancient, the indigenous traditions have always begun. They have always started from the place that we are part of everything, that that we are part of a greater existence, that everything is connected. And they have devoted their time, rather than, than trying to explore and prove to themselves this existence uh, really is there, they devoted their times to understanding how to work within this existence. What does it mean to life and death? What does it mean to our time together in this world? If this field is really out there, can we communicate with it? And if we can, what is the language that it understands? Well, the understandings uh, in terms of Western science that this intelligent field exists in late 1990s, early 2000s uh, is, is when the, the experiments actually confirmed what Max Planck in 1944 stated, the father of quantum physics, Max Planck, uh, actually said that the matter that we see in our world doesn't exist. It says the stuff we're made out of doesn't even exist, and the world that we see doesn't exist the way we believe it does. What he, he said was what we see as matter is here because of the existence of what he called a conscious and intelligent mind. And these are his precise words. And he followed that statement by saying that underlying this mind is the matrix of all matter. And this is the coin he termed in 1944. Of course, the movie's... Uh, I think first and foremost, we have to concede that we're dealing with uh, a gigantic mystery. Well, working on something like something was not right. What happened after she signed it? I had a house and good job and was making money. And <laughs> Jeez. Uh, a series was based on the, the studies that came afterward, but uh, it's actually been around uh, since the mid-20th century. So this field, the matrix or the divine matrix, as it now is being called, is recognized as, as the field of intelligent, non-conventional energy. It doesn't work the way electricity or, or broadcast energy works. Uh, and perhaps that's one of the reasons it's taken so long for science to catch up with the fact that it was there because our equipment isn't built to detect this kind of energy. Uh, on the one hand, on the other hand, these ancient indigenous cultures, they detected it through the equipment of their bodies. They understood how to sense and feel and work and move in this field. So for me, I was trained as a scientist. And in my training, there was never an allowance for uh, the possibility this field could exist. Uh, as a matter of fact, in the last 100 years, science uh, has, has missed the mark twice uh, in terms of their explanation, the story that science gives of how our world works. And we're now paying the price 
for uh, where science got it wrong, essentially. And, and it's coming full circle. It's being corrected. But the first place that this happened uh, was with the belief that the space between things is empty. And now we know that nothing could be further from the truth. There's there's a lot going on in what we always thought was empty space. But from the experiments that were performed in 1887, very famous Michelson-Morley experiments, to detect whether or not this field was there, when, when those experiments were interpreted uh, as, as proving the field wasn't there 100 years, over 100 years ago, from that point forward, our science has been based in the belief that everything is separate from everything else. What happens in one place doesn't have any effect on anything else. Uh, and what happens in this lifetime uh, has nothing to do with any other lifetimes. And when we leave our bodies, there's nothing for our souls to travel into. This is going to be important as, as we talk about some of the uh, the implications of our time in history, where we're going. So this is the first principle where they got it wrong. And the second was that science, Western science, has believed firmly that the experiences that we have inside of our bodies, our thoughts, feelings, emotions, beliefs, our prayers, our affirmations in here have no effect on the world beyond our bodies. And now we know that these two assumptions are flat wrong. There is something in the nothing. And we do have the ability through our hearts, what is called a coherent heart-based emotion, to create the fields in our bodies, the fields of our beliefs, of our thought, feelings, and emotions that extend beyond our bodies into the divine matrix. So when people ask, what is the divine matrix? The, the way to answer that, it is the container for the entire universe. As far as scientists understand right now, everything that happens in this universe and in the higher dimensions of this universe are all within the context of this field, number one. Number two, that the divine matrix is a bridge between our inner and our outer worlds. It's the conduit that allows our prayers and our, our good wishes for one another to move from our hearts into this field uh, and, and be disseminated and distributed in the field in ways that we're only beginning to understand, in ways that appear to defy the laws of physics as we understand them today. And that's exciting. And number three, this field uh, appears to be a mirror in that the quantum soup of all possibilities, if you will, that exists as this field will will mirror back to us. It's like a, a, a large projection screen that's everywhere all the time. It will mirror back to us what we claim to be true in our heartfelt beliefs, not what we speak as our truth, rather what we truly feel uh, is is the the, uh, the reality of the way our lives work, our relationships, the way our worlds work. What we hold in our hearts is our truth. Uh, this field will mirror back, and where this gets really interesting is sometimes those truths that we hold are unconscious truths, and we're not even aware of what it is that we truly believe. We know what we like to think we believe, but what we truly believe uh, in our hearts sometimes is masked even to us. And it is through the wisdom of recognizing what the world brings to us in our everyday lives, our relationships, our abundance, our health, uh, our romance or lack thereof, uh, all of those things. Those are all mirrors and the mirrors don't lie. They're mirrors in this divine matrix uh, showing us our, our true beliefs, what we claim to be true of ourselves in the world, our limits and our capabilities. This field, the divine matrix, of the many ways that scientists now describe the field and and what makes it so significant in our lives uh, is the fact that, that, number one, through this field, all matter appears to be connected. And the, the word that science is using for this connection now is called entanglement. 
What entanglement suggests is that when something happens in one place in this field, in the divine matrix, it can be in another room next to us, it can be halfway around the world, that uh, the effects of that something can be felt almost everywhere simultaneously. So I, let me just describe what I mean by that a little bit. There was a, a very famous experiment that was done in 1997, made the, the cover of the scientific journals, but it never made mainstream public media. Uh, and I think here's the reason why. It sounded like a very technical experiment. What scientists did at the uh, University of Geneva was they took a particle of the stuff our world is made of. It's called a photon, a little packet of light, particle of light, if you will. And they wanted two identical particles. So they took this one photon and they broke it into two. So both pieces had the same properties. And they had a specialized device where they could fire these in opposite directions at the same time, seven miles for one particle in one direction, seven miles in the other direction, when they reach their destinations, they're now 14 miles apart. They're using fiber optic cables to do this. And once those particles are at their destination, they can begin the experiments. And what they found was whatever they would do to one particle in a moment in time, the other one acted like it just had the experience faster than it could have if this one were transmitting the information to the other one. Sometimes this one would act like it was having the experience before this one even finished its experience. They they said they were tickling or disturbing the particles. They would uh, change the charge or change the spin rate or force the particle to go take path A or path B. But whatever they were doing over here, this particle always had the identical experience as if they were still connected even though they were physically separate. The reason this experiment is so important Why are some people blessed by luck, while others are not so lucky? Pay attention to this story. Helen Hansen was able to win any competition she took part in. She was known as the contest queen because she had won seven trips to Paris, boats, houses. She would basically take part in any sweepstake, any contest, and just win Helen Hansel. That's me with my documentary crew. And I... ...is it is now demonstrating to the scientific mind, what the ancient indigenous traditions have always said, and that is once matter is physically connected, even though it may become separate and distant from where it was originally, it's always linked energetically, always linked energetically. And here's why that's important, because we live in a universe many light years in diameter, and we're made of particles that were once all converged into a single unit, a matter of, of fractions of a second after what's called the Big Bang, what science believes the beginning of, of our universe. So if you can take all of the space out from between all the particles in our entire universe, many light years distant, and bring all those particles back together, scientists say that, that we would take up about the, the, the space of a single green pea, very compact, very hot, uh, uh, particles of matter. And this is where we were at one time. The particles of your body and our listeners and my body, we were once uh, part of all the stars and we were once part of this Big Bang. And if we were once connected, even though we are now physically separate, the experiments suggest that the energy connecting us remains. And when I began to understand that as a scientist, it helped me to understand when I hear the ancient and the indigenous people say we're all connected, we're all one, suddenly it began to make sense. Because my mind needed something to hang that nice thought upon. I wanted it to be true. 
I just didn't know in my training as a scientist, there was nothing that led me to believe that it could really be true. So the entanglement is one one of the descriptions uh, of the nature of, of this relationship. The second is what is called a, a hologram or a holographic principle. And I, I, I wanted to, to lay the foundation so we could share both of these together. In a hologram, the definition of a hologram is that every piece of something mirrors the entire something, no matter how large or how small that is. Uh, so I'd like to give an example of, uh, of what that means. I'm a very visual person to help illustrate this. Um, back in the 1980s, there was a, uh, a series of bookmarks that came out in the, the New Thought community. Little shiny strips of foil that had images that were put there with a holographic process. And if you held them in the light just right, you would see that image actually come alive. It looked like it was hovering above above your hand. And there there was an image of the face of Jesus and Mother Mary. And uh, there was one of, uh, of a great pyramid and a dolphin and a rose unfolding. There are a number of them out there. Those little bookmarks, if you have one, you can do an experiment. But you can only do it once because it would destroy your bookmark in the process. But if it's a truly a holographic bookmark, you can take that bookmark and you can cut it into a bajillion little pieces with a pair of scissors. And you can take the smallest one of those pieces, a little fleck under a microscope with an exacto knife and cut it in half, even again, and take that little fleck and look at it under magnification and you'll still see the entire image in that fleck, no matter how small, no matter what shape it is. And this is, by definition, this is the holographic principle. Every piece of the something contains the entire something on uh, on a different scale of, of magnitude. And this is important because it is now believed that we are holographic in nature, that we mirror all that there is in this universe. The universe is holographic in nature. Uh, William Blake said this so beautifully in, in his poem. He said uh, the entire the entire world is reflected in a grain of sand. And it's more than a nice poetic uh, saying. There, there's truly uh, something to this this fact, and it is it is through the holographic principle that nature. It's one of the most powerful principles in nature, and perhaps one of the least understood, because it is through the principle of of the hologram and the entanglement that nature can create a lot of change in the entire universe by initiating that change in only one place. Because by definition of the hologram, every every fragment mirrors the whole. So when a change is made in one fragment, that change is mirrored in the whole of a living hologram. That's important for us because it says to us that when we create peace at our family dinner table or in our communities, for example, that that peace is experienced in the hologram of consciousness of the divine matrix uh, in a way that extends much more than, than simply is not simply limited to to our family dinner table or our, or our prayer group. Uh, and, and this is why our prayers, people ask me all the time, they say, if I, if I am praying for my loved one in the battlefield of Iraq halfway around the world, I can make a really good prayer. The new best way to make money online that nobody's talking about, it's something you've never heard of before, it's Using Audible. So these right here are real paychecks from Audible. They're not prayer, but how do I get the prayer over there? I mean, it's got to go a long ways. How, how do I get my prayer from here to there? And this is the beauty of the hologram. In the two particles that were separated by 14 miles, when one of them 
have its experience and the other one acted like it had its experience. Scientists say, how did the information get from one to another? And in the hologram, the answer is it doesn't have to because it's already there. The information doesn't have to travel because it's already everywhere all the time. Our prayers, when we create them in our hearts for our loved ones, are already with them on that battlefield halfway around the world. When we speak to our loved ones who passed over into uh, into another world, what we're actually doing is we are speaking to the essence, their energetic essence, that is now within the layers or the higher dimensions of this divine matrix. And we don't have to to pump or, or send our prayers into the eighth dimension or the ninth dimension uh, by virtue of being in our hearts because we exist in those dimensions as well. It's, it's already with them. The whole idea of, of dimensionality, 25 years ago, as a scientist, if I walked onto a stage and talked about anything in a live audience, talked about anything happening in higher dimensional state spaces, uh, there's a good chance to be left right off the stage. And now, because scientists simply didn't acknowledge or mention much more than the three or four dimensions that we deal with now, uh, third dimension as uh, our physical world, and the fourth dimension being time and time space. There are a number of new theories that scientists are developing to explain and unify the laws of physics as we know them today. Uh, and this has been a great challenge of Western science. We haven't been able to come up with one story that explains the entire universe because our stories are fragmented. The mathematic stories of, of quantum physics or the mathematical stories of um, uh, Newtonian physics, they don't mesh. They don't, they can't work together to give us a coherent understanding of the universe. And where this may be changing now, science has come up with new theories, a number of different theories that are actually able to merge quantum and mechanic, uh, quantum mechanics and the Newtonian theories together. Uh, the quantum theory saying that we live in a universe of energy and the Newtonian theory saying we live in a universe of things. And it's the mathematics that describe the energy and the things they're trying to, to link together. Well, the new theories, uh, the new theories are called string theories. And although there are a number of different string theories, 11 at least, there is now a, a super string theory that brings them all together. And the, the reason I'm saying this, what makes it so interesting is for these theories to work and, and to unify the quantum mechanics and the Newtonian mechanics and the physical and the energetic world to do that, the theories require that we live in a universe of at least 11 dimensions and very possibly 25 dimensions. They say they must be there for these theories to work. And what's so interesting is the higher you go in the dimensions, the simpler the mathematics become. And where everything looks separate in our three-dimensional world, in our polarity world, everything is. It's all, we live in a world of pluses and minuses, men and women, light and dark, hot and cold, black and white, true and false, uh, love and fear. We live in this polarity world. And this is where the mathematics do not work. And I would expect that they wouldn't work here because everything here is in that separateness. However, the beauty of these new theories and the way that they tie into the ancient, the indigenous traditions, both of life and death and life continuing after death, what we call the death, is that they require this, this higher dimensional experience. And the higher you go, in these dimensions, the mathematics become simpler and simpler and simpler, and they actually unify in the higher dimensions. 
Very, very simple mathematics. And the reason this is interesting is because what the studies now have shown is that when you and I have a feeling, coherent heart-based emotion in our feelings, those emotions are actually coherent. They're linked, they're in resonance with these higher dimensions where everything is one. So when we're having an effect and we have a feeling and we see a physical effect in our world, it's not that our feeling changed something in this three-dimensional world. Rather, our feelings are speaking to the blueprint in the higher dimensions and we're seeing the shadow of that change in our physical world. And this, to me, uh, uh, tremendous implications in terms of life and death, our soul, the seed of the soul, where do we come from, where do we go in between lives, where do we go after after we die, do animals have souls? Uh, all of these questions, uh, these understandings now are bridging the language of science and the language of spirituality. And the ancient and the, the indigenous traditions have been here for 8,000 years in a very exciting new way that gives us this, this, uh, this very holistic picture of who we are and how we relate to one another and what life is really all about. To me, that's very exciting as well. A growing number of mainstream scientists within just the last two years, this is now uh, 2007, so 2006, early 2007, a growing number of mainstream scientists are now putting forward an idea that is uh, gaining tremendous momentum regarding consciousness, uh, who we are in consciousness, the nature of our physical reality, uh, and how things really work. And when, when we first hear about this idea, it almost sounds like science fiction. And then we ask, where does science fiction come from? Many times it comes from the intuitive hit of how the world works and what's possible. And then it becomes the reality of our world. What these scientists are saying, MIT scientist Seth Lloyd, for example, in his 2000 book, Programming the Universe, literally is proposing that our entire universe and consciousness is either a computer in and of itself, that the universe is a quantum computer. This is what they're saying. Or if the universe is not a quantum computer, that the universe is the simulation that is being run on a big computer somewhere. And when I first began to hear this, you know, at first as a scientist, I think, you know, this sounds pretty out there. But I began to explore why mainstream physicists would, uh, at, at leading universities would begin to, to look at things this way. And my, my training, I was a senior computer systems designer uh, for Martin Marietta Aerospace during, during the Cold War years. So, it, of course, it's my language. But the more I began to understand, and I looked at the comparisons, every computer has a language that it uses to get things done. Uh, consciousness is the operating system of this universal computer and belief is the language that it recognizes. Uh, every computer turns bits of information off and on to make things happen. And I said, well, in the universe, we don't have bits. And, uh, and I began looking at the comparisons and they're looking at literally the stuff our world is made of. The atoms are the bits. When the atoms are turned on and in physical existence, they are reality. When they are not turned on, they're uh, unatoms or anti-atoms or anti-matter that, that are not in existence. And they're, they're taking this uh, so seriously, this, uh, this proposition that we may literally be living a simulation of, of some kind. But they've done mathematic modeling to determine 
the probability that we are or are not living a simulation. And the, the mathematics suggest strongly that we are living in a simulation. And the reason I'm, I'm mentioning this here, I, I know it's a very different way of thinking about things. It sounds like the movie The Matrix, but where did that come from? The reason that this is important is because when we begin talking about the soul, what the ancient indigenous tr- traditions say to us is that while a part of our soul uh, speaks and experiences through this body, we're not really here at all. That our higher self uh, is is a part of a greater existence. And we always go like this, it's somewhere else expressing through this body. We've just come back from uh, a tour in Australia uh, and the aboriginals in Australia, as well as many other traditions, say this isn't the real world. This is the illusionary world. Uh, and and they spend more of their time in what they believe is the real world and what we would call the dream state. So all of this ties together when we talk about life and death, uh, uh, existence, consciousness between lifetimes. Where do we go when we leave this body? Uh, from the perspective of these these new ways of seeing things from uh, physicists and quantum physicists who are looking at this as a simulation, it's when our part of the simulation is over. Uh, it doesn't mean that we are gone forever. It just means that we're no longer expressing here. and We're in those higher dimensions wherever the simulation is being run from. So it's a, it is a fascinating concept. And the more we begin to explore it, and, the, and when you look at the mathematics and they plug in all the variables, they say it's more likely than not that we are actually living in, uh, in a universe that is, is the result of a massive simulation that's being run from somewhere else. Sounds like a Star Trek episode. <laughs> uh, Seth Lloyd is, is the man, the MIT uh, physics professor, who's developed the first feasible, viable quantum computer. And he said even in the infancy of our computers, a quantum computer is so powerful, it wouldn't take much more to model an entire universe on a quantum computer. And the thinking is that who or whatever is responsible for the simulation is probably uh, light years ahead of us in terms of technology. So so to believe that they may have quantum computers that could manipulate the bits of matter. And it sounds very technical in some respects, uh, and it stretches us in some respects. And it also, and that's the purpose of films like this, that we're looking for new ideas, new ways to think out of the box, whether it is a reality or even if it's only a metaphor, even if we only use this as a metaphor, it's a powerful metaphor that allows us to hang our beliefs upon because whether it is a physical reality or a metaphor that we live in a simulation, the bottom line is this, that if we understand the language that this reality recognizes, then we are no longer limited by the laws, the relative laws of physics as we know them. It means that we no longer have to suffer in our lives or age or we don't have to have the poverty and the disease. We don't have to have the war. If we understand the language, then we literally can rewrite the reality code that runs our uh, real or uh, metaphoric simulation. And to me, it's uh, we need some new ideas to look at the world because what we're seeing now is, is so many people People believe there's a single physical reality. If you want to change it, you've got to go out there and hammer it into submission militarily, economically, uh, men bumping chests with men, you know, guys uh, with, a, with big armies and, uh, and a lot of power. And we know where that's gotten us. So it, <laughs> my feeling is that we need to think we need new ways to think about our universe. And this is one of the most powerful, innovative ways that I've seen in a long time. 
And it's not so new, just different language, because this is what the ancients have always said. They said, you're not from here and that we don't live here uh, and that this world is a dream and that this world is an illusion. Uh, and, and then it opens up all kinds of questions. If this is a simulation, who's the architect? <laughs> when did it begin? When does it end? And all of these have implications in terms of uh, life in this world, life after death, life from this perspective. Death just becomes a journey uh, into the homeland of where everything begins rather than the end of everything that you've ever known. So I, I, I can't help but imagine one day if, if this is either a, a dream, a simulation, uh, real or metaphorically, we'll just wake up one day and we'll look at each other and we'll say, what were we thinking? What in the world were we thinking when, when we did all those horrible things to one another? Mm-hmm. But what, what we now know is when I was in school and when many of our listeners were in school, we were taught that this is a physical reality made of atoms. And our atoms look like little solar systems. They were models, little solar systems, things in the middle called a nucleus with other things orbiting them like electrons. And, and those days are long gone. We now look at atoms rather than things orbiting around other things. We look at them as concentrations of energy mm-hmm. in space and time where there are no clear-cut things. Mm-hmm. And where this gets important is that the scientists, uh, and this is in the standard physics textbooks, this is no surprise what I'm about to say, is that if you change the field of energy that the atom lives in, you change the atom. You can change that field electrically, uh, or you can change it magnetically. And there are terms for the, the effects, the Zeeman effect, the Stark effect, are, are well-documented effects of uh, electrical and magnetic changes in the field that change the atom. Where, while it sounds technical and maybe not relevant, where it gets really relevant very fast, is our hearts are the strongest bioelectrical and magnetic field generators in our bodies. Our hearts generate stronger electrical fields than our brains. They generate stronger magnetic fields than our brains. Our hearts are 5,000 times as powerful magnetically than our brains. We hear about EKGs of our hearts. They're up to 100 times stronger than the EEG, the electrical information in our brains. So when we create thoughts, feelings, emotions, beliefs, compassion, prayers of forgiveness in our hearts, that's the words that we call those experiences. But to the field, what we're doing is we're creating electrical and magnetic waves in here that are now known to change the stuff out here. And in that way, we are linked. So when we talk about our universe uh, possibly is a simulation. It tells us that we are not separate, that we are empowered not to control or manipulate or impose our will, rather uh, to participate, as Princeton physicist John Wheeler suggests, to participate uh, in the way this reality unfolds, to participate in our personal growth and healing, uh, in the healing of our loved ones to participate in the peace that happens in our families and between nations. And the the little catch is that for us to share the beauty of this participation, we must work together and share those heart fields. And that, I think, is is where this learning curve is actually going. And we may not use that language. We don't have to understand all the technical aspects. And people know that when you have a feeling, it, it may have an effect. But in our Western world, we need... Our mind, our, our left brain, our logic needs a framework to hang these 
very uh, subtle spiritual understandings upon it. But we'd like to believe them. We just need a reason to believe it. And, and the reasons are there. Uh, if if we can take the understandings out of the very technical realm uh, and, and share them in a language that's relevant to uh, to people that don't have that background. Science is only a language. It's a good language. It's only one language that describes our world. And there are many other languages. And I think, for me, this is the value of going into the monasteries of Tibet and Bolivia and Peru and Nepal. We've been in monasteries in Egypt uh, in their, their libraries, their records. For 1,500 years, people who have, li- have lived the traditions and perpetuated and taught them because we can look at them. I can look at another human eye to eye, heart to heart, God to God, in that moment directly or through a translator. And I can ask them, human to human, I can say, when you just did that miraculous healing, <clears throat> what happened in your body to make that happen? How'd you do that? And if I don't understand what they say, I can ask them again and again and again until they either kick me out of the monastery because they're tired of my questions or they will answer my question. And in this way, we learn from this 5,000-year-old uh, heritage uh, of our past. And we marry that with the best science of, of our day today. Uh, in the book Small Miracles, there's an uh, amazing story. It's a, it's a true story, and I share it with our audiences a lot, uh, of what many people would call a miracle. And for me, it's uh, it's a demonstration of just how real this field is that connects everything. It's a story of a young Jewish boy. His name was Joey, uh, who at the age, uh, I believe, of 19, suddenly woke up one morning and began to question 5,000 years of Jewish tradition. He began to question all of the things he'd been taught by his family. Uh, and his father took it as a personal offense. He said, how can you question this this lineage of, of, of wisdom and tradition? And Joey said, I've got to go out in the world and find out for myself if, if these things are true or not. And his father said, uh, if you turn your back on your tradition and you go out in the world and search for yourself, he said, you're no longer my son. I have no son. And Joey said, I've got to do this. And he, and he left. And he went into the world and he studied uh, in the ancient and in, in the uh, the Eastern traditions, Buddhist traditions, uh, and the Jewish traditions. And he was in a small cafe, uh, I believe it was in Paris. And you never know who's going to walk into this cafe. And a friend of his walked in from the States that he hadn't seen since he left. And the first thing his friend said was, I was so sorry, Joey, to hear about the death of your father. And it was the first Joey knew that his father had died. And so he immediately came back to the States and he began uh, speaking to his father's friends and their neighbors. And what he found is rather than turning his back on his son, his father had done just the opposite. He was so proud of his son for having the strength to question 5,000 years of faith. And he, he spoke about his son incessantly and honored his son's courage. And this led Joey back into the Jewish tradition that he had left to explore uh, and it eventually led him uh, in a traditional pilgrimage to the to the Holy Wall in Jerusalem. Mm. And uh, if you've ever seen this wall, you know that it's made out of these massive uh, stone bricks that have been there for so long that the mortar holding them together has fallen out. So where the mortar used to be, there are empty spaces, and the tradition is to inscribe a prayer on a paper or a cloth rolled up and place, it, place your prayer in, into that wall. And this is what Joey was doing. He, he'd written a prayer to his father asking for his father's forgiveness for the pain that he'd caused and the suffering in the family. And he was pacing back and forth in front of the wall, looking for just the right place where he would leave his prayer. And there was a place that caught his eye, and as he was raising his hand to put his prayer into that place, the moment that he did that, another prayer that was already in there 
somehow magically fell out at his feet. And as he reached down to pick up the prayer that had fallen out, it was already partially unrolled, and he, he already recognized what was happening here. It was a prayer in his father's handwriting that his father had written before his death and had come to precisely the same place and put in precisely that crevice in the wall that Joey had been drawn to. And as Joey read the prayer, it was a, it was a prayer from his father to God asking for forgiveness for turning his back on his son and how much he really loved his son and how proud of his son he was. And the reason I share this story for two reasons. First of all, when we hear the story, there's a feeling within us. I feel it every time I share it. That feeling is a language. It's a nonverbal language. And if I just simply said to you or to an audience, have that feeling right now, you might be hard-pressed to do it because there's no reason to have the feeling. But when we hear stories like that, that feeling came from a place of innocence, uh, of emptiness, of non-judgment. You didn't know what was going to happen, but you feel a feeling when you hear that story. Number one. Number two, for Joey to find precisely the crevice in the wall where his father had been months before his death. There obviously, and for that, for him to be there that moment and for that prayer to fall out of the wall at his feet, and this is a true story, there obviously was a communication that was not bound by time or space, or in this case, even life and death. It was a message from beyond his father's life in this world. And for that to happen, there's got to be a conduit that carries that message. That's the divine matrix. That's the field that we're talking about. So we know that that our our soul, what we call our soul, uh, is uh, is an energetic essence. A number of studies were done early in the 20th century, even trying to measure at the instant of death how much weight a body loses in their passing. And no matter if the person was a 300-pound man or a 70-pound woman, the, the amount of weight that they lost, I think it was uh, 28 grams, I believe is what it was, was the average. It was about the same. A lot of controversy around, uh, around the studies, and uh, I'm not sure they've been duplicated well. But the key is there, there is uh, apparently an essence within each of us that is not bound by this world. And we ask the question in our mind, when that essence leaves our bodies, where does it go? Understanding that we live in a universe of at least 11 and probably 25 dimensions and that this field of energy is made of a non-conventional field that doesn't work the way electricity or, or radio waves works. Uh, all of a sudden, it's not so far-fetched to believe that we're part of that essence and that we can move and travel and navigate and maneuver through those fields when we're not inhabited uh, or inhabiting our, our bodies as, as we know them today. It's giving a whole new meaning to life, death. Uh, when the ancients talked about heaven and their hands always went like this, were those heavens, and there are multiple heavens, were those heavens the higher dimensions? Was heaven the language they used? 5,000 years ago for what our male-dominated, schematically-oriented, left-brain technological society calls higher-dimensional state, state spaces. Are we, are we talking about the same thing? So this is, a, again, this is the value for, of going back into these ancient traditions and, and looking at, at the, way, the way they looked at the world through their eyes and asking what did they know maybe that we've forgotten. I had the opportunity a few months ago uh, the last remaining Gnostic sect to survive into the 20th and now the 21st century is a sect called the Mandaeans. Uh, and interestingly enough, 
the location of their home has been the border between Iran and Iraq, right where Gulf War One and Gulf War Two rolled right through them. And uh, I was in another country where many of the Mandaeans had fled, uh, and one of the high priests asked to, to meet with me while we were we were in this country. And of course, I said yes. And he brought with him a scroll uh, that he says is over six thousand years old. And it was written in Aramaic, which is interesting to me because Aramaic was the language of Jesus. Uh, and uh, we're not sure when it actually began. But what was interesting about this scroll, in our biblical traditions, the creation of humankind happens in a couple of sentences in the book of Genesis. Because we've got the Reader's Digest condensed version, and a lot of things we know were edited out. In other traditions, such as the Mandaeans, they are in scrolls, so there is column after column, paragraph after paragraph of information describing uh, the creation of the human body first and how the powers that be then tried to put the soul into the body, uh, suggesting that our soul is in fact separate and comes from somewhere else. And what makes it so interesting is, is that the first few iterations of humankind – could not hold the power of the soul or the spark or the light of God from this higher dimension. And it was only when they perfected the genetic recipe for the bodies that we have now that they could get the, the soul. And it, it always says when they created the body of Adam. It's not when he created the body of Adam. When they, indicating that there were, were multiple people created or multiple beings, created the body of Adam, uh, they could not get the soul into the body of Adam at first. So into the male body of Adam, they placed the feminine soul uh, from a higher state space. The higher dimension is the way we can interpret this. And it was the marriage of the physical body with the feminine soul that gave Adam his animation and allowed him to become the man uh, that he was. And that, that uh, either metaphorically or uh, in reality, this is uh, the story that tells us that our bodies and our souls while they share time together and are merged in this moment, that they are actually separate entities. Mm -hmm. And when we talk about life and death, here again we find in at least a 6,000-year-old tradition that there's something inside of us that's not from around here, that comes from somewhere else. And we begin to think about our universe and our lives as a simulation. Uh, it's saying essentially the same thing, that, that we're projecting or experiencing through this physical body to find out something here about ourselves in this world that apparently we cannot experience in heaven or in these other worlds. And in these texts, they are what we would call plays of morality. If you live in the eighth dimension and you wake up every morning in the eighth dimension and all there is is light, it's easy, easy to live in the light. But if you wake up in this third dimensional world and you've got choices of light and dark and good and bad and right and wrong and males and females – and all the things that go with that, and then you have to choose. And, uh, and that's where it gets really interesting. <laughs> so this is, uh, again, this is the value of going back into some of these, these ancient traditions because they had a, a language that was intact that describes our universe and who we are in a way that our science is only now beginning to understand. Whether the ideas proposed by the, the physicists that we are somehow living a simulated reality are real or metaphoric. Again, for me, the bottom line is they suggest that we are living 
uh, in a universe and in a world that we're part of rather than separate from. And as part of our world, we are empowered to participate in our healing and in our abundance and in our peace. And I believe that that may be what this, this life is all about, recognizing recognizing that there's a power within us that allows us to transcend the great suffering uh, and achieve the greatest joys that we could ever, ever want to experience. What that means to me in terms of everyday life is looking at the world around me through new eyes and recognizing that this world is nothing more, nothing less than a mirror of what we claim to be true in our hearts. And if we choose to live in a new world rather than trying to hammer it into submission externally, we can choose in our hearts to feel and believe uh, in, in ways now that our scientists say actually affect and change the, the reality of our world through what's called coherent heart-based emotion. They aren't just thoughts or wishes, feeling as if our bodies are already healed, feeling as if peace has already happened in our lives, uh, and giving thanks or appreciation and gratitude for whatever time we have together in this world. Because uh, real or simulated, we don't really know how long it lasts or how long we're here. So from my perspective, every day uh, I do my very best, and I ask myself the question, what can I do today uh, to leave every place that I visit a better place than it was than when I got there? And whether it means cleaning up the sink in an airport bathroom before I leave because it looks better when I left than it did when I came in, or when someone stops me in the hall in a very busy conference to talk, and I know I've got to be somewhere else, am I too busy to talk to them, or can I give them 60 or 90 seconds fully present, fully focused, and honoring, and just say to them, I, 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 uh, I can only honor you for, for these moments, and look them in the eye. Uh, in that way, these are the little things that we can do in our, in our day. Be fully present with everyone uh, that comes into our lives and crosses our paths, and where we choose to travel and share our energy, leave that place a better place than it was when we left. Wow. The last bit of what he was saying is um, applies to the next 2,000 years in Virgo, overlying everything, which is the divine feminine application to detail in terms of the ability to receive love and to... Uh, uh, manifest from there, which means you leave everything in a better space than when you got there. So that's the word. I I just remembered I heard something today on the radio that I think on Memorial Day in the Santa Fe Plaza, the Veterans for Peace are going to come together with a group of other folks from uh, the New, New Mexico farms around here, and they're going to take an AR-15 and an AK-47 and melt them down and turn them into a plow and a rake so we can use in the garden. In other words, symbolically. 
No, they are physically going to show up no, with, no, a, fo- I mean, with yeah. a forge on the Santa Fe Plaza, melt down the guns, and they have a mold. They're going to turn them into a rake and a shovel. Yeah, it's, it's real, but I mean, I mean, the metaphor is that they're saying we're going to turn, turn all the weapons, of, weapons of war into, into plowshares. That's yes. very good, Rama. Well, you'll get a chance to see that. Yeah, swords into plowshares, like the man said. Do you know when it's going to take place? I'm not sure what time on the plaza. Yeah, well. Probably yeah. in the afternoon or something. Yeah, well, maybe. Yeah. Okay. It's, it's kind of interesting. Um, Penny. Oh, Penny. Yes, I, um, you can hear me, right? Yes. yes. Okay, I I just have a comment to make. Uh, when he was talking about the quantum physics and 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 talking about all those string theories and everything like that, this I've got two comments to make. One's a question, and one is just a story. The first co- the first question is: I thought Nassim had pulled all of that together. Uh, and that everything he had already demonstrated mathematically, uh, this is a year or so ago that we had that um, uh, interview that we watched where he had pulled it all together, that everything, you know, had gone from the smallest to the largest and had taken care of all of these things that Greg was talking about, you know, the things that didn't seem to be consistent. Do you guys remember that? I do remember that, but... um that's he did it and he created the physics you know the uh the quantum physics and i remember that very well the thing is that it just sits there unless the people manifest with wisdom and knowledge of how to use it that's true but what about the fact that some people might consider nasim a renegade too in other words ignore it because it came from him and not from a so-called bona fide uh, physicist. You know, I don't know uh, about that. Nassim Harbin is a quantum physicist. <laughs> he is. But it's, when he started, he wasn't considered to be um, legitimate, if you want to say it, put it like that. Mainstream. Only because he's, he was teaching something that the mainstream political sphere didn't want to hear. And now they're getting used to it, to to quote Greg, right? They're getting used to it. Yeah, because they don't have a choice because it's already manifesting. That's right. Well, and that gets me to something else. When we we were going to the Ramsa school and the summer that we spent learning about quantum physics and I thought my head was going to bust the whole week that we did it. At one point, I stood up and uh, I was recognized, and I asked him, and I said, "I." And so you're saying that this physics has already existed? We were talking about Newtonian physics and this physics, and mm-hmm. I said, "So you're saying that this physics, this final, this final kind of physics, has always existed, and Absolutely. was just waiting for somebody to find it, to be ready to find it?" And he said, "Yes." Yep. And I said, thank you, and sat down, because <laughs> all of this physics has always been here. 
we're just beginning to find out about it. Well, and I've never forgotten that exchange. I it was, was just say, like, oh my, you know. <laughs> I didn't know Rama. Well, I've heard Rama before, but you know, Rama's I, oh my is pretty much part of my vocabulary now. <laughs> Penny. Yes, ma'am. Um, uh, let me put a caveat to what you were just saying, and that is that uh, the most recent period of his story, this last 6,000 years, um, uh, the uh, satanic uh, occultists, uh, the dark side, if we want to call her, the Anunnaki, erased everything so that the people would be stupid. In other words, it's not, we're not just learning this. You go back to ancient Lemurian times. You go back to ancient Atlantean times. It was everywhere. I think that Plato and Socrates were talking about quantum physics in Greece. Well, yeah, but... Uh, I could be wrong. <laughs> well, yeah, they well, were. Well, and that's really, that's really no different than what I said, because Ramso was just... Uh, was just acknowledging my, my sudden understanding that this had already been there. And you've just finished telling me the same thing. Except we went, we went through the, you know, the dark, we went through dark alleys and, uh, you know, black fields and all the rest of it and stopped and visited Isaac Newton instead of going straight to the quantum physicist, right? That's yeah. all. Yeah, and Matt. I just, what I'm trying to say, I think, or what I am saying is that a few elitist characters decided to cover things up in the last six thousand yeah. years. Mm-hmm. But but what I'm I guess what I'm now that you've put it that particular way, that's what I said to Ramsa. I suddenly got it that it had been covered up. Maybe I didn't know how it was covered up, but it had always been there. And he was just yes. simply saying. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Like it was one of those profound moments. Oh, boy. Thank goodness that we're getting to this place of exposing them. And it's been a little bit of a challenge, hasn't it, Penny? Well, it's been a challenge to ex- expose. And uh, some of the discussions I've been having today, I mean, we can we can see where uh, people who say in their religions believe it's okay uh, to kill other people in the name of God or in, in other religions don't know that um, abusing children is immoral. They just accept it as being the way things are. There's going to be some profound awakenings or people's heads are going to explode and they won't be here anymore. Or maybe they won't make the transition. I have no idea. It's just, it's just, uh, just having had this, these discussions about some things that are so outrageous that we consider immoral and so on. And uh, that's because of ignorance and, you know, the lack of education. And, in fact, the discussion went along the lines it's going to take a lot more than education on its own. 
to bring people along, there has to be a change in the energies. And that's precisely what we're looking at right now. The change in the energies has to come before people's minds can begin to wrestle with the profundity of what we've just heard. Yeah, what I I can say is I recall this episode of Star Trek Next Generation where Captain Picard had to explain to a group of people that we have a wisdom that you lack. We'll share that wisdom with you, but in time you have to evolve and get to the place where you can grasp the wisdom Otherwise, it's kind of like all you can think of is magic. And that idea that magic and that there is almighty creator somewhere up there, this male entity like Enki or Enlil, who's an angry god, who used his Siddha's abilities that we would consider magic to mess with our minds. And, yes. and we're waking up out of that amnesia and realizing, like Greg Braden is saying, yes, we live in a simulated reality. The quantum computer, I would like to call it Metatron, to help to create this simulated reality with the other cosmic time lords to help us grasp how we are not our bodies, yet what he was saying is that it takes a lot for the soul to be in this body. You have to downgrade the energies to the point where the soul can be housed in the temple, the body and I think that there were issues going on at the time when the Nephilim Anunnaki were creating bodies. They somehow had to tone the energies down, rather from 12 strands of DNA down to two. And there's some kind of mix in there. I don't know enough about the physics the higher quantum physics of that because I'm still learning. But what I got from what he said is they had to kind of lower the frequencies because the soul would burn up the bodies in that. Ah. So there may have been a a reason um, that was not necessarily evil then. Oh. Yeah. Mm. Okay, well, I, I, there's, now that makes two more comments, and the first one is about what you mentioned, Metatron. I must admit, I'd rather hear any discussions like we heard today, instead of talking about quantum computers, that, that just, my hair stands on end when we <laughs> talk about that, because it, it, it brings in the whole idea of mechanics, and it, it talks, and, and it remind, and it's just redolent for me of energies of, or ideas related to this transhumanism thing. And so I would prefer to listen to you talk about Metatron and the Time Lords, and then we can get through the idea of machinery and talk about love, 
as a different kind of machinery, I guess. But yes. I much prefer I much prefer to hear discussions about the Time Lords. I'd rather go into a telephone box and talk to Metatron, you know, than you know, than think about quantum mechanics, quantum computers. <laughs> but anyway, and the other thing that I wanted to address, in he, uh, Greg was talking about all these scientific experiments about measuring the the body before the soul left, and blah blah blah. Um, one of Len's friends, uh, his wife was a, a nurse at one of the big hospitals in Edmonton, and she would talk to us about the idea of people seeing the soul leave, and there was a, I think she said it was 13 ounces, or I don't know, it was 13 ounces or 13 grams, but the, the they already knew, all the nurses knew about this. This was not new. Um, it was just something they all understood, and they came to see it with their own eyes as an ex- as experience. So I'm just saying, what do you mean they're doing experiments? Everybody knew about that, I thought. But anyway, not everybody knows about it. But anyway, that's um, some of my comments. But uh, I just love to see them sit there for 45 minutes and just, Nobody's asking him questions unless he's getting them on a screen somewhere. He's, it's all put together in his mind, and he's able to pull things together and, and talk about details, and it's just tremendous, you know. There he explained how to, pray, you know, how to pray rain. I mean, that was awesome. <laughs> but anyway, so that's about it for today, at least for this portion of the program. Thank you, Penny, for for, you know, bringing uh, this commentary for the people to hear. I think it's time for an episode of Doctor Who. <laughs> I do. I agree with you. I think we yeah. need Doctor Who as well. I'm, I'm with you there. You know, <laughs> at least we can, yeah. we can bring it down to levels that everybody can get. You know, that's what, that's what the business we're in right now. Or if we're not in it directly, we're soon going to be. It's okay, fun. that's it for now. Happy Thanks for Memorial listening. Memorial Day, everybody. This was good. Thank you, Betty. Okay, namaste. Okay, namaste. So while we're still on this, I looked it up. The uh, Yeah, we'll play that next. The Great Invocation, stanza three. As this world catastrophe, in other words, they're actually talking about this is taken from this is taken from a book that's called Signs of Christ. There's a whole bunch of echoes here. Commander Donner, Doug, can you, can you turn off Penny's uh, line? There's a whole bunch of echoes here. <laughs> Hello. Okay. Commander Donner, Doug, can you turn off Penny's line? Commander Don or Doug? Where's there? There we go. I think. Okay. There we go. Okay. As this world catastrophe draws to its inevitable close, that's where we are right now. 
and the forces of light triumph over the forces of evil. The time of restoration opens up. For each of you, this indicates a renewed time of surface and activity, service and activity. I send you herewith the final stanza of the great invocation. And this was written back in the 60s or even before that. Oh. You know, this I mean, these people knew, even though they got kind of compromised, the Lucas Trust folks, because it's tied in with the UN, you know, I gotta say. Hmm. Doesn't say. Hmm. Uh, hmm. But, I mean, as I recall, I was reading that back in the 60s, but I could be wrong. Yeah, I do remember that. 19, oh, here it says copyright 1979. Oh, okay. There we go. By Altai Publishers, A-L-T-A-I. Okay, so let me go back here, just this little short thing. So, um... Yeah, as the world catastrophe draws to its inevitable close and the forces of light triumph over the forces of evil, the time of restoration opens up. For each of you, this indicates a renewed time of service and activity. I send you, each of you, I, excuse, I send you herewith the final standard, stanza of the great invocation. I would ask you to use it daily and as many times a day as you can remember to do so. You will, you will thus create a seed of thought or a clear cut thought form, which will make the launching of this invocation among the masses of men and women, but you know, just humanity, a successful venture when the right time comes. This great invocation can be expressed in the following words. From the point of light within the mind of God, let light stream forth into the minds of men. Let light descend on earth. From the point of love within the heart of God, let love stream forth into the hearts of men. May Christ return to earth. From the center where the will of God is known, Let purpose guide the little wills of men, the purpose which the masters know and serve. From the center which we call the race of men, let the plan of love and light work out, and may it seal the door where evil dwells. Let light and love and power restore the plan on earth. That's the word. And so it is. So there's two key pieces here that's going on right now. May Christ return to earth and may it seal the door where evil dwells. And that's our job. This is why Professor Nicodemus and all the folks are saying to me, this old timeline is finished in the sense of this simulated reality of samsara and suffering and infinite war. Mm. And like Greg Braden talked about, as we tune into our heart, which has got more 
magnetic power than our brain, we can change reality, space, time. This is what I keep being told by all the beings I <laughs> kind of connect with, including the ones with hooves and horns and fur. <laughs> 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 and beaks and feathers and scales. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I, let me read just, but now you're inspiring me to read a little more. <laughs> Under the st- title, May Christ Return to Earth, it says, this return must not be understood in its usual connotation and its well-known mystical Christian sense. Christ has never left the earth, and Pe- mm-hmm. Penny was pointing that out. It's always been here. What is referred to is the externalization of the hierarchy. And what I understand about that, understand, overstand, is that's us. We are the externalization of the hierarchy as we comprehend it. Jedi masters. There you go. So, um, and uh, it's not only the externalization of the hierarchy, also its ex- ex- exoteric appearance on earth. The hierarchy will eventually, under its head, the Christ, function openly and visibly on earth. That's why Rama's keeping on saying, uh, when, when he gets a message from his faction Three White Knight, they keep on saying, we're here, you know. We're on the ground. Yeah. Open your eyes. And it's not about expecting. I mean, it's kind of like what I experience is go about your business. And what Greg Braden said is like, if you go into an airport bathroom, use the sink, make it cleaner than when you left it or when you found it, that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. That's that's the deal. Um, we are in service to the whole. The hierarchy will eventually, under its head, the Christ function openly and visibly on earth. This will happen as the purpose of the divine will and the plan which will implement it is better understood. That's what we're doing here. That's why we do these shows and and all of these wonderful beings that we can you know, provide a platform for everybody to hear. Uh, Okay. um, So where was that again? The the hierarchy will eventually, under its head, the Christ function openly and visibly. And this will happen as the purpose of the divine will and the plan, which will implement it is better understood and the pure, period of adjustment of world enlightenment and of reconstruction has made real headway. This period begins at the San Francisco conference, hence its major importance and will move very slowly at first. And this is back in 1979 that they're talking about. Mm -hmm. And uh, you know, that's, that's, that's 1979, April 7th to 14th was the World Symposium on Humanity. Eight-day event. Right that year. And that was uh, 1979 is when uh, 
i.e. Barry Soto, Barack Obama, went to Mars. Is that not true? Uh, yeah. Uh-huh. Okay. This is a long one, we should. I know. Well, we're not going to get done with it before we do the uh, astrology, but we'll mm-hmm. we'll do it. This this will happen um, as the purpose of the divine will and the plan which will implement it is better understood and the period of adjustment of world enlightenment and of reconstruction has made it. San Francisco Conference. Okay. It will take time, yet the hierarchy thinks not in terms of years and of brief cycles, <clears throat> though long to humanity, rather in terms of events and the expansion of consciousness. Okay, we'll read the number two thing later. But let's do this now. Tell, uh, let me see. Tell, tell everybody what we're going to play. William right. Henry, um, talking about the cosmic Christ. Uh, and, uh, it is awesome to be whole. So we'll just let him do it. Here we go. Here we go. Everybody. everybody. Happy Easter to you on this most incredible time in all of our lives, perhaps the most incredible time in all of human history. Claire and I send you much love and light from Nashville and deep gratitude for joining us today for this moment. All of us are are called upon at this moment while we celebrate Easter, while we celebrate the resurrection of Christ and all that means in our lives we're now called upon to take another step forward and to begin to embody the most powerful force in the known universe, the compassion of the cosmic Christ. My goal today with you is to put you in touch with that deep part of yourself, that core part of yourself that has that endless reservoir of that compassion, light, and love, and to reset you for what is to come. I want to begin with our cover image. It's one of my favorite transfiguration icons of Jesus. It's from the 15th century. It's Russian. It illustrates the story of when after the baptism, Jesus takes several disciples, Peter, James, John, up to the top of a high mountain, and he transfigures before them. He literally turns into light. He changes his state of being from flesh and blood into a higher state, which we are assured by the mystics is our true nature, our original state. Jesus is demonstrating what is within all of us in his metamorphosis or transfiguration. His face shone like the sun and his garments became as white as light, indicating this profound transformation that he's undergone. In the Psalms, it asks the question, who may ascend? the mountain of the Lord, this high mountain. Who may stand in his holy place? And the answer comes, the one who has clean hands and a pure heart. Well, now that we all have clean hands these days, thanks to our present world situation, it's time, I believe, to 
bring in the other half of this equation, a pure heart, to open our hearts to ourselves and to one another, to all our loved ones, because indeed tapping this reservoir of compassion is going to be the only way that we are going to be victorious and triumphant in the days ahead. What we're called upon to do is to not only wash our hands, but to also wash our cloaks of light. This is how the Essenes would think of it. They were to wash their robes of light so that they could ascend into the celestial realms, the new Jerusalem or Sion. And one way that we begin to wash our robes of light is with acts of compassion. As Colossians says, therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. This is what our times require, and it requires these acts of gentleness, compassion, kindness, and patience in order to weave our cloak of light. In addition to those acts of kindness, another way that we can begin to wash our robe and to embody the compassionate light and love of Christ is through transfiguration icons. If you followed my work these past 10 years, you know that I've made a deep study of icons of transfiguration or metamorphosis, which are considered to be two-way channels of energy. We are not just looking at an image of Christ transfiguring into light. He is actually present in our space at this moment. He is with us through this image. Because these icons were created with the intention that they are sacred mirrors and gateways into other realm, into other realms. Through prayer and meditation, believers could actually come to perceive the divine light that is emanating from the heart of Christ at this moment during his transfiguration. And we could become like him through a mystic union by linking with the divine Christ energy through the image. These icons are all about other dimensional, otherworldly experiences in enabling us to go beyond the veil into the immaterial world, into the divine realm. In fact, this is what we see in these icons is heaven opens. A rip in the fabric of taste of space-time is seen in the left and right-hand corners. Moses and Elijah are transported from their heavenly dwellings by angels and led to a meeting with the glorified Christ, with the illuminated Christ. The heavenly veil that we see torn open here now with Elijah was torn open at Jesus' baptism, at his transfiguration, and at his crucifixion, meaning all three events have to do with the, with the movement or the unveiling of the ultimate cosmic mysteries. What is it that is beyond the veil that separates us from the divine realm? What is in that divine realm, and how can we bring it into our world today? And here we see Elijah stepping into the field of the illuminated Christ, just as we are stepping into it as we sit in our sacred space in our home or wherever we are at this moment. Christianity is founded on the premise that Christ is God incarnate. Paul said that Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, is the image of the invisible God. He is God made visible. 
And the question then becomes, can God be made visible through an image? If Christ is an image of God, he must then reflect God or something of God. And can Christ, therefore, as an image, be imaged himself? Can this image of Christ transmit the holy vibration of Christ to us? And can we receive this image, or excuse me, can we receive this divine vibration through the image? Or is this like asking if a beam of sunlight reflected on water can somehow leap from the water and take on life? The answer to these questions is definitely yes, according to the iconodules, those who were the lovers of the image, who believed that the image would show us the way to our own divinity, that we could indeed connect with the cosmic Christ through an image. And I will further explain how this could work as we continue. But for the moment, I want to take our journey a little bit deeper. In these, in these images, we're going to see very often Christ is shown performing hand signs called mudras. A mudra is a spiritual gesture and an energetic seal of authenticity that's employed in the art of communicating with spirit. So if we want to enhance our connection with the cosmic Christ, we're told that we can mirror what he's doing in these images. So it's a very good idea for all of us now to signal Christ that we are present, that we are making a seal, a bond with him at this moment. This mudra that he's, he is signaling in this transfiguration icon is the apana or descending vital energy mudra. It's formed by touching the tips of the ring finger and middle finger with the tip of the thumb. The purpose of this mudra is to regulate the excretory systems of the body. It detoxifies and purifies the body and also helps in digestion. And maybe this answers why everybody has been stocking up on toilet paper lately. They know that we're going to be in for a real big detox coming up, and we're going to start using our detox mudra. When practicing any mudra, it helps to focus the mind on the desired results, as then we're directing consciousness from multiple levels. So when we're engaging the transfiguration icon, our goal is to receive the divine Christ-like, the compassion of the cosmic Christ in order that we can wear our robes of light. So as you engage this icon with the Apana Mudra as your seal, as your link, visualize yourself now putting on that robe. Visualize yourself in this incredible space of the Christ light, wearing that robe of light, allowing it to empower your actions of kindness, generosity, and compassion as we move out into our new world. Jesus' message after the transfiguration was very powerful and apropos to our present moment as well. When the disciples saw Jesus suddenly morph into light, they were terrified. They were absolutely afraid of what they were seeing. This was their friend Jesus from Nazareth who suddenly is morphing into light. Jesus' message for them was crystal clear. Rise, he said, and do not be afraid. Rise and do not be afraid. And that is our calling. We are to raise our frequency, raise our level of compassion and kindness in our lives so that we are shining and radiant beings in the model of the cosmic Christ. So let's take a moment to use our mudra 
to make that connection with the cosmic Christ, to invite him into our spirit, into our soul, to transmit to us now the most holiest vibration and allow that to begin to move through our body and our soul and our mind and our spirit and to guide our actions from this moment forward. This face that we see in this transfiguration icon is well known to art historians. It's from a 5th century icon that was discovered in 1962 at St. Catherine's Monastery in the Sinai. It is as close to a photograph of the living Christ as we will perhaps ever see. I will show you an image shortly of the actual living Christ, and you will see that these two faces will indeed match. As we look at this icon, his eyes are incredibly haunting at the same time they're bathing us in utter compassion. And we notice once again that he is signaling us with a mudra, a different mudra, the prana mudra, another extremely helpful hand signal in, in linking with the cosmic Christ in this icon, but also for embodying something that we all need just a little bit more of right now. And that is vital energy. This mudra is formed by touching the tips of the, of the ring finger and the little finger with the tip of the thumb, which strengthens the immune system and gives the body the resilience to heal itself. This mudra activates the root chakra, which promotes stability, calmness, and self-confidence. Again, qualities that we definitely need to bring up from within ourselves right now. We're told that this mudra is capable of healing more than a hundred different diseases. Who knows? It may be extremely helpful at this time as our world is now challenged with a virus that's going around our planet. Maybe with our compassion and our link with the cosmic Christ, we can do something about that. That's my intention anyway. So as we're looking at this image, we're feeling the compassion of the cosmic Christ. We're linking with the cosmic Christ. And now we're plugging into the true mysteries of how we can ultimately make our way, our own ascension in this world. St. Catherine's Monastery in the Sinai is home to this incredible transfiguration mosaic. It's also from the fifth or sixth century. And in the center, we see Christ in a sort of a blue cosmic egg with eight rays streaming from his body. The light in the cosmic egg goes from light blue to dark blue. This indicates that he is in the known world when it's light and going into the unknown world when it goes into the darkness. But once again, we see the same face. We see Christ offering us a mudra. This time the earth mudra is performed by touching the tip of the ring finger with the tip of the thumb. The mudra is very efficient, we're told, at strengthening and healing the body. And it also activates, once again, the root chakra, which, again, promotes a sense of stability and self-assurance. This is what we're establishing for ourselves by putting down this layer of compassion in our lives as a layer of stability. Because we know that if we live by the golden rule, if we're exuding compassion, love, and kindness, that that is what we will bring back into our world. So I'm offering this as another example of a beautiful transfiguration icon that you can use, especially with the signaling of the mudra, to embody 
to compassion of the cosmic Christ, but also to enhance your confidence, your stability. Wonderful, wonderful image. St. Catherine's is also home to this incredible ascension image, again, from the 6th century. In Jesus' story, we have the baptism, we have the transfiguration, we have the crucifixion, we have the resurrection, and then we have the ascension. And you know you're looking at an ascension image of Jesus when he's in an orb of stars or surrounded by stars, sitting on a rainbow. And this establishes the early Christian belief that one, Jesus ascended, and that his ascension was indeed connected with the celestial realms and also with the rainbow. We see the same thing here in this 5th century mosaic from Greece, from St. David of Thessaloniki, in which we see an unbearded Jesus. Jesus is a youth now, sitting in the rainbow uh, with other figures who are gathered around him. And this, this illustrates for us a very important early Christian teaching. And that is that a glorified body or a body of shining rainbow light is the form which the early church believed that not only Christ possessed after his resurrection and ascension, but also all the saved, those who are whole, holy, complete, and compassionate, will also one day share this form. This is the critical prophecy in all of Christian teaching, this promise that one day you and I will morph from our flesh and blood bodies into a light body, a glorified light body, just like Jesus achieved or demonstrated for us in his resurrection and ascension. In fact, in Second Corinthians 3.18, Paul remarks that Christians are, in fact, right now, in the process of transfiguring into heavenly light beings. He said, and we all, who with unveiled faces contemplating the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. That is the promise. There is no difference between my body and your body and the body that Jesus inhabited. The difference is he knew more about what to do with it than you and I do. And our goal is to embody that compassion of the cosmic Christ so that we can lay a stable foundation to receive the rest of the codes and teachings that will enable us to complete our own metamorphosis. This illustration from the 6th century Rabalu Gospels from Syria also portray the ascension of Christ in a very similar form. As art historians have noted, this ascension image, perhaps more than any other, established the pattern for all future ascension images of Jesus. In it, we see him in the rainbow ring, riding upon the Merkaba, the celestial vehicle of the cosmic Christ. This is the celestial throne chariot that the Essenes, the Jewish mystics at the time of Jesus, had written extensively about. Jesus was a Merkaba mystic, a master of this throne chariot. And it was upon this celestial throne chariot and the rainbow ring that he ascended to the new Jerusalem, the celestial Sion. In my work, I have gone into great detail to link the correspondence of the images of early Christianity of Jesus ascending in the rainbow ring to the Tibetan images of what is called the great perfection. 
in the Great Perfection teaching, we're taught that the human body is designed to have its frequency accelerated until it spins itself into a five-colored rainbow light body and then resurrects into that form. After the body has attained the rainbow light body state of being, we then have the ability to phase back and forth from the rainbow light body into a physical flesh and blood form if we choose. The reason why we would choose to, one, commit ourselves to attaining this state of perfection, and once we have attained it, to phasing back into a physical flesh and blood body, is so that we could deliver the greatest amount of compassion possible. So the Tibetan rainbow body teaching, just like Christ's teachings about ascension, are motivated by the desire to establish a compassionate world or a world of compassion, light, and love. And the reason we pursue these mysteries is so that we can become more compassionate beings. In these images of the Tibetan guru Padmasambhava, we see that he holds a resurrection stick. He wears a crown of glory. He has golden rays and rainbow rays coming off his body. And he holds the Vajra, the Tibetan symbol for compassion and action, and he sits on a lotus throne. I'm going to come back to these symbols momentarily. But for now, I want to make a, a very important connection for you. And that is, the Tibetans say that just seeing these images of Padmasambhava in his rainbow body awakens our own rainbow body. And I am of the opinion that Christianity has derived its teachings about transfiguration icons and Jesus morphing into light and ascension icons from these very same sources. The Tibetans teach that as an enlightened being, Padmasambhava has the ability to transmit the frequency or vibration of enlightenment to seekers via his physical image, which is equal to pure spirit energy. What this means is that the images of Padmasambhava in, the, in his rainbow body transmit the codes or vibrations of that perfect state. This is why the Tibetans teach that just seeing these images resets our own frequency, our vibration, and activates our own rainbow body. We practice activating our light body, our glory body, our resurrection body, our ascension body, by contemplating, meditating, and reflecting on the images that are presented here, be it Padmasambhava in his light body, or Jesus. They both teach exactly the same principle. The image, be it an icon of Christ or the icon of Padmasambhava, puts you in the energy field of the guru. The eyes are the windows to the soul. So we're making a direct eye-to-eye, soul-to-soul contact with Padma and Padmasambhava and Jesus through these images. The Tibetans teach that we in the image of Padmasambhava are two extremes. We have a flesh and blood body, but not as much compassion as we would like to have when we're not radiating rainbows. On the other hand, Padmasambhava has a body that's made of rainbows, as does the resurrected Christ. And they both have boundless and impartial compassion. When we put these two extremes together, in the rainbow body meditation or the meditation on the icons of Christ and his resurrection body, we move in the direction 
of manifesting as a being with a flesh and blood body and unlimited compassion and maybe a few rainbows thrown in for decoration. Now, imagining that we are just like Christ or Padmasambhava is not like me telling you you're going to turn into a Learjet or a flying airplane. We already have this within us. It is our true nature, according to Christianity, Buddhism, and other sacred teachings. We already are this illumined, glorious being. The purpose of these meditations is to become conscious of that aspect of our intrinsic nature. So if Padmasambhava or images of Christ are perhaps not resonating with you, may I suggest an image of the white Tara, the Buddhist goddess of compassion. May I suggest the Virgin Mary, who is also portrayed with her many colored cloak or garment, symbolic of her attainment of the glory body, the rainbow body, the body of compassion. In this painting, we see Mary wearing this colored cloak with a star on her shoulder, indicating she's in her star body, her light body. And she wears her plasma crown, indicating that her consciousness is expanded into the universal, into the cosmic domains. Christianity, and especially Gnostic Christianity, and Tibetan Buddhism share similar language They share similar teachings because their source is the same. It's cosmic. This is not a Christian teaching. It's not a Tibetan teaching. It's a cosmic teaching. It's coming from the risen ones of all the world's sacred traditions. In fact, in the Gospel of Philip, second century Gnostic gospel, we're told the Lord rose from the dead. He became as he was, but now his body was perfect, meaning whole holy, complete, and compassionate. He possessed flesh, but this flesh was true flesh. Our flesh isn't true. Ours is only an image of the true, says Philip. Our true flesh, our true nature, is a being in a glorious rainbow light body, attained by Padmasambhava, attained by Jesus and his resurrection, and attained by others, and attainable by us as well. You may feel like, well, wait a minute, I'm, I'm not quite ready to go full Christ-like body at this moment, and that's okay. But what I am asking you to do and inviting you to do is to begin to embody the compassion of the cosmic Christ as a way to transform our world and to transform your world, to move the needle towards wholeness, holiness, compassion, and perfection. And in so doing, you will make an immense contribution to the new thought sphere of the new humanity that we are all building at this very moment. As Corinthians says, the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. And this is a major message of the cosmic Christ that all that we see around us Suddenly, because of our the crisis and the cocooning that we've all been doing in these past few weeks and maybe a month for some, has led us to realize, to, to go into a deep state of reflection and realize that, you know, a lot of this stuff around us is wonderful, but it's transient. And what is absolutely eternal is our soul and our soul's quest. And the cosmic Christ asks us to 
remember that we all have this light body within us. Its powers are almost beyond our comprehension. The powers of kindness, generosity, and compassion can utterly transform our world in the blink of an eye. But even more than that, it's ultimately the way, according to the Tibetans and early Christian teaching, that we will ultimately transcend this transient realm. As the Gospel of Philip says, we must become perfect, meaning whole, holy, complete, and compassionate before leaving this world. That is the message of the cosmic Christ. In traditional Christianity, they talk about this as being born again. But being born again is really nothing more than actually attaining the light body of Christ, the rainbow body. Christianity teaches that we must allow the spirit to enter into us, to join our spirit with the cosmic Christ. This brings me a lot of comfort because it tells me that I don't have to go full rainbow body, full glory body, resurrection body on my own. There are others that have done it before me, the risen ones, and they are here to assist me. I just need to find a way to invite that spirit into my body, to ask them to assist me in my resurrection and ascension. Christ lives in all of us when we do this. And in my view, one of the most direct ways for us to invite the spirit of the cosmic Christ into our lives is through the images of the resurrected Christ. The mystery of being born again into the light body is now revealed. That is the mystery which has been hidden from the past ages and generations, which is Christ in you, the hope and glory. Christ is in you. Christ is in all of us. This potential is in all of us and ready to be activated at this time. And that is the teaching of the risen Lord. After the resurrection, Jesus made a number of appearances to a select group of disciples. These usually took place on a high mountaintop and involved Jesus teaching them about heavenly places, the garments of light, which they would be given, and their own ascent. All of the Gnostic teachings were given after Jesus' resurrection and ascension. This is why I study them so deeply, because I know that That is the teaching that will ultimately provide the keys to our ascension. And here I've highlighted the mountaintop and also the cloud upon which Jesus rides, which is now a simplified form of the Merkaba vehicle that we saw earlier in the Rabbalu Gospel. So we see the disciples gathered around Jesus. We see them absorbing these teachings. And now we know of the connection to the Merkaba mystics of of the Jewish mystical tradition of the rainbow light body tradition of the Tibetans. These are all cosmic teachings originally brought here by beings I refer to as the risen. They who have completed their ascension and are now entering into our world to assist us in our own. Because humans are made in the perfect image of God, we have the spiritual capacity and the physical past capacity to participate in or mirror Jesus' divine glory as image bearers, and we activate our light bodies. The Bible is direct and specific about this, saying, as was the man of dust, so are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, 
so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, in other words, of DNA, a carbon body, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. We already have this within us. We just need the spirit and the compassion of the cosmic Christ to activate our own glory body or resurrection body. Earlier, we noted the resurrection stick, the crown of glory, the Vajra, symbol of compassion and action, and the rays of golden light and, and rainbow light coming off the body of Padmasambhava. Now we know that we see exactly the same symbolism in the resurrection images of Jesus, who wears the helmet of salvation and carries the rod of enlightenment, his holy resurrection stick. He wears his garment of light, and he has a rainbow ring around his body. These images are both illustrating the perfect state of wholeness, holiness, and compassion that all of us have already within us. And again, the promise is, is that there will come a moment in time when we shall be changed in the twinkling of an eye at the last trump. For the trump will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. And isn't it remarkable that at this time we have a figure in the center of our world who is, has changed spinning all around him and his name just happens to be Trump. The change that we're talking about here is a change into our ascended bodies, into our bodies of cosmic and compassionate light. And the assurance is that this can happen in the twinkling of an eye like that. And that is the promise of our time, that we are living in a moment where we will be able to activate our light bodies and transform our world. And what we need, in my view, to assist us in doing this are mirrors, images of the cosmic Christ guiding our imagination, letting us know that we are on that path. We all have two choices before us right now. Ever since Revelation 2012, and by that I mean the year 2012, that year of immense transformation, we have been living in the days of judgment. In the book of Revelation, chapter 20, verse 12, which is the final judgment, it says, I saw a great white throne and one seated on it. The earth and the heavens fled from his presence and no one place, excuse me, no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. And there were open books, and one of them was the book of life, and the dead were judged according to their deeds as recorded in the books. Have you ever thought about this possibility that we're living in the judgment day time when all the books are open, when all our lives are transparent? Mm -hmm. Just ask people that have been outed because of the Me Too movement. They've been judged. All their lives, their books have now been opened. And they are experiencing that moment of judgment. Mm -hmm. And we're told that will all come for all of us. And this is why it's now a time for us to find that place of compassion and kindness and generosity and stability within us, that spirit of forgiveness. Because we can either focus on punishing people continually, or we can focus on finding that compassion within to ultimately forgive them. But, of course, in order to forgive, we need justice first, and we need that balance in our world of equal justice for all.
Mm-hmm. So I'm presenting to you these images of Christ on the rainbow as imagery to feed your imagination, as imagery that can activate your own light body, like John the Revelator, who's who's seen here, going over the rainbow bridge of consciousness, peering into the heavenly realm, the throne of Sion, where the ascended Christ dwells. And we see all the other rainbow light beings that are around him. As John said, there was a throne of God. His servants stood in the place of perpetual heavenly light. The Essenes believed that this perpetual heavenly light would one day bathe the entire planet, bathe us in that light, that cosmic light of compassion, of love, of truth, and kindness. And we're almost there. And we can bring that in in an accelerated way by all reaching deep within and raising our vibration closer to the wholeness, holiness, compassion of the cosmic Christ, who once again has his resurrection stick, his crown of glory, his golden rays, just like Padmasambhava. The images will show us the way. We can enter into this higher divine state through the image. It's already within us. We just need to activate it. Padmasambhava in his light body, holding the Vajra, the symbol for compassion and action, the cosmic Christ. It's the exact same state of being. Mm -hmm. And I make this comparison, one, to illuminate and to draw these connections together and to bring a comfort level that if some are deeply comfortable with the the connection of a Christ-like being, that perhaps you will find more comfort in connecting with the Tibetan guru, Padmasambhava, or other beings who radiate or have manifested the rainbow light body. But for us who follow the Christ path, we are making eye-to-eye contact now, soul-to-soul contact with Christ in his rainbow light body. And he is transmitting to us the codes that can activate our own light body to stimulate our ability to manifest that unlimited light of compassion and love. Jesus told us through his crucifixion or showed us through his crucifixion what all of us were capable of doing. He pulled back the veil and revealed the mystery for us. And to me, one of the most profound images of Christ on the, in the crucifixion is by John Van Eyck, who was actually an alchemist, the inventor of oil painting, and was literally considered to be a spy. In this profound image, we see Christ on the cross, not suffering, not bloodied, not beaten, as we see in traditional Catholic images of the crucifixion, but rather we see him as an illuminated being. We see him in his glory body, his resurrection body, his rainbow light body, making eye-to-eye, soul-to-soul contact with us, transmitting the rays of the resurrection body to us at this very moment. I will share with you a very powerful personal testimony with this image. I assure you that if you connect with this image, it it can produce profound things in your life. My wife, Claire, suffers immeasurably from migraines that I I can't even believe what she goes through when she has one of these migraines. 
I can't even watch it, let alone contemplate experiencing the level of pain and suffering that she feels. And one day I, I put, this was, happened a while ago, I, I decided to use the power of this image. And so I started doing hands-on healing with Claire when she would have these moments. And before I would do the hands-on healing, I would call up this image in my imagination. I would ask Jesus to, to empower my hands, to light up my hands. And then I would put them on, on Claire's head. And she could feel it. She could feel the energy coming through my hands, coming from Christ in this image into her head. And then one day I realized, wait a minute, I'm, I'm not doing, I'm not doing this entirely correctly. I've, I've visualized myself connecting with the cosmic Christ and bringing that compassion and healing ability into my hands. But I haven't activated my crown chakra. Mm. And so then I started doing that. And suddenly, the, the power in my hands dramatically increased. I, I could literally feel it just, just turning up almost instantly. And then I realized that I still wasn't doing it completely right. I realized that what I need to do is to actually utilize the power of the whole image and to begin to visualize my whole body illuminated with light. So now when I do a healing or do healing work on Claire, I activate my hands. I activate my crown. I activate my whole body and my feet. And I visualize myself levitating on that light. I encourage you to try that as one way that you begin to use these images for practical purposes in our lives. You might consider suiting up in your suit of cosmic armor, your glory body, before you go outside. Because if this image can transmit the healing vibration to us that I can transmit through my body to my wife, isn't it possible that it can also create a field of protection around my body? So now every time before I leave the house, Claire tells me to put on my cosmic cloak. Put on your cosmic cloak. And I do. I take that moment to visualize myself with my full suit of cosmic armor on, my helmet of salvation, my breastplate of righteousness, my belt of truth, my sandals of peace, and my fully activated light body, radiating this light, love, and compassion to everyone and everything I come into contact with. The body of the perfect ultimately was said to have become transmaterial or semi-angelic, which fulfills the teaching of the Gospel of Luke. Neither can they die anymore, for they are equal unto the angels and are the children of God, being the children of resurrection. That's another term for the risen, the children of resurrection. That is our quest. That is our goal, to become equal to the angels as children of God. The mission of the perfect was to assist and show others the way to attain their angelic status release their divine spark from the earthly cycle of incarnation and to return to the glorified light body. And that indeed is the goal in our world today, just as it was then. And it is my goal as a teacher of ascension, as an ascension scholar, as someone who has researched and taught this subject for over 20 years to help you to move your needle into greater wholeness, holiness, compassion, and ultimately into your own angelic light body. In our world, we are now confronted by people who seek to do a, to mimic 
the power of our resurrection body. I speak of the transhumanists. I speak of the AI and 5G advocates who say all this business about an organic resurrection body and light body is nonsense. The way forward is to mesh our flesh with technology, to activate the body's capabilities by merging it with nanotechnology and artificial intelligence and to have 5G's fires running through our veins. I am and have been for a very long time advocating that you and I have a choice at this very moment. And our choice must be to remain organic beings, to activate the powers of our flesh and blood body through the spirit of the cosmic Christ, through the compassion of the cosmic Christ, not through technology. I will be going into great detail about that in my upcoming webinar, The Rising, Ascension, and the New Humanity. And I'd like to invite all of you to participate that in that absolutely critical workshop. So please consider joining us on April 18th and 19th here at Portal to Ascension. I want to turn a page here and follow the story of the cosmic Christ just for a moment. I want to go to his birth and see how his story manifests as a cosmic being. We're looking here at one of my favorite annunciation scenes is by Carlo Crivelli. We see two angels, Archangel, excuse me, the Archangel Gabriel and a high priest who are standing or kneeling before Mary, who is receiving the dove of the Holy Spirit. The dove is entering into her crown chakra. It's come from the cosmic realms. It's come from the heavenly realms through a rip in the fabric of space-time. This is another story involving the openings of a hole in heaven or a hole in the fabric of space-time. And we see the beam of light coming from this rip in the fabric of space-time going into the crown chakra of Mary with Gabriel announcing that Mary will be the bearer of this Christ child. The Christ child, of course, is already in his glory body or resurrection body. He's getting ready to phase out of that body into his earthly flesh and blood body as an agent of the creator. And that's what we see in all of these images where we see the star child, as I call Jesus here, manifesting from out of the higher dimensional realms as an illuminated being. These images come from a story, a 6th century Gnostic gospel called the Revelation of the Magi. In this story, the Revelation of the Magi, the, the, the Magi are not following a star. We are told that they are following a star child, the cosmic Christ. This is the premise of the Revelation of the Magi, a 6th century, excuse me, 8th century Gnostic gospel that was translated into English by Dr. Brent Landau. The book tells the familiar story of the three magi following a star in search of the Christ star, excuse me, of the Christ child, but from a completely different perspective. The star child appears in the sky, descends from the heavens, which open like a great gate, and he manifests inside of a cave in which he invites the magi to come inside. The star child opens up the gate. The Magi come inside and they see that this is in fact Christ before him. Christ tells the Magi that he has been sent from the Father for the salvation of all humanity 
and instructs them to follow the star to Bethlehem to see his birth in human form. So he's going to morph out of his light body form or phase out of his light body form into his flesh and blood form. And he also tells them, by the way, that he has appeared in the past and in the future. So that's what we see in these images now of the, the revelation of the Magi, of Mary bringing the Christ child on her Merkabah throne into the earth plane. In this triptych, we see the Christ child in the center and fully illuminated as a, a radiant being, a luminous being. We see the Magi pointing upward. And here's the star child manifesting out of the star, carrying the cross with him. This is very unusual and very important because it tells us that he brought his instrument of transmutation with him. He brought the cross as an instrument of crossing beyond the veil with him. Very much like what we see in the Zoroastrian images of Ahura Mazda. This crossover historically is evidenced by the fact that the early Jews in 600 BC, when they experienced their period of exile in Babylon, came into contact with the Zoroastrian teachings about Ahura Mazda, the god of light, who is seen in Iranian artwork riding upon a winged ring, holding a ring of cosmic sovereignty that symbolizes that he is in his glory body, his light body, or his resurrection body. In present-day Zoroastrianism, these images are a reminder of our purpose and mission in life, which is to live in such a way that our soul progresses towards our union with the God of light, Ahura Mazda. The images are complementary, and so are the story, because I believe they're originally coming from the same cosmic source. We are talking about a revelation of the star child, a revelation of a risen being coming into our world. Here's Sassetta's version of the Magi following the star child as this luminous ball of light. What we're actually seeing is the cosmic Christ spirit breaking from the fifth dimensional world into the third dimensional world and preparing to morph into a human form, one that is visible to humans. And that's what we see in these resurrection images of Jesus is that he has morphed into his light body form. Another favorite is Roger Vanderveden's where once again, we see the, the Magi looking up at the Christ child and the orb of light Clearly a cosmic traveler, a light being who has come from the cosmic domains with a message about ultimate compassion and transformation and preparing now to morph into a physical flesh and blood form to deliver his teaching about light, love, and compassion. And ultimately, the teaching surrounds the belief or focuses on the belief that we all will one day mirror Christ in his ascension and resurrection we all will attain that rainbow light body. In this image, of course, we once again see the Christ child in a a radiant halo of light. We see the watcher angels opening up a hole in the fabric of space-time. The watcher angels are the risen ones who are present for the arrival, the emergence of this cosmic being who manifested on Earth 2,000 years ago in order to show us the potential that is within us as cosmic beings. And as I discuss in my forthcoming book, The Return of the Risen, The Essenes and the Perfect Light Body, the meeting of the Magi was not a chance meeting. This was all planned by the Essenes. They were following what theologians call the star prophecy, 
in which the Essenes were anticipating the arrival of a high celestial being who would manifest on the earth plane to show us how to transform into celestial beings. Pliny mysteriously claimed that the Essenes themselves had been on earth for thousands of ages, hinting that they are an eternal race that exists outside of time. These are the risen ones. They're referred to as the immovable race of perfect white humans, the immovable race, or simply the race. I call them the risen. And their their mission was to call in this high celestial being so that this being then could assist us in manifesting a planet based on love, light, righteousness, and compassion, and a planet in which souls could attain their ultimate cosmic divinity. To the Essenes, angelification, or changing our body into our light body form, the angelic light body, was a return to our original primordial state of perfection. Our ultimate quest is to unite Earth with the otherworldly realm of light and join the greater family of light, the risen ones. And that is what is happening on our planet right now. We are all gathering together, absorbing these teachers, these teachings, uniting as one in order, in order to return Earth in all of humanity to the family of light. Again, the Lord rose from the dead. He was a star being who came to show us the way towards our own ascension. The Essenes community rule tells us this high heavenly being would reveal the mysteries of eternal being concealed from humankind. And at that time, the righteous will be rewarded with healing, great peace and a long life and fruitfulness together with every everlasting blessing and eternal joy and life without end, a crown of glory and a garment of majesty and unending light. That's our goal, to get that crown of glory and that robe of majesty and unending light. And as I will talk in my presentation, The Risen, my workshop, it is such a remarkable synchronicity that the word corona means crown. And this is this coronavirus is now giving us an incredible cosmic opportunity to go within and to manifest that crown of light. And also our robe of light, which was transmitted to Jesus at his resurrection. In Leonardo and Del Vecchio's painting, we see the, the, the vibration of the cosmic spirit, of the, of the Holy Spirit, manifesting and being transmitted into the crown chakra of Jesus. The two angels wait beside him, and they offer to him the robe of light that is to accompany his crown of glory. The transfiguration is what follows the baptism of Jesus. When John the Baptist, the Essene mystic and initiator, baptized Jesus, he put a transmission of a vibration into Jesus' earthly body that would enable him to wear his robe of light, his cloak of light, the cloak of the illumined ones. And this is why immediately after the resurrection, excuse me, after the baptism, Jesus takes the disciples up to the top of the mountain and reveals himself as a being of light. He transfigures, he demonstrates to the the disciples the capability that is within all of us. This robe is called the robe of light, the robe of sanctity, the robe of glory, the shining garment, the garment of light, the beaming garment. It exudes something called exousia, which means authority, jurisdiction, liberty, power, the right to act, ability, privilege, capacity, and strength. Everything that the powers that be are trying to take away from us at this very moment. 
So if we want to recover our authority, our power, our capacity, our privilege, our liberty, then one way to do that is to begin to cloak ourselves in our robe of light. And how do we do that? By connecting with images of Jesus in his light body through the icons as I'm presenting, but also through acts of kindness, generosity, and compassion. This is exactly what Jesus demonstrated for us immediately after the transfiguration. He begins performing the miracles. The first miracle, two blind men receive sight. As Jesus and his disciples were leaving Jericho, a large crowd followed him. Two blind men were sitting by the roadside. And when they heard that Jesus was going by, they shouted, Lord, son of David, have mercy on us. The crowd rebuked them and told them to be quiet. But they shouted all the louder, Lord, son of David, have mercy on us. Jesus stopped and called them. And he said, what do you want me to do for you? And he asked, Lord, they answered, we want our sight. Jesus had compassion on them and touched their eyes. Immediately, they received their sight and followed him. He had compassion on them, and they were given sight. That's one of the first examples of compassion in the story of Jesus in his earth life. In another, Jesus feeds the 5,000. When Jesus heard what happened, he withdrew by boat privately to a solitary place. Hearing of us, the crowds followed him on foot from the towns. When Jesus landed and saw a large large crowd, he had compassion on them and healed their sick. He had compassion on them and healed their sick. As evening approached, the disciples came to him and said, this is a remote place and it's already getting late. Send the crowds away so they can go to the villages and buy themselves some food. But Jesus replied, no, they don't need to go away. You give them something to eat. We have here only five loaves of bread and two fish, answered the disciples. Mm-hmm. Jesus said, bring them here to me. And he directed the people to sit down on the grass. Taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and he broke the loaves. Then he gave them to the disciples and the disciples gave them to the people. And they all ate and were satisfied. And the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. The number of those who ate was about 5,000. This is the power of exponentialism. Through compassion, Jesus enabled the disciples to tap into a power within themselves. Did Jesus split those loaves or did the disciples do it? Whichever way, it's the power of exponentialism. The 12 took the loaves and they split them. And then the people that had those loaves split those. This is the power that we need to tap into our world right now. This responsibility to transform our world into a planet of love, light, righteousness, and compassion doesn't end with you. You're the beginning. What if you told five people, or and they told five people, and they told ten people, and they told ten people? This is the power of exponentialism that we all need to tap into at this time. Then there's the story of the leper. No one was allowed to touch a leper for hundreds of years before the time of Jesus. But suddenly, a a leper came before him and asked Jesus, are you willing? Can you make me whole? This, This leper knew all about Jesus and that he had the ability to do it. The question was not about whether Jesus could do it. The question was, did Jesus have the compassion 
to heal him. Jesus answered that question by what he did next. He stretched out his hand and he touched him saying, I am willing be cleansed. And immediately the leprosy left him. Mark's account says that Jesus was moved with compassion. It was the compassion of the cosmic Christ that healed the leper, that divided those loaves and fishes, and healed the blind man as well. Now, understand what Jesus was doing when he healed this leper. He risked becoming infected too. If he were us, and he was out at the store, and someone's walking around with coronavirus, we'd all be grabbing for the hand sanitizer or be headed for the door. (laughs) Because interacting with someone with coronavirus is almost illegal in our world. The people that have this virus are now almost to the level of the lepers of the ancient world. People are so freaked out about this, and for very good reason. But Jesus was willing to become ceremonial unclean in addition to risking having leprosy. He already knew he was at such a high frequency of compassion, light, and love that he could resist the leprosy. But what about becoming unclean? Anybody who touched a leper was said to be ritually unclean. What Jesus did next was very strange and very important for us to understand. He said to the man, Go and show yourself to the priest and make an offering for your cleansing, just as Moses commanded, as a testimony to them. Leviticus had said that if somebody is healed from leprosy, leprosy, he needs to tell the priest so the priest can verify the healing. So the leper went to the priest, and the priest knew exactly. Putin's Ukraine invasion, skyrocketing inflation. We pay higher prices while oil and gas companies rake in profits. Conservation leaders in Santa Fe are taking action. Accelerating 100% clean energy production and creating jobs. Tell New Mexico's leaders to fight for us. Oh. Unbelievable. Exactly what this meant. Oh. This healing was <laughs> Jesus's way of announcing to the priest yeah, yeah, that the yeah, Messiah, yeah. the cosmic Christ, had arrived. Um, and it truly began itself. his mission. Okay. He, he came to show us what we can do and how we can use compassion to defeat a terrible beast that one day would rise up on the earth. Mm. That beast has arisen. That beast is here now. It has many powers, many terrible powers, artificial intelligence, 5G, Mm. viruses. It's coming at us right now, and it seeks to put a mark on our forehead or a mark on our hand, a tattoo that says, you've been vaccinated Ah. from coronavirus. It will enable us to be tracked. We can't go back into society. Bill Gates has his way. Mr. Gates, of course, is a number one candidate for that beast of revelation who wants to put that mark on us. Mm -hmm. This is why it's time for us to rise. Some people say, you know, we didn't give our consent to this. But the answer is, actually, we did. Every time we've gone online, every time we've used our phone, every time you've used an email, anytime you've done anything, With this technology, you've given your consent to these people that you want this technology. You've paid for it. You bought it. That's their point of view. So we have to get beyond any kind of blame in this scenario. We have to push back, not with hatred, but rather we have to push back with compassion. We have to overcome that by showing others 
a better way to live. That is our quest and our goal at this time. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and passion and patience. And if someone like Bill Gates needs compassion, right up the root chakra. That's how we send him compassion. Because he's got obviously a lot of work to do. And I think Jesus would agree with us that what is being done to us right now is criminal on a cosmic scale. And it requires compassion on a cosmic scale. We must meet the beast. And the thing is, the book of Revelation, as I, as I will explain in the Risen, tells us the beast loses. Yeah. The 144,000 followers of Christ with the glory in their foreheads defeat that beast. And that is our quest. Dear children, let us not love with only words, but let's love with actions and in truth. Let's put the spirit of the word compassion into our doing, because compassion isn't concerned with our material well-being and material things. It's concerned with our spirit and alleviating the suffering of others. So let's be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as Christ God forgave us. The icon makers believe that we can synchronize with the cosmic Christ through the image because emanating from his heart and transmitted through his eyes is an ambient magnetic field of love, a field of compassion. Through the image, the Christ energy can bypass our conscious mind and literally influence us at the quantum level in a non-local way. In the unified field, the Christ field, the field of energy and information which connects all things physical and governs all the laws of the universe, the field where there is no separation between me, you, and Christ, you are connected to everything and everyone. We're quantumly entangled with the cosmic Christ. Thus, the more connected you are to the field, through the image, which acts like a laser to focus the power of your soul, and your actions, then we can experience the more non-local effects through the cosmic Christ. This is our quest. This is our goal. And this is what we are doing at this moment by connecting through Christ through these images. Compassion wires the brain. Compassion, according to medical science, causes the left brain, excuse me, the left side of the brain's prefrontal cortex region just above the eyes. Compassion is good for the heart. It's Compassion is about warm emotional contact. Mm-hmm. When we connect with others in a deep emotional way, we produce the, the hormone oxytocin. Mm-hmm. One of the key roles of this hormone is in the maintenance of the cardiovascular health. It dilates the arteries and reduces blood pressure. It also helps clear out potentially disease-causing agents. Compassion slows aging. Research shows a strong connection between compassion and the vagal tone, which is the term that describes the health and fitness of the vagus nerve, much as the muscle tone describes the muscles. The vagus nerve controls the body's inflammatory response, known as the inflammatory reflex. And as we increase vagal tone through compassion, we improve the body's ability to reduce inflammation. 
Compassion improves relationships. Research shows that compassion fosters emotional connections between two people. A structured practice of compassion meditation improves the quality of personal and professional relationships. It motivates kindness. Compassion quickly evolves into kindness, where we are moved to do something to ease another person's suffering. We not only share the pain, but we want the person, the other person's suffering eased mm. and erased. And ultimately, compassion fuels our hot wheels. In the image of the cosmic Christ, he has the activated crown, the activated healing hands, the activated light body, and the activated wheels of the cosmic Christ called the Ophanum of the Merkaba throne. I want to turn now to the crucifixion, excuse me, the resurrection morning on Easter morning. We're going to do that by turning to this incredible painting, The Morning of the Resurrection by Edward Burns Jones. The scene depicted is Mary Magdalene's visit to the empty tomb, where she encounters the resurrected Christ accompanied by angels. She beholded two angels, says the book of John, two angels in white sitting, one at the head and one at the feet where the body of Jesus had lain. As Matthew describes it, it was laid on the Sabbath day, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and Mary Magdalene had come to the tomb, and an angel of the Lord, one of the risen ones, descended from heaven and came and rolled away the stone and sat upon it. His appearance was as lightning, and his raiment was white as snow, and for fear of him, the watchers did quake and became as dead men. These are the Roman soldiers. And the angel answered and said unto the woman, Mary Magdalene, Fear not ye, for I know ye seek Jesus, who hath been crucified. He is not here, for he is risen, even as he said, Come see the place where the Lord lay. This moment is the fulfillment of the Essene plan involving the watcher angels and the risen and the Essenes to infuse humanity with a cosmic impulse of energy that reverberates to this day. In fact, we are on the receiving edge of that infusion at this very moment. As Matthew describes, his appearance was as lightning and his raiment white as snow. That's describing both the angel who rolled away the stone and the resurrected Jesus, who now has transfigured into his light body or his resurrection body. And this is the key teaching of all the Ascension Masters, is that Christ came to demonstrate how we can rise into the Ascended Realms. In these images, especially here in Fra Angelico's Resurrection from the Tomb, we see the resurrected Christ rising from the tomb and also rising upon the Shroud of Turin. And I want to talk about the Shroud uh, as we continue here. Here's another example from Fra Angelico, where we see a collection of tools in front of Jesus. We see Mary Magdalene and the Mother Mary, Joseph, Nicodemus, and others are carrying Christ upon this linen shroud that we now call the Shroud of Turin. In this image, we see that Christ is already illuminated. He's golden. He's radiating light. He's a luminous being. But in between his resurrection, excuse me, in between being laid in the tomb and his resurrection, Jesus spent time in limbo, in the other world, in the realm where the righteous of all the Old Testament times and the pre-flood times were waiting 
for his arrival. And in Christian art, we see him descending into the underworld as this illuminated being, illuminated being carrying his rod of resurrection, preparing to free all of those who were waiting for his arrival. In these scenes, we see that he has got demons that are all around that he will duke it out with, that he's overcome. These are the, the beasts of the ancient world. In this example here from the Korah Church in Istanbul, we see Jesus descending into limbo through a radiant portal or gateway. He wears his garment of luminous light, indicating he's already a light being, and he's gone into this otherworldly realm in order to retrieve the righteous from the pre-flood times. And then he rises on Easter morning. He appears to Mary Magdalene in the garden, wearing his luminous garment of light. And he tells her, do not touch me. Do not touch me, indicating that he's no longer in his physical flesh and blood body. He is now in his risen body. He is now in his light body. He's now in his glory body, a holographic type of body that is luminous, radiant, but still humanoid. It's a manifestation of his flesh and blood body. It's a return to his original form. And this is why in Christian art, in these nolo me tangere scenes or do not touch me scenes where Magdalene is seeing the risen Christ for the first time, we see that his cloak or his garment is covered with stars. It's because he is now in his ascended form. He's in his star body, his radiant body, his glory body, his light body. He has completed his earthly transformation. And he always in these scenes carries his resurrection stick. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Those who believe in me, even though they die, will live. Both medieval and Renaissance art began to depict the resurrected Christ by using the flag of St. George, which is therefore his symbol of resurrection. In the 15th and 16th century in Florence, Italy, we see these incredible images of Jesus rising from the tomb as a star being as a cosmic traveler preparing to return to his original form. So he phased in, in from his light body form, took on flesh and blood form, and then in his resurrection, phased back out, and now wears his star cloak or resurrection body in this artwork. The- okay, we got to do the next part after we do what we're going to be doing in this part of our time. We're going to take a little uh, break here, and then we'll be back with our brother Richard and a look at the stars. And then um, our other uh, numerologist, astrologist, uh, Tanya Gabrielle, and our astrologer, Kay Pacha, will also join in the choir here. <laughs> Yet for now, thank you, everyone. Thank you, Henry, William Henry and uh, Greg Braden. We're getting a, a tutelage and a half here today. Mm. So, Satnam for now. We'll see you in a very short while, maybe about 10 minutes or so. Okay. Namaste. Has the talking stick to you, Richard? Hello. <laughs> Are you there, Richard? Hello?
Uh-oh. Uh-oh. Uh, dog. I think you gotta call Richard back. He got, I think, I'm quite sure he got disconnected there. Um, call dog Rama. I don't know if he can hear you. He's, Hello. Just call him. We'll be patient, everyone. Um. Well, while we're with, okay, Rama's calling. Go in the other space. While Rama's calling, I'll just say something really quick about the new moon on May 30th. The new moon in Gemini will be making an aspect. Hey, hey, hey. Richard. Hey, it's a cosmic save. What happened? Um, Richard? Yes? Well, what? You got this. Can you hear me now? Yeah, we didn't hear anything until just now. Yeah, I know. Oh, okay. All right, well, I pass this talking stick to you. Happy New Moon in Gemini coming up. I'm sure you're going to talk about that. No, actually, the first thing I want to know is how long is Kaipacha and how long is Tanya? Kaipacha is 28 minutes and Tanya is 16 minutes. Yeah. That's 44, so that gives me, uh, okay, all right, good. i got 15 minutes to work with here. Yeah. Okay. The first item on my mind, or in my mind, is um, I took a nap, and when I turned, I had to take a nap. When I, when I turned uh, BBS on, you were talking about the great invocation. That's right. Commander. All right. Yes. Now, I've got a book in my lap printed in 1949 with the great invocation in it. What's the name of that book? The Destiny of Nations. Oh, good. Good job. Wow. All right. But before that, I pulled another book out called, uh, and this one was printed in 19, Glamour, A World Problem. I'll talk about glamour later. But in The Great Invocation, um, you also mentioned, let me just go through here. Okay. Um from the first stanza, let light stream forth into the minds of men, let light send on earth. All right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's the purpose of the Lord of the world, mm-hmm. whose representative is Sanat Kamara. Right. right. The Lord of the world is like the the soul overshadowing Sanat Kumara. All right, so he's a he's a an advanced entity. All right, 
second stanza, from the point of love within the heart of God, all right, may Christ return to earth. When Christ left the dense physical world, he went first to the kingdom of God, which is the world of souls. Third stanza, from the center where the will of God is known, let purpose guide the little wills of men, the purpose which the masters know and serve. The, the kingdom of God, the will of souls, where the masters hang out, for lack of a better phrase. All right. Mm-hmm. They're led by Christ. He's the center where the will of God is known. He's working from the point of love within the heart of God. All right? Mm-hmm. So, all right, he's the master of the second ray enlightenment, which is called love and wisdom. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, within that kingdom of God, you've got seven groups of souls on seven different rays. These are energy rays, right? Everything's energy. Mm-hmm. So, the masters and their organization, I've got a chart in another one of these books here. All right. They're, they're working to bring light down to the earth plane. Light and love. That's the will. All right. Now, the hu- part of humanity is the final phrase. From the center which we call the race of men, let the plan of love and light work out. That plan is brought to us from the world of souls, a.k.a. the kingdom of God. Mm-hmm. All right. So that's where that invocation comes from. And if if memory serves me, that was given to humanity while WW2 was still going on. Yeah. yeah. And the fourth verse, right, seal the doors where evil dwells. Or the fifth, the fifth standard. That one, yeah. So that's the last line. And may it seal the door where evil dwells. All right. So our tools are love and light. And power. And active intelligence. These okay. are the first three in major energy groups. The the will of God, will and power of God, which is the Lord of the earth, and Sanat Kamara as his spokesperson, 
All right. The love is the second and major, major tool against the dark lodge. And that's what we're talking about. Yeah. Now, where where the dark lodge dwells is uh, in many places. It's it's down here with us, but it's also on the on the astral plane. Yes. yes. And the astral plane is a very tricky tricky uh, place. <laughs> and its and its its nature is fluidy, fluidy and magnetic. So anyway, all right, it's five after. Uh, let's go to Kaipacha. Okay. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. First of all, I need to remind you that Mercury is ten degrees behind the sun and still retrograde. Yeah. And the new moon is coming up in about 12 or 15 hours. But it's at Um, at 21. It's already conjunct Mercury. And so the new moon energies, they're on. They're on. I have to to ask you something, Richard, that it says the new moon is at 7.30 a.m. Eastern Daylight Time on Monday. Monday. Yeah. No, Sunday Sunday morning. No, Monday morning. Monday morning. Okay. Yeah. Just one. Oh, wait a minute. I gotta go twenty one Yeah. All right. Yeah. Whatever they say. It's operational. That's what matters. Yeah. It's operational okay. three days before and three days after. So we're in the we're already in we're the in the zone. Yep. All right. Okay, Venus is in the first degree of Taurus. Ooh. Yeah. It's in a transition stage, you know. Mm-hmm. It's, yeah, it's its nature was uh, influenced by Aries for a while, and now we're going to bring it down to Earth. And, yeah, uh, that's yeah. good. Grounding, grounding is a good thing to practice this week. Yeah, that bull with the rose in its mouth, that bull. Let's do that bull. The, the, yeah. <laughs> the mama bull. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. All right. Now, for you uh, challenging types, watch out for four degrees wherever it shows in your chart because Mars is conjunct Jupiter. Mm-hmm. Ongoing, exact. Mars. I think Hypatia mentioned uh, this uh, week or this week of uh, Mars conjunct Jupiter last week. But anyway, Mars is at uh, three degrees two minutes, and uh, Jupiter's at three degrees sixteen minutes. So watch out for that. Neptune's still at twenty six Pisces. Saturn at 26 Aquarius and Pluto at 29 Capricorn retrograde. Pluto is trying Mercury retrograde and the moon. And it was exactly trying the sun a couple of days ago, a week ago. So now 
that influence is still going on, and it's sextile. Sextile to uh, Mars conjunct Jupiter. Jupiter, Jupiter. All right, that's your layout. Chiron, 16 Aries, doesn't move very fast like those other guys. All right, now let's go play Pacha. Okay. Okay, Commander. Here we go. in, grounding herself down. She's exalted in Taurus. Look at that rainbow, man. See if I can get the whole thing in one. No. Anyway, where was I? I get sidetracked with Mother Nature. Um, yeah, Taurus, Mother Nature, for sure. By Sunday, she goes into Gemini and closes, finishes the lunar cycle. Okay, that began with the eclipse a month ago. So we're going to feel a big energy shift going on. When she goes into Gemini, we have a new moon in Gemini. Mars and Aries, Venus and Taurus. Oh, yeah, baby. Big changes, big shift in energy. Um, in the meantime, Mercury is trying Pluto today. Uh, and not long, you know, Mars jumps into Aries, and before you know it, Conjuncts Jupiter. We're going to have a Mars-Jupiter conjunction in Aries-Jupiter. God of lightning bolts of thunder. <laughs> Joined together with the warrior. Oh, yeah, baby. A number of songs come to mind. You may think of a few yourself to be singing this week. I'm going to try to find a spot where you can hear me. And uh, look at the camera. 
tell you more about this. Uh, I mean, the other thing we have to understand, too, is that uh, Venus, in the last final degrees of Aries, is squaring Pluto on Friday. So, yeah, this mantra is going to bring it all together. Let me talk about that. Okay. Now, I don't know if this is going to work, man. <laughs> I, this is probably like the most precarious rock outcropping I've ever tried to sit on. <laughs> oh, my God. And, uh, yeah. And the, the spray from the falls is coming. I hope it lasts. If it gets a sprinkle of water on the camera, I'm going to be a big blur. But it's an awesome shot, isn't it? How about that background? <laughs> Mother Nature. The power of Mother Nature. And, of course, you know, the, the actions of man and women of humanity. Messing with Mother Nature, <laughs> harnessing her power for their electricity and other uses and resources. North Node in Taurus. What is it that I want to talk about today? Well, like I said, you can feel this big shift of energy. And I know I have definitely felt it. This Mars and Pisces, I hate to say it, I mean, I love Pisces and I love Mars, but I could not wait for Mars to get out of Pisces. <laughs> I mean, yes, it's a spiritual warrior, and it's really great for, you know, meditating and focusing on Samadhi and Nirvana and taking off, you know, into spiritual realms and everything, but man... It's not, Pisces is not of this world. Neptune is not of this world. And so the material world is like, eh, who cares? Let's go into multidimensional reality. Screw that third dimension. <laughs> who cares what you want? Uh, you know, Pisces is no ego. And Mars is, uh, as an ego, I want, you know, some pleasure and some money and some structure and some security and some order and blah, 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 blah. And you put those, put Mars and Pisces together, and it's just kind of like, I mean, it's great for playing guitar, <laughs> making music, focusing. Yeah. That's why I picked out Jimi Hendrix for today, all along the Watchtower. I know Bob Dylan wrote it, but I just like Jimi Hendrix's uh, version of it, you know, a little better, because I like his guitar a lot better than Bobby's. Anyway. Yeah, so this shift in energy, this is this is very important. We had that total lunar eclipse in Scorpio, death, letting go of the past, cord cutting, separating from what no longer serves us, relationships, money, houses, jobs, reputations, whatever. Stepping into Taurus feeling our oats, feeling the bull. And now Venus is going to be joining, coming home to her own sign. We're going to have a moon-Venus conjunction, you know, coming on up. Right, you know, I think it is in Taurus. 
but not it's like right on the edge. Super beautiful and super powerful. Oh god, here comes a big spray, man. Look at that. The whole camera's getting soaked. What do you think about that? I don't know. <laughs> Try to wipe off the camera and keep that dry a little bit. Uh, the rest of the phones get soaked. I don't know. I just gotta hope the wind changes direction, you know. Should I keep going or what's this? Hit the wrong button. Mercury retrograde, man. Technical problems with the Pele report. <laughs> I like I care, man. I'll just keep talking. You know, I mean, the astrology is important, more important than my face in the background. You can listen to this on Spotify or something, you know. The important thing is to get the message out, get the message through. And that message is one of empowerment. That message is one of the masculine. We all have a Mars. You know, I'm doing relationship workshops and working with the masculine and feminine, the yin and the yang, the creative, assertive, the receptive, the attractive. Mars and Venus coming to their home signs. This is sexy. This is juicy. This is powerful. This is intense. Yeah, intensely gorgeous. But it requires, it requires each of us stepping into the truth of our nature, the truth of ourself, and being honest, authentic, open. Who am I? What am I attracted to? How far will I go outside of my authenticity to play the game, the Scorpio game? Of ownership, possessiveness, power over others, whatever, yeah, seduction, you know, as opposed to like really being just who I am. And Mars and Aries is very much about I am who I am and that's that. And take me or leave me. I am not here to please you. I'm not here to bend over. I'm not here to, no, 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 no. I am on my path. I'm in my truth. I'm doing my thing. The masculine is the sword quality. Let's really, you know, focus on. I'll see if I can get a thumbnail of a sword, you know. And, and oh yeah, think of that wind just blew over the. Authentic <laughs> uh, here. Uh, yeah, the sword. What is the, the Excalibur? You know how it was uh, put into the rock, the rock of Taurus, right? And, you know, it had to be only one, you know, and it defined who pulled out Excalibur. Whoever could pull that sword out of the stone, they were the future king, right? Ah, yeah. The sword cuts the machete through the jungle of chaos, the masculine brings order. Yeah? The masculine penetrates into the wilderness, into the dark, into the underworld, and it brings the sort of light. It brings the sort of order, structure, clarity, and purpose. This is the masculine. We all have a masculine. And then we have the feminine. 
The feminine is everything else. The feminine is the earth, the water, okay, you know, the, the love, the juice, the joy, the connection, the emotion, the fertility, you know, it's, it's like, you know, the, the, it's like, well, yeah, the sperm and the egg, just think of it, you know, it's like the sword, boom, penetrates and breaks open and reveals the beauty, the totality, the flower, the masculine, you know, opens the feminine to her own amazing awesomeness and wonder and magnificence. And the feminine receives, the, the feminine allows, you know, so that it takes a lot of trust. And the feminine has to have some power. She's got to have some Mars. She's got to have some strength in order to have the courage to let it happen, to let it be, to, to open to fertility, to fruition, to pollination. You know, so it, you know, this is a beautiful time right now, especially here in the Northern Hemisphere. You know, it's not exactly springtime, but it's a little past springtime, but the flowers are blooming. The birds are singing. I mean, this is really an amazing, gorgeous time of nature. Yeah? And us coming into our bodies, ourselves, our truths. I really think things are going to turn around. I think we've been through this kind of initiation of loss, letting go. The seed must die, that it is born again. And with this new moon, and don't forget, you know, I mean, I do this Paley report once a week, okay? This new moon is not until next Monday. So you may be hearing these words and not feeling it, but it's coming around the corner. That's what's so cool about astrology. It shows us what's coming ahead of time. Because you can see the cycles unfolding. So we are still in a third quarter phase. The moon is moving into a balsamic. You know, she's waning, 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 waning. You know what I mean? So, you know, she's still in that close that last month, that eclipse cycle. And then, <laughs> you know, by the time she comes around to Gemini, nine degrees, three minutes. Of course, I'm going to read you the Sabian symbol for the 10th degree of Gemini. It goes right with what we're talking about today, right with the mantra, right with Mars moving into Aries, Venus moving into Taurus. Oh yeah. It's about courage. The courage to own our masculine and our feminine. To do the inner sacred marriage work within ourselves so that we're not projecting you know, oh you be my you be my Venus, you be the feminine. You know, I'm going to be tough and hard and macho and da-da-da-da, you know. Or, you know, or you be the Mars. You be the angry, self-centered egotist. And I'll, I'll just be beautiful Venus, you know, whatever. I mean, this is like, we're coming out. Come out of the game. You know, Pisces, Mars, Neptune, Jupiter was there. 
It's movies. <laughs> I mean, Johnny Depp and Amber Heard, man. This is so classic. And then what's happening? Their, their case is ending. It's going to be resolved. It's going to be over. You know, thank God, whatever, you know. Let that fill the airwaves with something else. But it has been, I think, a major learning for the collective, uh, particularly the consensus, you know, the people that kind of watch that kind of stuff. Which, don't forget, with evolutionary astrology, three-quarters of the world's population is in the consensus stage where they're learning from external authority figures that they look up to. And, yeah, I mean, it's... Everybody's at their different stage. But what's happening for all of us is so super freaking cool, babe. Here we are. Where are we? What did I say? Gemini 10? Gemini 10 degrees is an airplane doing a nosedive. <laughs> yeah. An airplane performing a nosedive. Yeah. I love this. A superior ability to challenge nature and play with danger through the controlled use of mental powers. Man is able to challenge the most basic force in nature: gravitation. There's some gravitation for you. He enjoys playing with it as a lion with his violent animals. But what he challenges is within himself as well as outside. Gravitation is the universal binding force of the material world. By challenging it, man prepares himself to pierce like a sword beyond the physical and to reach higher realms of existence. He may lose the struggle, but that prospect makes the effort more exciting. He might gain immortality. This symbol has a strong (laughs) sense of finality. No possibility of half measures exist. Man is committed irrevocably to success or failure, at least as a conscious and self-reliant mind. The alternatives are clear-cut. One may describe it as mind versus matter, or as man's will against the fate that gravitation so aptly symbolizes. Whoa. Whoa. How about that one? It takes mindfulness, presence, the new moon in Gemini. Gemini is be here now. And use all of your faculties. The rules, the hands, the limbs, the fingers, arts and crafts as well as communication, social media, reading, studying, going to workshops. (laughs) Anyway. And 
with that presence, tremendous feats can be achieved. I want to get. I was going to get a picture of an airplane doing a nosedive, right? This is confronting death, and this is what the masculine does. Masculine faces death and danger, and 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 this masculine energy, Aries energy, Mars energy, wants to go into the void, face death, right? The feminine. Holds back, wants to soften. The Martian hardens and emerges. You know, like except this image of like a, a crystal shooting, raising up out of the ground, a phallic. Yes, just come. Like the monolith in uh, 2001: A Space Odyssey. <laughs> it's so bad. Let's just read the freaking. Uh, I don't have to read it. I know it. I think, right? I can be a victim, overwhelmed, and wanting out, or I can summon my warrior and triumph over doubt. It's a choice. And let's not forget, Saturn is square the moon's nodes. Saturn says it's time to make decisions. It's time to make choices. It's time to make contracts and commitments and break old contracts and old commitments. It's time to say goodbye to old friends and welcome hello to new friends. This is a year of decision. Who are you? Why are you here? And are you doing that? This is a kick in the butt to get ourselves on track, to get ourselves on course. And we need to decide, are we going to do that nosedive? <laughs> Have we got the courage? Are we going to face the force of gravity? That wants to pull us down into depression, despair, martyrdom, whatever. Or are we going to summon the power within us, the life force working, moving through us to blast off and to come out of that dive and go back up Conquer gravity and do it all again, just for the fun of it. <laughs> it requires a, a big amount of non-attachment, right? It's almost like that—that that letting go of, you know, what we had to do with the eclipse. You know, that 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 letting go. Uh, you know, and, and and this Mars through Pisces, that you know, that that letting go was kind of like almost you know like necessary for us to surrender, clean off the plate, you know, erase the chalkboard, you know, open the door, be ready for the new, close the curtain on the past, and this is this you know this is that courage that says. 
I am a ray of light, I am a beam of light, I will not be stopped, I am the life force, the life force is working through me, coming through me, don't forget, Venus is coming up to Chiron, Jupiter's coming up to Chiron, uh, uh, Venus passed it, I'm sorry, Mars is coming up to Chiron, this Chiron is in Aries, we are all collectively healing the wounded warrior. And I don't, I hate to say it, but we may see a lot of, you know, love and war, Venus and Mars. Yep. You know, guns, violence, the wounded warrior no, striking Stop. back no. pathetically, you know, trying to make a stand, you know, uh, impotently, you know, like the, the gunman slaying the kids or something. That's such a wounded, you know, overcompensation of, I feel so powerless and so helpless and so weak and so useless. I I have to, like, you know, overcompensate, you know, and go out with a bang and a blast and, you know, make people see me and think that I'm powerful when, in fact, I know I'm not. <laughs> so we will get a lot of... Yeah, I think I think he's right there. Getting a lot of you know power plays, people trying to force, trying to push, trying to dominate, trying to take over, take our money, take our time, take it, and and you know part of this is like you know what that masculine puts up a boundary, it says no, it draws the line in the sand. You're not taking me for granted. You're not using me. Back off. <laughs> and not be afraid of losing the relationship, of losing the deal, of losing the money, you know, of losing the followers or whatever you're attached to. The sword cuts. It's not afraid. The scalpel does surgery. It goes in all the way. Make you go all the way, baby. <laughs> I can be a victim, overwhelmed and wanting out. Or I can call my warrior, summon my warrior, and triumph over doubt. May you triumph. Over doubt. <laughs> Namaste. Aloha. So much fun. It's the game of life. Let's play it. Namaste.
Good. Pastor talking to you. Yes, Tata. Thank you, Rama. Yes, thank you. Good evening, audience, again. This is Richard. Yes. Yeah. Let's see here. Uh, I've got several comments. I'll choose this one. This topic, I believe, is showing up again. The topic of the Dark Lodge and their current tentacles all around the planet. Yeah. Yeah. But the energy conditions are favorable to engage in a new uh, revitalized effort to shut the Dark Lodge down and kick them off the damn planet. I mean, the, the, the godly planet. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's going to be done in a... Uh, with uh, galactic intervention, they're going to be taken in starships to Dracos. Well, and here's here's a here's a little here's a little tidbit I picked up by by uh, studying with the Master DK. Yeah. He when he when he when he was in in his two books, Discipleship and the New Age. Mm-hmm. He explains and, and demonstrates his technique for creating a group, an incarnated group of his disciples, and working with them to unify themselves as a greater and more potent source of energy to promote the plans of the hierarchy, all right? The hierarchy, the masters, and the world of souls, all right? As as time went on, he, he says... We are the, well, this is one of your favorite phrases, we are the one we've been waiting for. We, many of us, yeah, after WW2, you know, after the A-bomb went off, the hierarchy sent disciples back into incarnation to work with the masses of humanity. So we are the ones we've been waiting for. We are the advanced humans, which only means we have more knowledge at this point, right? We got, we, we know how it works now. From the kingdom of souls, we incarnate, all right? 
And we have this personality aspect, which is tied to the body and tied to the soul. Body is operated by the life principle, and consciousness is operated by the soul principle, this, this principle of consciousness, okay? So kingdom of souls, they're group conscious. They know, they know everything that all their other soul members know. So we got that going for us, see? So now, you know, now it's, now it's time, see? Because it, it, it's interesting, he says, he says, common opening sentences, uh, uh, at the turn of the century, you know, in about 150 years, what I'm writing here will make sense to many more than make sense to those of you now. And he says, what I'm writing, you're not going to understand. Mm-hmm. But he's writing, he's writing for humanity in 1950, for example. Yes. But he's also writing for humanity at the end of the century. 50 years in the future. Right. Chiron's cycle is about 50 years. And it's in Aries. So this is a new this is a a new effort. Call it a new beginning if you want. Call it a reengagement of the for a long time battle with the forces of selfishness, control, and separation. Those are the three great heresies. Separation, control, and selfishness. So keep that in mind, fellow warriors, as we go forward. Back to you. Okay, here we go with Tanya. Hello there, it's Tanya Gabrielle, Wealth Astronomologist. Welcome to Star Codes. This is the forecast where we look at an astronomy event coming up in the stars and numbers. And in this case, it's the Gemini New Moon on May 30th, 12.30 p.m. Universal Time. That's London. And that's 7.30 a.m. Eastern Time, New York. And 4.30 a.m. Pacific Time, L.A. Now, this Gemini New Moon is super exciting. It's very positive, has wonderful aspects. And it follows a very intense, empowering, cleansing, purging, total solar or total lunar full moon eclipse in Scorpio from May 15th and 16th. So it is very welcome. Gemini always is a more sprightly, fun energy. And this lunation is incredible because it creates a sextile to Jupiter, sextile to Mars, and a sextile to Chiron, all in Aries. 
And it signifies wonderful new beginnings, being a new moon and this incredible stellium in Aries creating this triple sextile, Aries being the first sign. And so there's this wonderful energy of healing and starting fresh. And the ruler of Gemini, which is the planet Mercury, creates a magnificent sextile to Neptune and a square to Saturn, which means you're taking responsibility for your spiritual life. You have a strong dedication to sharing a message that is both spiritual and practical. So it's not all in la-la land. It is literally the combination of your heart and mind being grounded and being connected to the divine all at once. So it's really about unity consciousness here. And of course, we always want to look at the ruler of any lunation, in this case, the new moon in Gemini, being ruled by Mercury, because it adds extra insight into the impact of the sign that the moon and the sun are in. In this case, they're both in Gemini. Now, Gemini is a sign of motion, activity. It is a fun sign of humor. It obviously governs communication and your skills and how you communicate. It governs facts and information, curiosity, writing and speaking, effective listening, of course, teaching as well. It governs siblings, short distance travel, understanding different viewpoints, awareness of options in your life. And a lot of variety and ability to think quickly and take all angles of a conversation into consideration. So that means really enjoying the moment and having a lot of ingenuity at the same time. Now, Gemini also governs relationships that are based on proximity. So closer to you, meaning siblings or neighbors, schoolmates, roommates, colleagues, Anybody who plays a role in your life consistently in your immediate environment. And the sun and moon in this new moon are at nine degrees. Nine is an emotional number. It's in the triad of three, six, nine in numerology, which is the triad of love and creativity. And so there is a sense of letting go and feeling with the number nine. Nine is the, the last single digit. So it does govern endings but as well as unconditional love and compassion. So the sun and moon are at nine degrees in Gemini, creating a sextile to Mars, a very passionate planet. And remember that incredible connection to the three planets in Aries, which is the sign that Mars rules. Those three planets, again, are Chiron, Mars, and Jupiter. So that sextile to Mars and Jupiter especially is just so exciting. So that means even though you may find yourself feeling dejected in some way or despondent, this will really help you see there's a light at the end of the tunnel and that you just need to create that Opening so you can see the light to find it, to actively look for it and to not focus on what's not working, but to focus on 
what you can do to make it work. So focusing on the solution, right? Mercury is sextile Neptune and square Saturn, as I mentioned, and trying to Pluto as well. So with the ruler of Gemini making all those connections and all these contacts, there are going to be more contacts in your life. You're going to be making more connections. Your mind will also be very active. So it happens on May 30th, 2022. That date adds up to 14. 14 reduces to 5. 14 is the media number. Gemini and Mercury are connected to media by virtue of Mercury governing the communication field. So there is a sense of a lot of messaging, being able to share your message. Now, one thing I need to bring up at this point is that during this Gemini new moon, Mercury is actually in retrograde, Mercury, the ruler of Gemini. So it gives you a great perspective on the internal issues that may be preventing you from sharing a message, from being the messenger. Or it can also open up the internal so that your message is more profound, more deep, more truly from you, as opposed to regurgitating data and info that you gleaned from external sources. So there is a real sense here of having great emotional focus and being more conscious due to the retrograde because you're turning within. Any retrograde takes you within. So your instinct is strong. Remember the moon is sextile Mars. You really are fired up. You're enthusiastic. I mean, Mars and Aries sextile any ruler of any lunation really creates new beginnings, energy, and a sense of independence and just celebrating your small and big successes so that you feel inspired to move forward. And, of course, the sun is also sextiling Mars, being next to the moon, and that energizes you and it stimulates you to act and you just sense that you're creatively on fire. And so you really trust what's coming through. You move forward quickly. You don't doubt it. And you can create tremendous momentum this way. The sun and moon, of course, has sextile Jupiter in Aries as well. And that is just a feel good. I feel positive. I feel like I can navigate anything. I feel recognized. I feel open to miracles. And I feel open to recognize that healing comes through joy, Jupiter is the planet of joy. Healing comes through sensing that joy is the most healing and cleansing and immediately accessible way for you to leave pain behind. So if you laugh at it, if you have humor, if you smile through it, if you, if you literally just activate a smile, even if you may not feel the smile, just smiling itself changes your physiology. So joy is the great healer. And remember that Chiron is the third planet that the sun and moon create a sextile to. Chiron is also in Aries and Chiron is the great healer. During this Gemini new moon, Mercury is actually in Taurus now. It started its retrograde in Gemini on May 10th and now has retrograded into Taurus. So that gives it more stability, 
more patience in terms of communication. So you don't fall into these patterns of judgment and you instead use that Mercury trying Pluto energy to ask, how can I approach this in a new way? And how can I change my approach to a conversation, transform it, be open and flexible, purge whatever comes up for me and really connect to this person in a genuine way. So there'll be a lot of opportunities during this new moon to recalibrate how you do things and how you think about things. So this Gemini new moon is basically activating new beginnings in so many beautiful ways. There are a lot of blessings that come from the other planets, Mars and Jupiter coming together with this incredible sextile. This is really creating four connections between the sun and moon, Jupiter and Mars. And it brings a lot of gifts. It really helps you to tune into the ability to create joy and blessings in your life at will, which Mars, of course, loves to do, anything that is immediate. (laughs) Now, because Mercury, the ruler of Gemini, is in retrograde, you do want to take extra time to rest in general at this time, not to go on overdrive in terms of the speed limit, meaning not to speed things up to the point where it's too fast and you lose control, so that's the Mars energy, but to just be patient especially in how you communicate with others, because then you can initiate a wonderful natural flow of moving forward, as opposed to a willful impatient, you know, which is not being in the flow anymore, but this propulsive energy that then in a sense separates you from your environment and your connection to the divine and the people around you. So lighten up, focus on what delights you, allow yourself to really embrace that lighter energy that Gemini brings. The twins, in a way, are bouncing off ideas, they're playful, they have each other, they are excited to share anything that comes up. And so this energy at nine degrees Gemini, which is so compassionate with that degree number, is allowing you to really have some enjoyment in your life, especially after this intense eclipse cycle that we just navigated through. This is a welcome break of light, delight, enlightenment, the lightness of being, just being in a place of stripping away mental anguish and mind games and anxiety and simplifying your life to embrace only what's essential. And the most essential part of life is when you smile at the world, when you smile at anyone, they light up. When someone smiles at you, it washes away everything, all the past and you know, the anxious moments because you are pulled into the present moment. And this is really the key to Gemini's humor is to allow that joy to flow through. Remember, Jupiter is creating this magnificent sextile 
to the new moon, Jupiter, the bringer of expansion and joy. So there's so much good news here to take heart in and to partake in and embrace in you to allow it to flower, to allow it to unfold, to not impede it with whatever negative stuff you may be focusing on. Allow that all to resolve itself. You don't need to partake in that. Your responsibility is to you. And Gemini reminds you that that is a request to lighten up and to partake in what really delights you. So have a beautiful Gemini new moon. Have a beautiful week. And remember, you have a star code as well. And if you want to discover yours, go to starcodeclass.com for a free masterclass on your birthday, birth certificate name, your astrology birth chart. It includes a free handout. It's magnificent in discovering you at soul level and infusing joy and gratitude. Again, it's free and you can enjoy that 90-minute masterclass at starcodeclass.com. Have a beautiful week and I'll see you in next week's Starcodes podcast. Lots of love.
if you're if you're a fan or a student of the New Testament, I think you would really appreciate uh, the Master DK's uh, expo- mm-hmm. explanation of what he demonstrated uh, during those uh, three years hanging around Jerusalem. Mm-hmm. He, he approaches it in in terms of. initiations or walking through a door or is you know the ascension process of of the the man Jesus okay so during this time and I don't recall the details here but he made his he made his connection with his soul that was his first accomplishment we might say And when he did that, he became, you know, uh, permanently full-time a soul walking on the planet. And then he had, a, he had another event, all right, where he had understood his part as, the director of the kingdom of souls. Mm-hmm. Which position he, he still holds on the second ray of love wisdom. Yes. And then the third demonstration was when he was able to work the energies to make full contact with his father. This is the spiritual triad. And that's further up on the cosmic physical plane, where, where everything is still the cosmic physical plane. So these are, this is the working out of how Consciousness and light work with matter. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's that's what he demonstrated. So now he's, you know, he's he's still there managing uh, the kingdom of souls, or the kingdom of heaven, or the kingdom of God, whichever phrase suits your fancy. See you in a few minutes on the other line. Okay, Richard Rama, what's the number? Thank you, Richard. Um, 720-716-7301. And the pin code is 353-863-POUND. Okay, everybody, let's give it again. Give it, give it a chance, everybody. Come and join us here. 720-716-7301. Zero one, and then the pin code is three five three eight six three pound, and so we'll see you there, uh, and we'll be there together for an hour, and then we'll be right back here at BBS Radio at the top of the next hour. All right, everyone. So Satnam for now, and 
See you on the conference. Namaste. Wow. What's our friend's name again, Rama? Uh, Reverend Professor Paul. And then there's a long last name. Yeah. <laughs> and he's got something like eight albums and a hundred songs. Yeah. And he was our guest on Thursday. Caroline Oceana Ryan introduced him to all of us on the night at the round tables on Thursday. He's got an exceptional voice. I'll have to say it that way. Wow. Okay, are we ready to finish our William Henry dissertation on life, the universe, and everything? Yeah, here <laughs> we go. Here we go, everyone. Let's continue this. This example here from Florence, we see he's literally got a cloak covered with six-pointed stars, the same as the cloak of light of the angelic beings, it's the risen beings. That cloak of light symbolizes the Shroud of Turin which is the burial shroud of Christ. The shroud is a herringbone linen fabric measuring about 4.1 by 1.1 meters or about 14 feet by 3 feet. It contains the double image of a man. Both the textile fiber that's used, the linen and the processing method, and its measures corresponding precisely to the 8 by 2 Syrian cubits tell of a Middle Eastern origin of a Jewish environment in a funeral rituals of a specific time, the first century A.D. Yesterday, April 11th, 2020, the Catholic Church did something quite remarkable. The Archbishop of Turin allowed the Shroud of Turin to be put on display. I, along with millions of other people, tuned in to watch this display and was somewhat surprised that they chose this specific angle to view the Shroud. They didn't show the shroud in its complete form, presenting to you the illuminated body front and back of a crucified man. Instead, they only showed it from this angle, which made it very difficult to detect exactly what you were looking at. Mm. I don't know why they did that, but I'm just kind of perplexed that they did. Mm. The, the fact is, is that one of the mysteries of the shroud or one of the intriguing things about the shroud is that the image of the resurrected man can only be seen from a distance. If you're looking at the shroud close up, you're not able to distinguish those physical features. And there's a reason why that is so, a scientific reason why that image can only be seen from a distance. And the reason why is because the image on the shroud is a photographic negative not a painting of a man who was tortured, who was beaten, and who had had a crown of thorns impaled on his head and who carried a heavy crossbeam on his shoulders. It was only with the invention of photography and this first ever photograph of the shroud in 1898 that, that we were able to perceive what was actually encoded onto the shroud of Turin by this resurrected man who I am absolutely certain was Jesus or Yeshua. Again, it portrays a man who was crucified with nails driven through his wrists and his heels, exactly corresponding to the crucifixion story told 
in the New Testament. The Bible describes the mocking of Jesus before his crucifixion. Part of this mocking include the placement of a crown of thorns on his head. This was not done to other crucifixion victims, but the shroud shows evidence of wounds from sharp spike-like utensils around the top of his head. Shroud experts believe that a crown of thorns is the source of the blood flows on the head of the man in the Shroud of Turin, pointing us to the reality that this is, in fact, the burial shroud of Christ. And I'm going to share with you some of the scientific evidence that tells us why we believe that this is truly the burial shroud of Jesus. For one thing, the face is a dead ringer for what we see on this early Christian icon. That is part of the historical evidence that we're going to show. But Dr. Gilbert Lavoie. We just want to make a clarification on, you may not know this, but that wasn't Yeshu there. This was a man. Aruhabi. Aruhabi was his name. Nonetheless, it's again the office of the Christ through Aruhabi. So we'll continue to listen. Just want to make that a clarification for people. Go ahead. It's presented evidence that the bloodstains occurred when the shroud, the person evidenced in the shroud, was actually standing upright and was levitating. The only way that that image could be could be created based on the position of the feet with the toes on the right foot pointing downward and the left knee slightly more flexed is if this figure was suspended. In addition, there's no crushing from the buttocks, the back, or any body parts on the reverse side of the shroud. If a body was placed on that linen shroud, you would see evidence of that crushing. There is none. It's a perfect image, which is consistent with the hypothesis that Jesus was in fact levitating mm. up in an upright position when that image was formed. His hair doesn't fall down on his shoulders in a crushed way. It's as if he's standing upright, again, supporting this hypothesis. In fact, 21st century science has now taken us to the point where we can now say for a fact, these are absolute facts. One, the shroud image was produced between 6 AD and 66 AD. It's been totally disproven that this is some kind of 13th century forgery. There is no possible way an artist in the 13th century could create the image that we see on the Shroud of Turin. Mm. Number two, pollen on the Shroud tells science it came from Jerusalem or it had been there at that time between 6 AD and 66 AD in the springtime. Three, from extensive microscopic radiographic and chemical analysis, shroud scientists cannot find a method by which the image was produced. Mm -hmm. The shroud image cannot be reproduced even with modern technology. Experts are in agreement that the image on the linen shroud is not made up of any physical substance such as paint or pigment. So how did it get there? Again, Mm -hmm. there's no possible way that this is a forgery by some 13th century artist because there's no paint, there's no pigment, there's no evidence of any physical substance that produced this image. Why? Because it's not a photograph and it's not a physical image. While it manifests in the physical plane, it was produced by non-physical 
spiritual means. Mm. Scientists from Italy's National Agency for New Technologies, Energy, and Sustainable Economic Development spent years trying to reproduce the shroud's markings with all best advanced technology. They came to the conclusion that the image on the shroud is, in fact, an alteration of the surface of the linen by some effect of light or radiation, something which also makes the linen turn yellow. The light energy was able to image the body and surrounding objects, including the markings on the tops of coins placed on his eyes and the flowers at exactly the same time this image is produced. And they have demonstrated that certain key features of the image can be replicated by projecting short-duration, high-intensity ultraviolet rays on the surface of the linen. They can't exactly duplicate the, the image, but they know they're go headed in the right direction. It is thought by scientists that an ultraviolet energy source is the only thing that could have produced the image. And there is now this evidence that suggests that a crucified man 2,000 years ago emitted from within every cell of his body a sudden, short, intense burst of radiant energy from his body that we cannot replicate with technology. This is because it was produced from within his body, from within his soul. And this is what produced this incredible image that suggests, again, the source of light that is totally uniform came from within his body. This is not a photograph, but it is an artifact of the resurrection of Jesus. And again, when we look at the shroud, the markings clearly show a body that endured extreme torture, followed by crucifixion. In December of 2011, the scientists said that the shroud image was created by a supernatural light. It cannot possibly be a medieval forgery, as you hear over and over again in mainstream media and coming from mainstream scientists who really, in the end, don't have a clue what they're talking about. These scientists have concluded that something akin to ultraviolet lasers, far beyond the capacity of medieval, medieval forgers, and even our capacity today, could have created the image. It was created by a burst of light that came from within his body. And this is what we are now understanding about the Shroud of Turin, is that it, in fact, is an artifact of his resurrection but it is more than that even. If the Shroud of Turin was indeed created by the same phenomena that caused Jesus' body to glow brighter than the sun, then the extraordinary features of this sun, of, of this shroud, provide an explanation for how that image was created. It was created by Jesus phasing into light, by a burst of light from within his body as exemplified in all these wonderful images from Christian art. The story is true. Christ resurrected from the dead, came here as a cosmic traveler to show us how to do this. Now, the middle ground is the Shroud of Turin, of whether or not it is the actual burial shroud of Jesus, is open and unanswered. That's the middle ground here. In my view, it is an absolute proof of Christ's resurrection. Because Christian belief says something extraordinary happened in a tomb just over 2,000 years ago 
And this cloth was known to have been present. It is considered the most important and most studied relic of Christianity. Used to be a relic. We're not going to call it a relic anymore because now we are shifting our understanding. Newsflash, the shroud is no longer considered a relic. Beginning in the year 2000, Cardinal Ratzinger, later to be known as Pope Benedict XVI, wrote that the Shroud of Turin is a truly mysterious image which no human artistry was capable of producing. In some inexplicable way, it appeared imprinted upon cloth and believed to show the true face of Christ, the crucified and risen Lord. The Shroud, he says, profoundly challenges and confounds human intellect. Absolutely true. And science has tried to explain it, but no universally accepted process has been proposed to do so. The image on the shroud defies duplication by human hands because it was not created by human consciousness. In June, in June 2008, three years after he became Pope, Pope Benedict announced that the shroud would be publicly displayed in the spring of 2010 and stated that he would like to go to Turin to see it along with other pilgrims. Claire and I were there. It was our like our third date. We met in Egypt. Our first date was a cappuccino at the Paws of the Pyramid. Our second date was in Florida. Our third date, we went to see the Shroud of Turin together when it went on display in 2010. One of the most life-changing events of my life. During his visit to Turin on May 2nd, 2010, Claire and I were there just a couple weeks afterward, Benedict described the Shroud of Turin as an extraordinary icon, the icon of Holy Saturday, corresponding in every way to what the gospel tells us of Jesus, an icon written in blood, the blood of a man, who is scourged, who is scourged, crowned with thorns, crucified, and whose right side was pierced, and who resurrected from the dead. The point is, it's not a relic anymore. It's an icon, an icon. We understand that. An icon is a two-way sacred mirror. It is a communications portal. It is a method of transmission. That is what the shroud is. It's a love letter from the resurrected Christ saying, here are my frequencies of resurrection, of love, light, and ultimate cosmic compassion. (laughs) Hey, corrected itself again. Compassion, here it is for you. Look at this shroud. Receive my blessing. I can't be there in person, but my shroud is there. I am in, in it, and it is in me. I am in you, and you are in me. We are all together. We are quantumly entangled. And through this icon, I can transmit to you the codes of, of resurrection. It is an icon written in his blood and his light and his love and his compassion. One of Benedict XVI's last acts of Pope was to authorize the broadcast of video of the Shroud from Turin Cathedral, first time it was seen on TV. In a carefully worded message, Pope Benedict asked and answered a rhetorical question. How is it that the faithful, like you, pause before this icon of a man scourged and crucified and resurrected? It is because the man of the Shroud invites us to contemplate Jesus of Nazareth. That is the closest the Catholic Church has come to say, this is 
the resurrection shroud of Christ. This is the resurrected Christ that is right before you. They will not take that extra step because why do you need the church after that? You don't. You All don't. you need is the shroud. <laughs> this is my photo from 2010 on our first visit. Claire and I were five feet away from it. And it was the most profound thing to feel that love and light pouring off us and then to see this golden orb manifesting in our consciousness as we meditated. The Pope said that when we look at the shroud, we see as in a mirror the suffering of Christ. No, we see the resurrection and love and compassion of Christ, the ultimate act of compassion. He gave over his life for us and left us the shroud as a trail for us to follow and a way for us to connect with him. Three years later, on March 30th, 2013, as part of Easter celebrations, there was an extraordinary exposition of the Shroud in the Cathedral of Turin. It wasn't open to the public. But now this time, Pope Francis is is on it, and he's saying, so, looking upon the man of the Shroud, I, I make St. Francis of Assisi's prayer before the crucifix my own. Most high and glorious God, Enlighten the darkness of my heart and grant me true faith, certain hope and perfect charity, sense and understanding, Lord, so that I may carry out your holy and true command. Amen. The man of the shroud is Christ, the compassionate Christ. And that is what we've asked him to do is to infuse us with that compassion. Point is, Pope Francis and his predecessor, Pope Benedict XVI, have both described the shroud of Turin as an icon. And in choosing this carefully worded description, we realize the popes are telling us something astounding about the shroud. It's not a relic. It's a two-way method of communication. It's a sacred mirror. It's a way for us to connect with the cosmic Christ and to bring the cosmic Christ into our life. Even looking at a picture of the shroud transmits those codes and vibrations. It's an icon of Christ's great love and compassion For humankind, I call it the icon of love, the cosmic Christ demonstration of the power of compassion. That's what the Shroud of Turin is. It's the icon of love, the Shroud of Christ. And the fact that it was the custom of artists who made paintings of the Shroud to have their paintings make contact with the Shroud suggests the belief that I'm right, that it could transmit a blessing. It transmits a blessing. So, If the Shroud of Turin is a two-way mirror, a method of communication with the cosmic Christ in the heavenly realms, it's literally a portal or a conduit, right? Yeah. Is the material world and the spiritual world open to each other through the Christ's icon of love? Yes. How far can we stretch this? I think we can stretch it pretty far. I mean, like really far. But before we do that, I want to just give you further evidence that the face on the Shroud of Turin belongs to Jesus. And historically, we can show this without a shadow of a doubt. Now, that scientifically, we know exactly that the Shroud was present at the time of Jesus. And now historically, through paintings, we can show this as well. In early Christian art, Jesus was not portrayed the way he is on the Shroud. He's shown as a young, bearded, beardless man. He's shown as... The Good Shepherd, for example, in the in the model of the Greek god Helios. Then there's the third and fourth century images of Jesus, beardless, with a magic wand in his hand, performing the miracles. Then there's the fifth and sixth century images that we find, for example, in England, 
where he's portrayed as Apollo or Helios. But then after the 6th century, all of this changed. What happened? This is when the Shroud of Turin was rediscovered in Edessa in Turkey. After that moment, suddenly, all of the faces of Jesus start to resemble the cosmic Christ. He reappears. It's exactly the same face that we see on the Shroud of Turin. The reason why is because this is the face of Christ. This is the face that is seen on the Shroud of Turin. These artists knew it, and they began duplicating the actual historical face of Christ. And it perfectly matches the Shroud of Turin. Why? Because that's Christ. That is the resurrection shroud of Christ. There's absolutely no doubt about it from an artistic and historical perspective. And now science is saying the same thing. You put the grid pattern over the image of Christ at, at St. Catherine's over the Shroud of Turin. It's a perfect match. Absolute perfect match. The only way this is possible is if these artists all suddenly had a simultaneous vision of Christ. Or if one of these artists had seen the Shroud of Turin when it was in hiding and began revealing the original and true face of Christ that appears on the shroud. And now they start duplicating that image. And this is what we see historically. Now we're coming up into the 15th century. It's exactly the same face as what we see in Sinai. This is Simabu, 14th century, same face as on the shroud. Bellini, same face on the shroud. Demacina, Raphael, they all got the memo. This is the face of Christ because Christ is the face that we see on the Shroud of Turin. It's his resurrection shroud, his icon. And what these artists are actually creating for us are additional icons through which we can make eye contact with the cosmic Christ. And isn't that kind of a a pun on icon, icon, eye contact? the cosmic Christ. That is the purpose of these images is for us to see eye to eye so that Jesus can enter into our soul and transmit the Holy Spirit. And of course, this is exactly what Leonardo shows in his famous Christ Panto Crater, a painting that just sold for $453 million on auction in 2017. It's exactly the same face as what we see at St. Catherine's Monastery in the Sinai. And they're both carrying the triple dot symbol of the power of resurrection. He brought that orb with him, uh, in my, in my view. It's part of what he brought as the, the cosmic star child. So to recap, all of these images are derived from the same source, the shroud of Turin, the shroud of Christ, the icon of love, and may even carry the original power of this source. Think about that. Think about the possibilities of Christ as a cosmic being infusing this shroud with his vibration. Do you know the Templars, when they were persecuted, they were arrested by the Catholic Church, they were accused of idol worship because they would take linen strands and place it on an idol, that they would charge those linen strands that would give them power in their earthly life, but also guarantee them safe passage in the afterlife. After torture, At the hands of the Catholic Church, the Templar finally admitted that what they were charging their linen strands on was the Shroud of Turin. They possessed it, and they believed that it could transmit a holy vibration that would protect their physical body and grant them safe passage in the afterlife. 
This is exactly the same concept as the icons, that these images transmit the vibration of the resurrection or light body, and we can infuse our own light body by studying or contemplating, meditating, and reflecting on the images of Christ, Mary, Padmasambhava, any of these other ascended beings that we see in the resurrection body or the light body. I've taken this into ancient Egypt, among the Maya tradition, into the Hawaiian tradition. It's a worldwide tradition that talks about how these ascended beings are rainbow light body beings and how images can assist us in receiving these codes and vibrations. And it's because we are made in the perfect image of God and we have the spiritual capacity to participate in or mirror Christ in his light body. For Buddhists, they talk in terms not of a Christ body, but of our true nature, that this is who we truly are as beings. We're all living a life of samsara, covered over by negative perceptions and false perceptions about who we are as beings. But deep within us is this Christ being, this illuminated being, this glory body, this resurrection body. As we begin to connect with it, we begin to change as people. We become more kind, more compassionate more giving towards others. As we contemplate, meditate, and reflect on these, we're actually rewiring our brain to make connections to our new selves. This is the principle of neuroscience that I cover, that Claire and I offer in our Art and Science of Living Ascension presentations. In fact, one of those work webinars is available here on portaltoascension.com. And the principle is, is that through contemplation and meditation and reflection on these images, we're literally rewiring our brain to make connections to our new self, to our Christ self. And as your nerve cells fire in response to the images, they're wiring together or weaving together a web of light within your, within your brain, within your spirit and your soul that becomes the canvas for your new body of light, your Christed self. Your brain changes, your body changes, your emotions change. We begin to return to our original state of being, call it the perfect state, our natural state, our Christ state, the blessed state. And as you paint this canvas, you're actually visualizing the actual experience of the light body. And you're fabricating a new life. The images align us with the cosmic Christ, our future selves, our future destiny, and also deeply our true selves, our perfect self. Remember what Jesus said about perfection. I tell you the truth, it's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Mm. Jesus is telling us that our physical flesh and blood body isn't going through the portal, but our rainbow light body will. And in Salvador Dali's incredible painting, The Last Supper, we see Jesus in this interbasic realm. He's part physical, part flesh and blood, but he's exuding this rainbow light, exuding the compassion of the rainbow light body. He's already phasing into it at the Last Supper in anticipation of the crucifixion and the resurrection. A rich man had asked Jesus, what's required for eternal life? And, and Jesus said, follow the commandments. In other words, how do we attain our light body, our Christ body, our resurrection body? And the answer is we follow the commandments. Love with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, 
This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like unto it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and prophets hang on these two commandments. Jesus is telling us the law of compassion is the way to attaining our life body. This is the law of the cosmic Christ. Love with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul, and love your neighbor as yourself because your neighbor is yourself. We are all quantumly entangled. And this is why your neighbor's suffering is your suffering. And until we do something about it, we will all continue to suffer. Well, the rich man had told Jesus that he'd always kept those commandments, and he wanted to know what else is required. And Jesus then told him, if thou wilt be perfect, meaning whole, holy, complete, and compassionate, go and sell what you've got, give it to the poor. You'll have treasure in heaven, and then you can follow me through the eye of the needle. Mm. And I'm not saying for you to go sell your house, your car, quit your job, and go focus on maintaining or attaining your life body. It's probably not a bad idea. But the idea here is that we can become more compassionate. And this is the law of the cosmic Christ. This is the way we will attain our perfection and place ourselves in higher resonance with the cosmic Christ. And then one day we will follow him. In closing here, I would say that if you seek this robe of light, that the image will show you the way, that acts of compassion and kindness are the acts that weave that robe of light, but ultimately it's the spirit of the cosmic Christ, the Holy Spirit of the cosmic Christ entering into us that will give us the greatest amplitude, if you will, of this spirit, the greatest infusion of this spirit. And in closing, I want to refer you to an image that was painted in in 1937. It came after St. Faustina's vision of the cosmic Christ appearing to her wearing a white robe and telling her to paint an image according to the pattern you see with the signature, Jesus, I trust in you. He attached many promises to those who venerate or love this image. And so upon uh, her request, Mr. Eugene Kasmorowski began the painting of the image in 1934. And in her diary, St. Faustina wrote that Jesus told her, paint an image according to the image, according to the pattern you see with the signature, Jesus, I trust in you. I desire that this image be venerated, meaning loved, adored, first in your chapel and then throughout the world. And I promise that the soul that will love this image will not perish. Well, Jesus happens to be using the Abaya Mudra, in which he has his palm open, transmitting to you the light that is coming out of his awakened heart chakra. He is transmitting to us the light of the cosmic Christ, the compassion of the cosmic Christ. And he says, I am offering people a vessel with which they are to keep coming for graces to the fountain of mercy, that vessel is this image with the signature, Jesus, I trust in you. Our goal, Jesus is saying, is to let God's love flow through this image to our heart and to all those who need it. And in closing, I ask that you let that love and light flow through you, be it through this image, through the icon of love, the shroud of the resurrected Christ, or any of the other images that I have presented to you today as 
guides for you in your ascension. Let those to inspire you to weave your, your cloak of love and light, your cloak of compassion. Wear that as you go forward in these coming days. Imbue yourself and everyone you come into contact with, with that love and light. I want to thank you all very much. Deepest possible gratitude, love and light for being here today. Thank you for all that you've given to Claire and I over these past years, your friendship, your guidance, your, your, your fellowship, your companionship, and especially your compassion. I hope that you will visit my website, williamhenry.net, and keep in touch with us. We have much, much more to share. This is the time where we must rise. This is the time for all future human history where we are making the decisions about how all future humans will live. And if we do our job right, we are laying down a steady base of love, light, and compassion that will see us all through into that future. I want to thank Neil Gar and Portal to Ascension for creating this sacred space for us today. God speak to you all. I love you with all my heart. Thank you so much for being here. I look forward to seeing you next time. God bless. Mm. I gonna and I don't think it's boring, but Sheldon Whitehouse is he's got quite a insight into things as we found out in previous uh evaluations of circumstances of the dark agenda. Mm. And Sheldon Whitehouse was a guest of Amen, who we played him yesterday. He was on SNBC Prime Time, that slot where Rachel used to hang out. Uh, mm-hmm. And there's all, all different uh, hosts on that site now, but uh, we played Amen from last night. At, um, this is Amen's show tonight, and uh, so we're going to uh, we're going to put it on. So are, are we ready, everybody? Here we go. Where in God's name is our backbone? That was all President Biden could ask after the massacre in Uvalde, Texas. Hours after the massacre, Senator Chris Murphy. He got on his hands and knees and begged his fellow senators for action, repeating over and over again, what are we doing? Now, those are questions I've been asking myself this week, and I'm not alone. The American prospect has gone so far as to argue the Senate has forfeited its right to exist as Republicans are once again certain to block meaningful gun control legislation. I spoke earlier with Rhode Island Senator Sheldon Whitehouse on what he and his colleagues can do to change their dismal record of action. <laughs> Senator Whitehouse, thank you so much uh, for joining us. A lot of Americans uh, are feeling hopeless in the wake of Uvalde, uh, in the wake of Buffalo, knowing that we have been through these horrific tragedies and that nothing changes after them. Do you understand Americans' frustration, to put it mildly, with Congress at this moment? <laughs> To put it mildly, yeah. And I think that part of what we need to do is to identify the root of the problem so that we can fix it. Because, frankly, the power of the NRA 
to cause the Republican Party to heal to it so immediately. Um, it has the same thing behind it that the power of the fossil fuel industry has to cause the Republican Party to heal to its climate denial, uh, that causes the Republican Party to heal to the capture of the court by the Federal Society, and that um, is behind the voter suppression effort that the Republican Party is promoting. And we just have to get better at looking at those core conditions, which are primarily enormous, enormous amounts of special interest money that is allowed to be spent anonymously yep. by the millions in our politics and creates an environment where secret threats and promises can drive political behavior. I mean, at what point do we as Americans feel that our democracy is not working? Have we crossed that threshold when we look at the numbers and the majority of Americans want sensible gun reform, want universal background checks, want a lot of the things that I'm sure you're on board with, yet somehow we are not seeing legislation reflect the majority of the American uh, will. And it's not just on the issue of gun control, it's on abortion rights, it's on a lot of things, and, and the democracy does not seem to be responding to the majority of the will of the American people. Well, I think first people understand that. They see it. Polls say that. Uh, they also understand that it has a lot to do with big special interest money sloshing around in politics, and across the parties they hate big special interest money, particularly secretly sloshing around in politics. And there have actually been studies that show when you look at what Congress produces, it has statistically nothing to do with what the public wants, but a very high correlation with what big special interests that have this enormous amount of money sloshing around in politics, what they want. So your colleague, Senator... Yeah, I was going to say, your, your, your colleague, Senator Dick Durbin, uh, has announced that the Senate Judiciary Committee will hold a hearing on June 15th on gun violence and kids. You sit on the committee. What do you expect to come out of this hearing? Well, I think um, the Republicans will have their talking points ready. Their talking points will have been delivered to them by the NRA. They'll try to shift the blame for gun violence off guns and onto everything else that they can think of. And um, yeah, I think it's really, really hard to get them to cross the NRA because it holds the whip hand over their political money and over their political futures. I guess, you know, the NRA is still holding its conference in Houston this weekend. Ted Cruz, Donald Trump were among uh, the speakers. Your reaction to the fact that the NRA in the wake of this tragedy is still going ahead with these uh, with these big names and stalwarts of the Republican Party? Well, I think that the um, moral choice was properly made by the entertainers who said, no way, we're pulling out. Um, the NRA is used to breaching, broaching, fighting public opinion. Uh, it does so with money because it has a phalanx of legislators who are so dependent on its money that uh, they will do whatever the NRA says, irrespective of public opinion. So the NRA going ahead is no surprise, um, but it's pretty disgraceful that um, political figures are going there, and it's particularly disgraceful uh, if they go there without going to Uvalde, Texas, um, to understand what is, you know, that bloodbath, that carnage, that gore in the schools. 
Later in the hour, I'm going to speak with Senator Whitehouse about the Republican dark money efforts to influence our courts. But up next, Ted Cruz walks out of an interview after he is pressed on gun control. Okay, now one more. There's one more little bit at the end here, so bear with me as this uh, machine takes a bit. Uh, I just want to get to see the end here, what else he has to say. So, momentito, it's coming. Here we go. Get a this and dish movie pack. Visit mydish.com slash movie pack. The far right in this country is pursuing an audacious effort to capture America's courts, fueled by hundreds of millions of dollars in secret dark money contributions that they hope uh, through which they can enact a radical social and economic agenda that they could never achieve legislatively. And in the second part of my conversation with Senator Sheldon Whitehouse, a member of the Senate Judiciary Committee, we discussed the far right's attempts to turn the judiciary in America into a tool for partisan and corporate interests. You, in a scathing Twitter thread, you detailed how Republicans are uh, altering the courts through fringe appointments. Tell us a little bit more about this issue and how it impacts so many of the the things that touch our lives on a day-to-day basis. Well, if you draw the common thread behind the funding of the NRA, the funding of the climate denial operation, the funding of the voter suppression operation, you see that there's also an operation that's been in, underway for quite a while to capture the courts, and particularly the Supreme Court, that went into high gear under Trump that was run by these big donors through the Federalist Society, and it produces judges who will do what they are told by special interests that show up in court as what they call friends of the court, uh, friends of the court, amici curiae, and over and over again, what they are doing is trying to degrade the American political and economic system so that if you're rich enough and powerful enough, you're immune from elections, you're immune from laws, you're immune from regulations, and you can create an America that Americans don't want using the power of the courts to enforce their will over our will. And uh, a decision that just came out sort of embodies that from the Fifth Circuit by Trump judges that would disable the Securities Exchange Commission's ability to go after people who commit fraud on others using a series of uh, what I consider to be cooked up, reverse-engineered legal theories designed specifically to disable the regulation that protects you and me from polluters, from cheats, uh, from people who would take advantage of consumers. Is there a way to reform this or to stop this? I mean, the, this GOP effort is happening at every level of the judiciary. Do you support expanding the number of seats on the Supreme Court? Should appointments to federal judiciary positions not be lifetime appointments? There are a whole package of reforms that need to be evaluated but they need to be evaluated in the light of an understanding of what has actually taken place, uh, particularly at the Supreme Court. This is not a conservative court. 
This is a captured court. Yep. In the same way that in the 19th century, railroads took over the railroad commissions. Mm. So the railroad commissions would let them charge whatever prices they want. Private interests behind the Federalist Society have controlled the last three Republican appointees to the United States Supreme Court and had massive influence in the selection of Roberts and Alito. So that's really five. And that's a majority of the court um, that was put in place by this special interest operation. And they're now delivering for the benefit of those big interests who put them on the court. It is not a conservative court. It is a captured court, and it is captured by special interests. And your report actually mentions um, the Disclosed Act, Democratic legislation, yep. which would end the influence of dark money in our political system. But, um, you know, I hate to say it, sadly, once again, there is no support from Republicans on this. Should Democrats fight fire with fire here? I mean, is it time to abolish the filibuster and try and actually get something done to save our democracy on a whole host of issues, including this one? It is absolutely time to find procedural ways around Mitch McConnell's abuse of the filibuster rule so important things can get done in the Senate without giving Mitch McConnell the keys to the kingdom when he and his Republicans are both in the minority and entirely controlled by special interests on these important issues. So, yeah, we do need to find that. And unfortunately, what we haven't been able to find is the 50 votes necessary to change the rules to create pathways around that kind of uh, rampant obstruction. So the election matters. A couple more seats and we might just be able to do that. Yeah, so I, you know, to kind of close on an optimistic note here, what is your message to Americans who are feeling hopeless that issues like this uh, might not change? You're saying with the elections, there is a chance to change. With the elections, they could change. And more to the point, by demanding transparency in politics, by getting rid of the unlimited anonymous money, the dark money that's floating in politics, which we can do by statute and which we will be voting on this year, that is a potential turning point for American democracy to put it back in the hands of the people who do the voting and the taxes and are the citizens rather than an elite group of oligarchs who want to run the country from behind the scenes using massive anonymous money to make the Republicans do what they want. Senator, I wish you the best of luck uh, before time runs out uh, and uh, and we lose complete control of our government. Senator uh, Sheldon Whitehouse, sir, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for joining us. Good to be with you. Wow. This hour of Amen, holding Republicans accountable, the audacious effort one group is taking to make sure some election deniers never work again. Then the Trumps must testify new details on the order forcing Trump and his kids to sit for depositions in a civil investigation and President Biden's efforts to reform our policing system two years on after George Floyd's death. I'm Ayman Mohideen. Let's get started. Oh, my God. That's his hour, too. This guy's a master at what he does, and I'm glad we have him to share with everyone. So. Rama is going to play something. Now we're going to go to the next. This is called Sound and Spirit. And it's the uh, 
our friends again, Greg Brayden, Teresa Ballard, William Henry, Robert Grant, Nassim Haramin, Billy Carson, Kimba Aram, Dr. Robert Gilbert, Jeffrey, Dr. Jeffrey Thompson, John Biaulio, <laughs> Jonathan Goldman, Dr. Constantine Korotkov, Jeff Volk, Vailana Marcus, and so on and so forth. So why do we exist? And what are we here to accomplish on earth? The Vedas teach that everything is created out of sound. Mm -hmm. From Om, the primordial reverberation. Exploring how sound can help to accelerate our spiritual evolution. Experts and researchers, as I mentioned, share, share how different sonic tools can be used to achieve greater coherence in our lives. Finding a sense of harmony within ourselves allows us to connect to nature and link with our true spirit through sound. Here we go. This is uh, 26 minutes. Yes, ready, Rama. Mm. Coming. will consider why do we exist and what should we accomplish on this earthly plane one of the big challenges the world faces in my opinion today is how can we change our frequency from a negative sort of pessimistic and fear-based place to quickly shift it to a higher frequency of love and happiness many ancient traditions believe that spiritual evolution is the purpose of human incarnation and that certain sounds and frequencies can help activate our brain and higher selves. In this way, we can perceive more of the entire spectrum of the universe. Spirit and matter are like two ends of the spectrum of frequency. You have spirit at those highest frequency levels and then matter at the densest frequency levels in between, it's all a spectrum of what we could call energy, we could call it vibration, where spirit is vibrating at the fastest frequency levels, and matter is vibrating at the slowest frequency levels, but it's all one spectrum. We live in a world that is constantly oscillating on and off. It's constantly pulsating. It's constantly in a wave issuance. We interpret this continual flow of current through our senses. But all of those senses are pulsing and they're interacting with the wave. We are creating our worlds in a response to pulsation. If you go back almost 4,000 years to the oldest Sanskrit text in India, the Veda, they discuss this in great detail. Everything is created out of sound. Well, 
own the original sound of all sounds. So what you see at the core of the quantum field in the state of vibration forming these standing waves, what's vibrating, according to them? Consciousness itself is what's vibrating. And what is consciousness vibrating? Is vibrating an idea. What's the idea? This is the idea. ocean of frequencies can determine our direction in life. It's important to be conscious of our thoughts, emotions, and intentions. Anytime I start to feel fearful or I start feeling overcome by conditions that I perceived around me as being scarce, I start instead to think about all the things that I'm grateful for. My family, my children, the wonderful places I've been able to visit throughout my life. And even when I've been in moments of absolute despair, that has never failed me. It has always lifted and changed my own perspective to the point where I felt like all of a sudden I could take on those challenges once again and do it in happiness and abundance. Tuning into higher frequencies or more positive planes can be similar to switching radio stations. But sometimes we can't hear the music. These vibrations, they span a spectrum that is way bigger than what is within the audible spectrum. What is that frequency spectrum? It's energy, it's vibrational essence, it's the essentials that everything in the universe is made of. In alchemy, we would talk about the body, soul, spirit, or the sulfur, the mercury, and the salt, which are the three essentials that everything is made of. Or from a shamanic perspective, you have the four elements, earth, water, and fire, as philosophical principles that infuse themselves in everything that's manifested. Thoughts and words can also influence what we manifest. The thoughts that we think and even the concepts that we are capable of conceiving are all driven by the language that we use consciously or unconsciously, verbally or silently, every moment of every day. We hear sound behind us, in front of us, and all over us. So within this vibrational universe, it's possible that whatever I say will have resonances above and below for trillions and trillions of light years. Scientists tell us that the average person has about 60 to 80,000 thoughts per day. Each of those thoughts is pulsing information through neural connections. External sounds and vibrations can also impact or awaken our spirit. Tibetan bowls. Mantra. Sound has been the ultimate tool that humans have been using in every culture on earth since the beginning to help that process to be faster and deeper and more profound. If you examine the different prayers on our planet, you find they are vocalized for the most part. They're whispered, chanted, 
sung. That is because sound amplifies the consciousness that we have when we're in meditation and prayers. It's a reciprocal system. Intentional sound can amplify our thoughts and prayers. And our prayers and meditations can expand our senses. It is said that when the throat chakra, the shuddha, opens, it allows one to hear frequencies above and below the human hearing range. I call this the third ear. This may also be connected to allowing us to perceive the sound current or the sound of creation. The sound current is considered to be a stream of energy that has existed since the beginning of creation. The sound current is a mysterious sound of a higher cosmic order. It is heard beyond the ears, inside the head, with an uninterrupted continuity. It is a crystal-like vibrational frequency that comes from everywhere and nowhere. Some say it is like the sound of the ocean with many altered tones or harmonics superimposed on it. The ancients, they called it Shabda. It's the ancient currents of sound. The whole universe is vibrational, and it's a vibrational ocean, and it's filled with currents. Different cultures call these currents by different names. There are said to be actually a number of different sounds that relate to different planes of consciousness, and these planes of consciousness, one can listen to them, travel on them, and experience divine aspects of truth. Those who can hear or perceive the sound current may likely have experienced a life-changing event. In 1992, I had a near-death experience. And the didgeridoo came into my life right after this. The sound of the didgeridoo was like a key that connected me back to this place that I went. Also, the sound current that I hear since 2013 is very much like this same sound. To me, the sound current sounds like the crystal didgeridoo that I play, but maybe like 20 octaves higher, above the supposed human hearing threshold. Tinnitus is defined as a ringing in the ear that's not coming from an external source. It's said that 450 million people worldwide have this condition, many of whom seek medical attention to treat it. Modern medicine often pathologizes signs of spiritual awakening and may call hearing external sounds that have no apparent cause tinnitus. But I feel it is much deeper than that and certainly doesn't need to be a problem. In many cases, I feel that it may be the sound current that people are hearing. Learning how to use this experience for spiritual evolution would be helpful for millions of people who are unsure of what it means or how to work with it. Is it possible that more people perceiving the sound current could help with the world's spiritual evolution? Even those who cannot feel or sense the sound current can still enhance the connection to spirit 
through sacred sound. We individually are tuners in a way. We're like tuning forks. It means that we all have the capacity of influencing or affecting everyone and everything that we come into contact with at every moment. Many ancient cultures seem to have a profound understanding of the power of sound and vibration. Around the world, for example, in petroglyphs in Arizona, you will see a figure, a shaman, standing before concentric rings. When I see concentric rings, I'm always thinking sound or vibration. So what if the message here is that sound is being used to open a portal or a vortex into which that shaman could perhaps step through that stone. Charles Muses, a genius mathematician and Egyptologist, said that from his research, the essence of the Egyptian methods was to use musical frequencies to expand consciousness, using the brain as a kind of molecular transducer, which can release certain neuropeptides. Resonating certain centers of the brain in a coherent way, potentially using sound with certain sacred plant medicines, was thought to trigger a metamorphic process in the human. Not unlike the process a caterpillar undergoes to transform into a butterfly. The Choctaw and others, they describe the appearance of a pale being. Some people believe it was a manifestation of Christ. They tell in these stories how they would chant, and then the pale one would appear. What if they could also reverse this process? What if they could raise themselves to such a high level of frequency or vibration that they appeared to disappear from our visible spectrum? They're still perhaps around us, but we simply can't see them because they're vibrating at a much higher frequency than we're accustomed to perceiving. Music throughout the ages has been used to inspire, comfort, and unite the masses. Sound can help to accelerate our spiritual evolution, I think primarily by being a tool that we can use for achieving greater coherence in our lives. And when we can come to a greater state of coherence, a greater state of harmony within ourselves, within our environment, that creates that resonant effect that we need to up-level to make that ability to connect into the quantum field, to really make the shift in consciousness that we're looking to have as, as a collective race of humans. Additional mystical tools may be available for our guidance if we're paying attention. There are so many ways of perceiving synchronicity. I think the most exciting way to interact with it is to recognize that it's an expression of something universal. We experience it personally when some outrageous coincidence happens and we say, you could never expect that in a million years. What are the odds of that happening? So that's a personal experience of synchronicity. And it has to do with resonance. It has to do with attracting something into your field at the perfect time 
to wake you up to the acknowledgement that you are creating your own reality moment by moment. If I choose this way to follow my heart, is the universe's job to step in and open the doors, turn the lights green, make everything serve to further. It becomes this flow. It becomes this synchronized, serendipitous adventure that you never know what's going to happen. Pretty soon, you're in a position where opportunities are being dished to you that no amount of phone calls or letter writing or trying to impose yourself could ever get you that audience. You could never arrive there. It has to come to you. The word music relates to the muses from Greek mythology and often refers to a higher level of spirit, which helps inspire poets and other artists. We like to say, as musicians, we learn how to get inside the sound. In other words, we become coherently resonant with the sound. The sound shifts our consciousness, and then we now have the ability to travel on that sound. And on that sound, we can meet beings that are spiritual, we can meet angels, we can meet dakinis, we can meet light beings, we can meet spirit guides. All these intuitive concepts become very real. It's just that people have described them in different cultures in different ways. Could it be that these spirit guides and our higher selves simply exist on a different level within the spectrum of frequency? The spectrum of frequency is something that extends all the way from the spirit, the highest levels of pure spirit energy. We could say consciousness all the way down to the densest levels of physicality. In the way it's thought of in the sevenfold system, every human being has a physical body, a body of vital life force, a emotional body, mental body, the causal body, spiritual and divine. You look at emotional impacts of music and vibrations. You're focusing specifically on one plane level, but we could actually examine the impacts of vibrations really on any plane by focusing our attention on that specific plane. For example, one can focus on the seven centers in the chakra system, which are often associated with the seven notes of the musical scale. The root chakra is associated with your feeling of safety and groundedness. That might be in your own body, in your environment, in your relationships. It's all about that primal sense of how can I be safe in life? The sacral chakra is your seat for creation and passion. It's that, what am I here to do? How do I want to create? And what lights me on fire to draw me to those experiences in life? Your solar plexus chakra has everything to do with your personal power and your confidence in yourself. It's the ability to take action in the world. The heart chakra is the bridge between the upper and lower chakras. And it is where matter meets spirit. When you move to your throat chakra, this is your chakra that has everything to do with what do you speak into existence? How do you use your words? 
Your third eye is really connecting your inner vision, the part of you that knows your sense of your intuition and instinct. The crown chakra is known as the bridge to the cosmos. It lifts and inspires you, connecting you to the divine. Knowing how to connect the right vibrations to the correct energy centers is one of the highest arts of an initiatory process. By using sound to tune each of these chakras, it's getting you open to be the full expression of your truest self. It brings with it a change of consciousness, a change in the energy field, and also a change of a person's perception to non-physical realities and the activities and beings present in them. The ancient masters understood the ways in which the internal and external planes interacted. In the ancient traditions, they were multidimensional beings. They understood that there were multiple planes of existence and that they had reflected in their own subtle bodies all of the outer planes in their own internal structure. They were the microcosm of the macrocosm, as above, so below. With this understanding, they could transform themselves and their reality. They would create a certain energetic emanation from the higher consciousness state, which would then reflect down into the thoughts in the mind, which would then reflect into the emotional body state, the vibrational body state, physical body state, and on every plane. Anything that gets created on any level becomes emanated outward as an energetic field. us attain these expanded states of energy if we learn how to elevate our consciousness? Finding the sound of the right quality can target a particular subtle body and can become a vibrational carrier wave that higher information, higher energy, and even particular non-physical beings can travel on that current. By being open to the universe and its sonic tools, each of us can tune ourselves to a higher state of being. What we need is something that's simple, that every day, twice a day, for one minute, we can tune ourselves and know from a modern perspective, we're getting a neutral result. The safest sound is the one that will get you most coherent. And C and G is the interval of a fifth, a ratio of two to three is an archetype. That archetype is fundamental to a vibrational universe. We would say in mysticism, that is the alchemic key to everything. Tuning forks are a helpful resource. But even without them, we can reach a state of harmony by simply using our voice. Babies hum. The elderly hum. Everybody hums. Mostly when they are happy. Mostly unconsciously. With the hum. Get Reduce heart rate, reduce respiration. Your blood pressure gets lowered to pharmaceutical levels. You get the release of melatonin and nitric oxide, which means that the blood flows more evenly throughout your body and is also an antiviral agent. You get the release of endorphins, those wonderful self-created painkillers. So all these things happen. 
when we come. Spiritual evolution can be aided individually and collectively by using the power of sound. You could create an entrainment field by playing the right type of music that entrains everyone into that frequency or by doing the right kind of chant with a sacred word that entrains people into that rhythm and that frequency that creates not only an entrainment of the people but a resonant effect which then when you add the intention you add the coherent field now we can really start to impact the collective of humanity in a bigger way we can choose to take charge of our tuner and begin to align with the highest possible frequencies in this way we directly influence the collective and that is what is needed right now so from the very beginning when we're told in the beginning was the word we are told the key to our success individually and also collectively in the beginning is the power of the word and the word is a frequency or it's a vibration and each of us have a choice in the frequency and vibration that is coming from within us Each of us can make a positive difference whether it's through humming, chanting, or tuning into the sound current. The sound current is sometimes described as a sacred rope thrown down by the divine to the seeker who can then pull themselves up out of their lower nature, their ordinary way of being and thinking. This allows them to embody more of their higher consciousness. which purifies the seeker over time together we can raise our vibration and enhance our relation to the larger universe i fundamentally believe that the universe is more a u inverse than simply a universe by using these principles i believe we can also not only take advantage of new musical approaches that will improve our biology and bring us into synchrony and beautiful symbiosis with our music but also help us ascend to our next level of evolution as a species it is our ability to communicate and feed the field that connects all things through following the fundamental principles of our most ancient and cherished spiritual traditions that are based in the heart in gratitude appreciation cooperation and care as we feed those to ourselves by virtue of that we are feeding the planet and as we become the best versions of ourselves we're creating the best world possible we have our friend Regina Merritt if she's back. <laughs> and this is called Open Minds. That's her signature uh program. Cosmic Connections and Collective 
de- collective destiny. What do we know about humanity's cosmic destiny and the 22 star races that still affect us? Galactic historian Debbie Solaris returns to Gaia to speak about the answers she has gained through reading the Galactic Akashic Records. Solaris reveals how she has reached a deeper understanding of humanity's cosmic connections through many readings of individual soul origins, describing soul pathways. Solaris explains our galactic origins from 22 interstellar species whose influences still affect our evolution. From the distant Andromeda sector. Uh, Pandy, there's, here's the, a plethora of stories here from the distant Andromeda sector of the galaxy. Human groups began to move outward into time. Ultimately, our collective destiny on Earth, and Micah to you and everybody, may be to understand, understand, overstand our extraterrestrial connections, whether from Arcturus, Antares, Pleiades, or elsewhere. For more from Debbie Solaris, watch your interviews, Arcturians, Pleiadians, and Lyrans. Okay, so this is, again, uh, Debbie Solaris, and our host is Regina Meredith, and this is a 50, 48 minutes. So we better get started. Here we go. was designed to be a living library. It was supposed to be a planet where they were taking genetics from all kinds of different star systems and combining them into one planet to see what would happen. What people don't realize is actually the human race were a composite of 22 different star races. It could be more than that. Interesting. And sometimes that's, I think, a lesson that we all need to learn that um, especially here on Earth, that not everybody is coming in with the same perspective or the same agendas. George Washington actually received visions, and he actually was visited by Pleiadian beings. A lot of people don't realize that. The whole concept of our Declaration of Independence and our Bill of Rights actually was downloaded from the Pleiadians. The cautionary tale that we've learned from all these other star systems is that you always have to have the spirituality integrated into it in order to have um, a higher level society. Debbie Solaris has ignited the imagination of our community with her stories of the back history of our planet from a galactic point of view. In this view, we're all hybrids of one kind or another, and those influences affect us to this day. Welcome back, Debbie. Thank you for having me back. It's great to be here. You're very popular people love hearing about everyone loves hearing about themselves and their neighbors and the people they love and the people they hate yeah exactly (laughs) and and so i think that this story is particularly gets us because i think we're all trying at a point in time where we're beginning to wake up again to understand we're connected with our cosmos Mm -hmm. and 
of course, then all the stories out of military and otherwise regarding exposure and contact with aliens and ETs of all kinds. And I think we're just starting to say, hmm, am I in that story somewhere? And you say yes. Yes, absolutely. I think, uh, uh, you know, the thing that we're all, uh, you know, exploring nowadays is our connection with the greater cosmos. And how that plays a part, even with us personally. I think so. I mean, historically, when you're just trying to survive, just plow the land and you're tired and you fall, have dinner and fall in bed at night, you don't really contemplate these things. And we're at a point in time where there's enough luxury of extra time and humanity that we actually can contemplate these things. Yes. And I think even since COVID um, has been even more so. Yeah. You've noticed that? Yeah, absolutely. In your practice. Oh, absolutely. People call you to get personal readings to help figure out who they are. Right. Connected. I would say uh, my my input of uh, reading bookings have increased exponentially since COVID. COVID. Yeah. Yeah. Well, people are more introverted. They're looking more into who they are, are. what yeah. life's about, and what they want to do and not do anymore. Exactly. So let's start. I know we're going to cover a little bit of what we did before, but what happened last time is we only got halfway through through what I wanted to talk to you about. Oh, absolutely. So now we're doing the other half, but yeah. we have to still fill a little backstory. In. Yeah. Here we're beginning with the human race on live. Mm-hmm. So let's set the stage for the human race. Well, uh, the reason why Lyra and Vega, so Vega being a star within the Lyra constellation, uh, was so important was because that was the home of human consciousness. That's where everything began as far as our physicality in our in our galaxy and actually in our universe as well. So, uh, so when the co-creators decided to create a physical reality, they created it in the Lyra system. And they, they use the, uh, the, the God template, which is the father God consciousness and mother goddess consciousness, uh, template in order to create this, um, split between, um, the two different types of energies within, within this particular system in order to create this new experiment into the descent into physicality. Uh, so my understanding with Lyra is that most of the Lyran system was father God consciousness oriented with Vega being the, the, the outlier with the mother goddess consciousness. And so you had two different human races that were created in the Lyran system. So, uh, so Lyra had mostly the kind of what they call the Nordic white, white Lyrans, uh, Vega. I had more the blue skin, darker beings that were more the mother goddess consciousness representation. But, um, but yes, Lyra played a huge, huge part. Um, and it was where our story began. And when you read some accounts, for example, of the beings that were in Atlantis, we go back to mm-hmm. the, in, because here you're talking about the Lyra, the original beings, yeah. people here being um, 12 feet tall, four to 500 pounds, Absolutely. very large in stature. I've even gone back in regressions. And, seen this myself right but also the color of skin on atlantis there were supposedly said to be people that had white skin red skin blue skin all kinds of powder white skin yeah black skin right so we were a very mixed race from the very beginning absolutely and this had to do with this hybridization absolutely influence let's talk about that a little bit in principle about atlantis and lemuria and this this the, these hybrid pro- programs and how they, I think that's what originated most of the races. Oh, the yeah. Differentiation in the races is genetic hybridization from aliens. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, this is something I talk about a lot, even when I do Akashic readings. Mm-hmm. A lot of people think that, oh, you know, humans came from Adam and Eve. 
Well, Adam and Eve was just an allegory, okay? Mm-hmm. It was just an allegorical story explaining the beginning of creation in our galaxy, but it's not really, there's not really, I don't think, a being that's called Adam and Eve. I don't think they're, they were just representations of the of Vega. At least that's the way I see it. So even some of the biblical stories ex- that cr- explain creation explain it in a way that's more allegorical. Well, it has to be. You just get down to some of the basics like, well, where did Adam and Eve's sons find their wives anyway? Exactly. They're the only people. I mean, this that story falls apart really fast. Yeah, it does. So yeah, you have yeah. to take it as allegorical. Yeah, yeah. It's, it, yeah you can't take it literal yeah. for sure. But um, but actually what was really happening was Earth was designed to be a living library. It was supposed to be a planet where they were taking genetics from all kinds of different stars systems and combining them into one planet to see what would happen you know so what would happen if we invite you know put in all these different genetics from this star system or that star system or whatever star system but what what, what people don't realize is actually the human race for a composite of 22 different star races you know at least at least i would say that usually i hear the, the the number 22 but it could be more than that um but these are beings that were visiting earth long before uh Atlantis and Lemuria. Atlantis and Lemuria was just another experiment, you know, mm-hmm. just, uh, so you had beings that were coming from Andromeda, beings that were coming from Sirius, beings that were coming from Arcturus, to the Pleiades, and all of them, they, because of their physicality was different, um, they, you know, they, they used their genetics to combine and, uh, create this huge, new composite human race. And so you had all kinds of different skin tones because because where these beings were come from, they came from very different uh, physical realities mm-hmm. and physical uh, physical environments, you know. So it would adapt certain colors oh, of skin yeah. to those environments. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So you know, so maybe you had red beings that came from Antares, or you had blue beings that came from Andromeda, or light blue skin that came from Sirius. You know, so so all of those are going to play a part in what humans ended up looking like uh i know with andromeda um, i'm going to use andromeda as an example here uh there were some beings from andromeda that looked very asian and andromeda had many colonies in southeast asia mm-hmm. so because andromedans tend to look more similar mm-hmm. that's why you see asian people that look very similar as opposed to say europeans that mm-hmm. have more diversity mm-hmm. so that could also play a part yeah i think i think so and i find that very rich and interesting in our history Absolutely. because that means it has a lot of kind of subtext psychologically in terms of the influences and the way cultures organize themselves on this planet Absolutely. and we're all very different in very in different parts of the world and so i mean some people i don't know why i kind of feel threatened by that notion but i find it absolutely fascinating and it makes us all the more interesting the species personally can i ask you a quick personal question yeah sure i mean not personal but Something you just touched on because people don't really talk about it. Antares. We haven't talked about it either. No. Can we just take a moment? Oh, yeah. It's for a reason because I read some documents and the author uses the name Antares and they're the most sublime things I've ever read. Mm -hmm. So tell us about Antares for a moment. Actually, Antares is a very important star system in our galaxy. It's actually located in the constellation of Scorpio and it's one of out of two major stargates that's in our, our galaxy, the other one being 
Arcturus. So a lot of times you hear of the Antares Arcturus Midway Station Mm -hmm. because these two uh, stargates play off each other. But what Antares was, as opposed to Arcturus, Antares was the point where the beings from Andromeda Galaxy, you know, the co-creator beings that started this whole experiment in our galaxy, came in through that stargate. So they're actually a portal between uh, Andromeda Galaxy and, and the Milky Way. So you had these higher, very high dimensional beings that um, came came through the Stargate. Now, Antares also has their own star rays. Um, they've since ascended, and they're very, very high dimensional, so I don't even think they're in physicality anymore. But those beings look like mantis beings. So oh, interesting. They were, they were more insectoid. Um, and they were considered to be the gatekeepers of the Stargate that I was mentioning. Um, and so these beings, because Antares is a red star system, they had kind of a reddish tone to them. And these beings were also visiting Earth, you know, in the beginning of Earth's history. So we have even some genetics here on Earth from um, Antares. Interesting. Now, we need to kind of go back, and because the Lyran story leads to the Jacos and Draconian story. Yeah, exactly. So let's go into that. Yeah into the Pleiades because we've got to get to, God, we've got, we have a lot to get to a lot of other places. Yeah. And we're also talking a little bit about the reptilian species, which is always a fascination. Let's start with the Draconian part of the story. Okay. Uh, so Lyra was a beautiful paradise uh, star system. They had beautiful paradise planets. They existed for thousands of years. They went through their own evolution. So a lot of people think that, oh, you know, Lyra was created and boom, they got destroyed by, by Draco, but it actually took thousands and thousands of years before they got to that point. The Draconians started getting interested in Lyra because they were looking for resources because they didn't have much resources in their particular star system of Draco. Draco was quite barren. And uh, they actually came, they're a race of beings that came from a different universe. So that's another thing people don't realize that they, they have existed for billions of years even before they came to the Milky Way. So they had really advanced technologies. I mean, they were even beyond, you know, the other beings here in this galaxy. So they saw Lyra and they said, wow, they got, they're really rich in resources. We're going to just, um, we're going to just take over that system, you know, and, uh, and they didn't have any regard because they were self-serving type of beings, um, for the most part. And I wouldn't say every single reptilian's bad. I think we're going to talk about that a little bit later, but, um, for example, for example, there was different caste systems within the reptilians so the drag the dragons were not as bad they were more neutral but then you had the warrior caste beings that were constantly in in a rivalry with the dragon beings so they wanted to be top tier Mm -hmm. and so they felt like hey if we start conquering all these different systems in this galaxy we're going to become the top tier beings uh we're going to be top dogs so uh, so they decided to start off with Lyra because Lyra was located right next door to Draco. It was very close. And they saw all these wonderful resources and thought, you know, well, we can sure use those resources. And so that's what started the Lyra-Draconian Wars. And this is what we, we've talked about before, touched yeah. on, and that is just because a species is technologically advanced does not mean they're spiritually developed. No. These are two different things, two different frequency bands, 
agendas, etc. Exactly. And oftentimes we confuse those. And people, especially humans, can be quite dazzled by the technological part of things. Oh yeah. Uh, and be swayed away from the spiritual aspect of ourselves. Well, that's what happened to the Larens. They saw all this technology that the Draconians had, and they were bamboozled, you know, by yeah. all the technology. They were, mm-hmm. you know, like thinking, wow, we could use some of that technology. Maybe become friends with these beings, which was a whole make friends. Yeah, they don't make friends. No, they don't. No, no. they don't make friends. But, uh, but they were, they were naive. They thought, you know, hey, you know, because they were not as developed as these Mm -hmm. beings. So they wanted to, they thought, you know, hey, if we have some sort of treaty with them, you know, we'll be able to share resources with each other. But that wasn't what the draconians wanted to do at all. They just wanted to take over. Uh, right. You know, it's interesting because <laughs> it just popped into my head that famous, um, that famous line in the Bible and the meek shall inherit the yeah. earth. And that people have looked at that so many different ways. But when you look at it galactically mm-hmm. and you look at the Lyrans, yeah. for example, and the Draconians, um, you start seeing it in a different light, which is a, a gentleness of spirit mm-hmm. or perhaps maybe a higher spiritual development which by nature tends to be more passive. Yeah, exactly. And so that that's kind of interesting it is, <laughs> as but, to what ends up happening. Yeah, right? but unfortunately the Draconians were from a different consciousness because they weren't even from our universe, you know. Yeah. So they they had a whole different perspective on things, mm-hmm. you know, than, say, the Larens or the other star races. So, mm-hmm. you know, that would have play. And sometimes that's, I think, a lesson that we all need to learn that, um, especially here on Earth, that not everybody is coming in with the same perspective or the same agendas. Exactly. You know, we're not all the same. And, uh. Um, we're learning different ranges of lessons. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. So that's the backdrop. Mm-hmm. And then we have the Pleiadians. I put down here trying to set, they ultimately try to separate themselves from the Lyran ancestors. So let's get into the Pleiadian story because a lot of people relate to Pleiadians. Oh yeah, people love Pleiadians. Pleiadians. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and all of Pleiadians. Yeah. And uh, why were they trying to separate from the Lyran trauma? Yeah, that's that's a great story. Um and I think uh Lissa Royale Holt alluded to this in her book, The Prism of Lyra, which is one of my favorite books, but um I I think what happened in the Pleiades was the Pleiades was located 500 light years away from Lyra. So the Lyrans that were escaping the system headed towards the Pleiades because they were trying to get as far away from Draco as possible. And this was a very far off star system. Even when you look at the night sky and you see the Pleiades, I mean, they look far away. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're, I mean, you see like a little, you can see it with the naked eye, yes. but it's not that bright. But, um, but they were heading to the Pleiades, so that by the time they got there, they had gone through a lot of trauma, okay? I mean, it was not an easy trip. I mean, it took years to get to the Pleiades. So I think they were so traumatized that they wanted just to start over. They wanted to reinvent themselves. You know, they just wanted to have a new identity. And so they called themselves Pleiadians. They created a whole new civilization, they didn't want to be attached to their Laren ancestor trauma anymore. And so they started looking very much into love and light. It was all about the positive. And this is, I think, the cautionary tale of how sometimes even looking at love and light, you know, which leads to spiritual bypassing when you, when you're only looking at the light and not at the dark aspects mm-hmm. of life. 
that can also be just as damaging as only looking at the dark. Mm -hmm. And so the Pleiadians had gotten so Pollyanna-ish with their approach to life that (laughs) it really hurt them. And they too fell into, you know, I think some some inner psyche work where they had to look at look at the dark aspects of themselves um, in order to survive as a civilization. Because otherwise, um, how can you live in a, a physical reality if you're only looking at light aspects and not at dark? Um, because we live in a, you know, a duality type of situation, usually in most in, in this particular universe. You know, we're all we're free will. This is a free will universe. Well, the Earth is living in a dimension between the light and dark. And yeah. depending on where you are personally, yeah. you can resonate with either side at any given on any given day. Even. As, exactly. And the yeah. same thing. I mean, the, a, a lot of people don't realize that the Pleiadians went through their own evolution, you know, so they went through a similar evolution that we did here on Earth. So they had to go through all the same lessons. So that's why now they're showing up here on Earth as our teachers and guides, because they've gone through all this already. But these beings were, um, I think, just I think they were just so traumatized that, uh, you know, from the wars, you know, their ancestors have gone through a lot of trauma. And then we even see now with Pleiadians where and Pleiadian starseeds that even they, they carry some of the trauma signatures in their own DNA. So if they're in situations even here on Earth, let's say you're a Pleiadian starseed, uh, you're going to have some physical issues that might pop up if you're not taking good care of yourself, if you're not on the right track with uh, maybe if you're undergoing a lot of stress or a lot of trauma, those same old wiring trauma signatures are going to show up. So have you found when you're working with people, depending on the hybrid type they are, yeah. that there are particular types of ailments that certain hybrid types carry? Oh, absolutely. Oh, really? So, so if what would a Pleiadian pattern of well unwellness or or uh, ill health be? Oh, that would that's we can go um, we can go into a lot of deep deep stuff with that. But um, what I see a lot with Pleiadian um, influenced, uh, I said humans, is that. <laughs> A lot of them, when they undergo a lot of stress or they go through trauma in their life, they they tend to have blood sugar issues. So mm-hmm. I see a lot of Pleiadian star seeds and a lot of Pleiadian people that struggle with hypoglycemia or or prediabetes or diabetes mm-hmm. um, because Pleiadians are very empathic people. Um, they pick up on other people's energies. And so... When they're not feeling really good, um, reach they, for sugar, reach for sugar, mm-hmm. yeah. right? To sweeten the thing, everything back up. up. Yeah. You know, and we have chemical cascades in our bodies that go with it, but you're saying that's part of their nature is to try to balance it with something sweet. We, yeah. Going exactly. back to what they remember. They remember because the yeah. Pleiades was such a high dimensional star system that mm-hmm. everything was perfect there. You know, it was, mm-hmm. you know, that's at least that's what they evolved to. Um, right. On a mental level, you see a lot of Pleiadians that fall into, or a lot of Pleiadian starseeds that fall into uh, codependent relationships because they always see the best in people. Right. <laughs> they always right. love. They always. Optimist. Yeah, they're always like, "Oh, I see the potential in that person. I just want to. If I just love them enough, they're going to become great people." And so right. they fall into these really unhealthy relationships until they get well integrated themselves, right. and then they. Then they figure it out. Yeah. Well, continuing on that, we go to George Washington. Uh, it said that he communicated with Pleiadians. Yeah. They gave him some visions 
for the future. Absolutely. But we're going to go into John Adams as well and the American flag. So take it away. Okay. Oh, yeah. I love this story. Um, I love that our country, the United States, was so influenced by extraterrestrials <laughs> that there was a reason why the United States was created was to create this democratic, you know, a free uh, country in, on our planet to be a model for other countries. Uh, so I just love this story. But um, George Washington actually received visions, and he actually was visited by Pleiadian beings. A lot of people don't realize that. But the whole concept of our Declaration of Independence and our Bill of Rights actually were, was downloaded from the Pleiadians because these were systems that they were using in their own their own, you know, civilization. Of well-structured societies that have been refined to the point where those principles actually work. Work. Because the consciousness of the people was there. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So that's what I find so exciting about the story is that um, our United States was actually influenced by these beautiful beings, you know, from the Pleiades and from maybe from even other systems. But the, the, the kind of cute story I want to tell about John Adams and the American flag has to do with the way the American flag was designed. Um, a lot of people think that the 13 stars represented the 13 colonies in the original American flag. Actually, that couldn't be further from the truth. Uh, my understanding is that John Adams put 13 stars because it represented the 13 stars within the Lyran system, which was the home of human consciousness. So and we have to remember a lot of these fellows were kind of Freemasons of their day. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So these, so John Adams and, you know, the other founding fathers of our country, they, they knew star systems, you know, they understood occult science. Yeah, yeah exactly. So they knew that certain star systems carried certain energies and they wanted to represent these energies within um, the founding of our country. So the 13 stars actually represents the constellation of Lyra. And uh, I think uh, that's how it started. And then as we added, of course, more more states, you know, the, 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 the flag is expanded. But even the colors, I think, represent certain star systems. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah. I find that fascinating. I'm wondering, and maybe somebody in the audience can write us and tell um, how they may have been influenced by the work of Francis Bacon mm-hmm. um, because of his deep occult knowledge and understanding and his writing of the book, you know, America, the new Atlantis. Yeah. So I'm guessing that there must have been, he must have also had some of that knowledge woven into Absolutely. his education. Absolutely. Esoteric education. Yeah. Okay, let's go on to Syria, uh, the Syrian colonization yeah. and the Syrian beings because here we're talking about technology coming back into the picture again. Yeah. But also they were highly influential in the Egyptian uh, chapter of our human history. So let's go Mm -hmm. for it. Yeah. So um, Sirius, because it's located so close to Earth, so Sirius, at least Sirius A, is only about eight light years from Earth. So that's relatively close. I think the only star system that's closer is probably Alpha Centauri, which is 3.7 light years away. Mm -hmm. But um, but Sirius is pretty close. And so – the Syrian beings, which comprised of many different types of beings. So it wasn't just humanoids that were on Sirius. They had cat beings. They had fish people. They had reptilians. I mean, they had elemental beings. I mean, they had bird beings. I mean, there was a, there was quite a bit of diversity in Sirius. Uh, cause Sirius, I think after the Lyra Draconian Wars, 
all of these beings were escaping the wars. And even reptilians were escaping the wars, you know, Mm -hmm. so they all kind of converged in Sirius. So Sirius had a lot of diversity. And so you get all these different types of beings that come together in one star system or even just, you know, three different star systems because there's Sirius A, B, and C. And that's going to create, I think, a lot of evolution within their society. Mm-hmm. You know, so they became very technologically advanced. And Sirius, my understanding with the what I see in the Rakashic records is they were very focused in technology because they didn't want to go through a lot, another Lyran situation. They knew that, you know, in order for them to survive as physical beings, they had to have that higher level technology. So their big focus was on technology for, I would say, generations until they started becoming more esoteric and spiritual. And then they developed the Syrian mystery schools and that's a whole other story. But, um, but the Syrians were visiting Earth during this time because they had starships and they were curious and they were beings that knowledge meant a lot to them, you know, collecting information. Mm-hmm. And so they were visiting Earth quite a bit and they colonized Earth. Um, so Earth is heavily influenced from Sirius from the beginning, but especially in certain civilizations like Atlantis and Lemuria and even Egypt, especially Egypt. And what what were there? Was there a dominance of one of the races there that was coming to Earth? I mean, was it mostly reptilians, or was it? I would say it was a combination. A of combination all. of all of them. Again, back to the story of Atlantis of all these different colors of skin. Yeah, I think I think people. it was like. I mean, there was reptilians showing up, yeah. you know, there was humanoids, there was, you know, the, the normal people were visiting the Africa. Aquatic people. Yeah, yeah. aquatic people, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the normal people are the aquatic beings that are amphibian, you know, they kind of look like mermaids or a lot of people refer to them as mermaids, but they're not really mermaids, they're they're like half fish, half human. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they were visiting Africa and they had a big influence on the the Dogon people. Mm-hmm. Yes, with who they, that's kind of well known that their orientation is towards Sirius. Sirius, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, um, so we see a lot of um, a lot of, I would say, a lot of our uh, societal structures came from Sirius. Mm-hmm. A lot of our knowledge about medicine, a lot of our knowledge about healing, all came from Sirius. And um, language, I think, came from the Pleiades. So a lot of our language, which was based on Tamal, which is a Pleiadian language, came from the Pleiades. But pretty much all the other societal structures that we have on this planet today came from Sirius. They had a big influence on Egypt. Um, There was many Syrian beings that were specifically interested in Egypt because Egypt was the converging point after the fall of Atlantis and Lemuria. Mm-hmm. So Egypt was considered to be the next great hope. You know, mm-hmm. they wanted to bring both the masculine and feminine energies in. And Sirius being a more feminine star system brought in that more feminine energy, whereas uh, Orion was more the masculine energy. Yes, and you see that throughout the the depictions of the gods, heavily female and male. Exactly. Side by side, starting with the origin story with Osiris and Isis. Absolutely. So it and that did so that did happen. You started getting that merging of the masculine and feminine, which oddly of course was wiped out not long after that and reverted to patriarchy again. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And uh, under whichever influences. Yeah. So 
one of the species you were talking about, the, the Pleiadians being here as guides for humanity mm-hmm. now, and the Syrians have inculcated much of their culture into our cultures. Yeah. But also we hear a lot about the Arcturians. Mm-hmm. And these beings also, many people talk about having Arcturian guides. Oh, yeah. So let's talk about that, and let's talk about their Stargate and what happened in the interface with the Draconians? Oh, absolutely. It's a story that a lot of people don't know about. It was one that, I mean, I don't think I've read it anywhere. I actually saw it in the Akashic Records. So um, um, my, myself being an Arcturian star seed myself, uh, so I identify with Arcturus. I think I've been in many other systems, but mm-hmm. that's the system. That might be the one you're most recently with. Yeah. Okay, a lot of people, that's one thing I do want to say. When you're reading people and when other people are saying, oh, they sure look like a Pleiadian to me, many people, many of us have been through many star systems. This is just the latest iteration. And we've picked up things of each of them along the way. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And that's something that I think people don't realize Mm -hmm. is that, you know, they come to me for readings and they think, oh, I'm going to tell them, oh, you're definitely Pleiadian. You're definitely Lyran. And then I'm like, oh, you've been this dark, this, 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 this star system. They're like, really? I've been in all of those? I said, oh, yeah, that's not even... That's like us scratching the surface. You know? yeah. So, so, yeah. um, so let's talk about the Arcturians. The Arcturians. Yeah, let's get into the Arcturians. Uh, so the Arcturians, remember when I was talking before about Antares and Arcturus being mm-hmm. the two major stargates? So Arcturus is the other stargate, other major stargate. And Arcturus represents the masculine energy of, of the integration from the etheric realm into the physical. So it was a stargate that processed souls in between death and life. Okay, so when a soul passes on, they have to go somewhere to get processed before to get ready for their next incarnation. And so Arcturus uh, was a different consciousness that was developed in during the development of this galaxy in order to be the guardians of this galaxy. So they they had to have that. I guess, outward perspective, because they they were the ones that were kind of, I guess, uh, refereeing the whole experiment. Mm-hmm. And so Arcturians, uh, because they had this different consciousness, evolved very rapidly. And so they had uh, advanced technologies from very early on. They were very advanced spiritually as well um, in order to help guide all these other star systems. But what a lot of people don't realize is that Arcturus, too, because it was located so close to Draco, also was attacked by Draco. Those darn Draconians, I know. They're just, they're just a bunch of troublemakers and bullies. But they wanted to take over the Stargate because they wanted to have control of the souls. Okay. Yeah. So they wanted to have to control, you know, they wanted to be able to dictate, you know, maybe use the souls as... As, as slaves, I don't know, but. So the Arcturians had to do battle with them as well? Well, oh yeah, oh yeah. yeah. I mean, okay, so looking at this, Arcturians, we have to look at the dimensionality of people too, mm-hmm. because yeah. this is all playing out in multi-dimensions. Oh, absolutely. In addition to the rest of the kind of mess. And so the Arcturians, no, this is just what I've heard people say, and I've read a couple books about people who've written about their Arcturian guides, and they always seem to say they're very tall and they're blue. Mm-hmm. Blue. Is that, have you experienced a similar thing in seeing them? Or um, I think Arcturians can come in different heights. Mm-hmm. I, I think sometimes they're the, one of the few star races that can actually, I think, transcend dimensions within. Mm-hmm. I mean, they can go from, you know, ninth dimension to fifth dimension. So it depends on 
what dimensionality you're seeing them in. So there are some Arcturians that look kind of small, you know, Mm -hmm. because they're pulling their vibration down. Mm -hmm. But then as they get uh, higher dimensional, they get much taller. Mm -hmm. And and they do tend to have kind of bluish greenish skin. Right. You know, so uh, they usually have the three fingers and they have the large eyes with the the pupil and the irises. But Mm -hmm. so they don't look anything like uh, like gray aliens. Um, Right. You know, so. I I didn't want to pull you off on that one, but I want the multidimensional part is interesting because another fallacy in our thinking. Yeah. Humans think very hierarchically. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so we think if something is of a higher dimensional field, meaning less density for the most part, that it's higher in consciousness. That is not necessarily true. No, not at all. And and so we have to stop thinking, oh, you know, they're six dimensional, six dimensional and what? And what level of consciousness? Exactly. A completely different thing. So here you're talking about the Arcturans that are working in between these higher dimensions, but so are the Draconians. Oh, yeah. And so are the Reptilians working at these higher dimensions of density, but not necessarily on a par um, in terms of spiritual development again. Oh, not at all. Um, so you have draconians that li- also are in sixth density, but they're oriented towards dark. Mm-hmm. And the dark is not always evil. You know, mm-hmm. the dark is just the dark, you know, so they have, a, like I said, a different perspective on things. But um, the Arcturians, when they were going through that whole Stargate uh, attacks, uh, it really affected their psyche, you know, where I think they struggled with, negative thinking they they struggled with um with you know this feudalistic attitude of you know maybe we're not going to survive this maybe we're going to lose everything um because they saw what happened to to lyra and so um fortunately for the arturians they had um i would say advanced enough technology that they were easily able to withstand the draconian attacks Mm -hmm. but it still affected them so you see this a lot with arturian starseeds where we could fall into negative thinking or we could fall into maybe this feudalistic attitude of oh i'm just going to give up because you know things are not working to Mm -hmm. my favor Mm-hmm. Yeah. So fatalism. Yeah, exactly. Fatalism would be a hallmark. But the ones who are able to kind of keep the energy and the spirit up are serving humanity today. Oh, yeah. You and get a lot of beautiful Arcturian starseeds and Arcturian beings that are acting as guides for people that are really having an influence on planet Earth, you know, a positive influence. Because Any kind of particular trajectory or the kind of thing they work with uh, in particular, or is it more individual? Um, I would say Arcturians tend to lead towards, uh, they tend to be spiritual guides, teachers, mm-hmm. and healers. Mm-hmm. So, um, and they tend to be more psycho-spiritually oriented in healing as opposed to, uh, as opposed to physical healing, which is, was the Syrian hallmark, you know, so the Syrians were, you know, really into physical healing. Mm-hmm. So you get a lot of folks that are maybe Syrian starseeds that decide to go into medicine mm-hmm. because that's what they're used to, but with with the Arcturian beings and Arcturian star seeds, we're more oriented towards the psycho spiritual because uh, we tend to be natural psychologists. I don't mm-hmm. know. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Good. That, yeah. That's, yeah. So we can start looking for these things in each other. Oh, absolutely. You know, it's, fun. Yeah. it's fun. Yeah, you know? it is fun. Yeah. It's not just a party trick, but yeah. it's fun. Okay. It is fun. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So let's go to Orion because so many oh, millions okay. of years and wars and so many of our ancient uh, and even megalithic sites are ordered toward Orion, you know, situated to recognize Orion. So let's talk about Orion. Let's talk about, let's get in a little bit more to the reptilian story. We don't know. We've gone 
through so much stuff and we've still barely scratched the surface. I know. But we only have a little time left. So let's go. Yeah, let's go for okay. Orion. Um, yeah. I, I personally love Orion because, uh, I remember when I was watching the whole Star Wars movies and the saga of Star Wars, uh, the first thing that came to my mind was, oh my God, this looks like Orion. This reminds me of Orion. Uh, so I always kind of jokingly uh, refer to Orion a lot being a lot like the cantina scene from the original yeah. Star Wars. <laughs> so, so it's kind of like my own personal joke, but, but it was a lot like that. Orion was probably the most diverse star system in our galaxy as far as the different types of beings because it was such a huge constellation. It, it's huge. I mean, it's a big constellation. It has a lot of stars. But so you had beings that were inhabiting these different star systems within the Orion system that came from Draco or came from Zeta Reticuli or came from Procyon or uh, or Lyra um, and Vega. Um, I would say uh, probably more of a Vega influence on on Orion as far as humanoids, but there was insectoid beings that also lived in Orion. So so you had this like melting pot of all these different races and so there was constant wars and turf battles over Orion. Uh so you had kind of the draconians and the 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 tall greys and the short greys, the small greys that influenced most of the outlier stars in the Orion constellation. And then you had the belt stars. So you had the belt stars that was mostly maybe humanoid oriented. So you had most, so they were more the freedom fighters. They were more like what I call the good zone. Then you had the empire zone. So these, these two factions were constantly in battle with each other. Um, and of course, uh, because Orion was, you know, definitely a duality consciousness type of star system, this occurred for millions and millions of years. Orion didn't get shifted into the light until fairly recently. I would say fairly recently in our history, but and it's kind of hard to quantify when that happened because in the higher dimensional realms there is no linear time, so right. sometimes it's hard to yeah, you know, kind of time quantify. is tricky. Yeah, kind of quantify that, but um, but the influence they had on Earth was that the Orion beings uh, were also visiting Earth. You know, they were also looking for colonization opportunities, mm-hmm. and Earth was quite inhabitable. It was it's kind of a jewel in our star system. Mm-hmm. You know, it's very unlike most planets out there. So, so they were also looking for opportunities on 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 uh, on Earth, and uh, these beings uh, also had their influences on the Atlantean. You know, civilization. They had a big influence in Egypt and even in some of the Middle Eastern cultures. You know, the Mesopotamia and you know the Sumerians. You know, so you see a lot of Orion influence in those those cultures. But it seems, from what I've heard you say before, that the reptilians were one of the groups that came here from Orion and really did did their number wreaked havoc havoc with humanity, and they also colonized all over the Earth. Um, so their influence is kind of everywhere. But the one thing that's fascinating about the reptilians is that they're said to be master geneticists. Mm-hmm. And then if you hear the stories out on the internet and, and mm-hmm. you know, today, you're going to still hear that probably as the most referred to species in terms of what's going on in our world from top down control, hidden influence and so forth. Fingers always end up pointing at the reptilians. Oh, absolutely. Um, I think, you know, as far as my understanding with Earth's history is that the reptilians came here early. I mean, they, I mean, because they were always looking for 
resources. Okay, so there, you know, so you know, Earth is another one of those planets that has a lot of resources. So, uh, so they were looking to colonize Earth very early on, maybe around the same time as the Syrians, if not before. But, um, but they were also wanting to tinker with genetics, and so. Um, so a lot of dinosaurs, you see dinosaurs, uh, they were an offshoot of reptilian genetics, you know, so they were trying to see what would happen if we take our genetics and create these big massive mm-hmm. beings, you know, and that populated the planet. And then they got wiped out. And so then they started tinkering with human genetics. So what happens if we insert our own genetics into these human beings and see what happens? And And so you hear a lot of stories about the Anunnaki and how, you know, they tinkered with our genetics yes. and our genetics went from 12 strand to two strand, which is currently still two strand. But um, so, so these beings uh, were also, I think, trying to escape Orion at a certain point because Orion was shifting to unity consciousness and they wanted to keep their control and power over at least some sort of star system. So go to more naive planet, planet. and tinker. Yeah. Tinker mm-hmm. around with that. Right? Yeah. So so they came to Earth and started having an influence on the Atlantean culture, you know. So they, they so they kind of infiltrated, you know, some of the because uh, Atlantis was very spiritual in the beginning, but then they became more and more corrupted as time. Yeah, people on. don't understand the length of the history of Atlantis. This is you're talking at least a half a million years. Oh it's yeah, not it was this, a long time. The period of time that they refer to with. From Plato's renderings, which was just before the final deluge and fall, yeah. that was just the telltale end of what was a magnificent Atlantean culture that was, it, apparently, it was sinking and breaking off from the north down to the south, and yeah. that was the remnant of it. Yeah, exactly. So what you're talking about was in the earlier days. In the earlier days. So we have very little time left, so let's look at how these, we've talked a little bit about each of these, these beings mm-hmm. as guides and how they're affecting us mm-hmm. and working with us as personal guides. Yeah. But then how the reptilians might still be working with us as well. And I look at that and think of things like master geneticists. One of the things that's coming to the fore because of everything that happened with COVID mm-hmm. and, um, vaccinations versus drugs and so forth is the notion of manipulation of the DNA through pharmaceuticals even. Absolutely. So might this manipulation still be going on today in a more subtle form? My understanding with some of the, I would say some of the medical agendas, you know, the, the not so, I guess, benevolent medical agendas is that they're trying to retrofit the planet to fit a more, uh, reptilian type of mentality mentality or 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 physicality yeah okay so they're trying they're, they may be even trying to wipe out certain other star systems like Laren genetics or pleiadian genetics or or even you know some of the humanoid syrian genetics mm-hmm. you know so um so you might um so my i mean this is something i hope to talk about at some point but my or do some research around but i'm kind of curious to know like, well, how how are some of these uh, pharmaceuticals are adversely affecting people from other star systems that have genetics from other star systems? Interesting. Yeah. Because we're all different in that we each have our own signature, exactly. just like our own thumbprint. You know, we have to maybe just end with a final comment here. We have help of all kinds. We have our higher selves. We have our guides from all kinds of um, star systems that are here really trying to help humanity remember who we are on a spiritual level and not to be so dazzled by the technology. Any final comments on what our true choice is now, even though we're still part of this cosmos, 
we're still being visited and we're still being influenced. Yeah, no, that's a great, great segue into some closing thoughts. But um, I, I think we're always going to be dealing with technology. We, do, I mean, technology is equally as important because mm-hmm. we need to have that technology in order to become part of the greater galactic family. Right. But just to even travel. Travel, yeah. exactly. Yeah. So I think that's always going to be in the forefront. But I think the, the cautionary tale that we've learned from all these other star systems is that you always have to have the spirituality integrated in, into it in order to have um, a higher level society, you know, in order to be able to keep that balance. Because if you have too much technology, we learned the lesson of the Atlanteans, you know, that, you know, their, their civilization fell, you know, because they were advancing more technologically and not so much spiritually anymore. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and then you have star systems like Lyra that had, you know, beautiful spirituality, but they didn't have the technology and they fell as well. So I think we need, they need to go hand in hand. And I think the Pleiadians did it right. You know, I think they are one of the few star systems that, and, you know, Arcturians and Syrians as well, where they did have that balance, you know, where, you know, they, they were very interested in developing spiritually and connecting with the higher realms. So I think that's the, that's the journey that we're going to be seeing more and more in the future. I love that. Thank you for wrapping it up so nicely. And then we're sitting right there. We can choose right now. We as a species get to choose what the direction is going to be if we stand up and are heard. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. No, I think, uh, I'm seeing more just influences of, I think even within, you know, my clients and people that come to me for readings or for consultations that I I think a lot of us are getting more and more interested in spirituality and how, Mm -hmm. how, how we're connected with that. So I have a lot of hope for the future. I, 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 I do too. Yeah, I think it's going to be a. I think we're going to we're going to see a golden age. Yeah, we're going through that bumpy patch right now. Yeah. We've been through a lot of them. Yeah. Thank you so much. Thank Kevin. you for and having saying, me. Thank, and, and also, I love uh, the artwork and the kind of glossary you have on your website, yeah. so people can go through just very quickly, just like all these little how to do this in five steps, yeah, you know, or questionnaires and all that. Right. Is there any way without having a reading, because you're way booked out, yeah. uh, that people can get a glimpse into who they are? Are there any tools for that? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> they can go to my website, which okay. has that beautiful galactic history section. Yes, it's gorgeous. And uh, they can also go on my my YouTube channel. There's a lot of samples of different people's readings, but a lot of times people love to listen to those yeah. because they get insights into themselves, even though it might not be personally their reading, but... Excellent. Um, yeah. So they get little, little, uh, little tidbits of information through that as well. Perfect. Yeah. Very good. Thank yeah. you so much. Sarah. Thank you for Until having me. Until next time. Then we'll finish the rest of this one. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We'll just uh, keep it. We'll just keep going on with the story. Yeah. To learn more about Debbie and her work, you can go to DebbieSolaris.com. You might also want to watch my previous interview with her here in Gaia in the archives to find out more about her background and how all this came about. Until next time, thank you for joining us here on Open Minds. Oh, that was fascinating. Um, just a short little story that uh, segment was telling us about that the crystal people from Andromeda, they came to Sirius B. And um, so that's a very particular story because... Um, they are being consulted on uh, landing party missions from uh, 
United States, uh, as, uh, in particular Obama went there. Uh, he, uh, ever since he was even a senator in, uh, Illinois, he was traveling, uh, too serious. And, uh, then during his presidency, he was consulting with the Council of Nine. Uh, that was on Sirius A, but the Chrysaline people would come there too, uh, representing the, uh, special connection that the Andromedans had with our Milky Way galaxy. So, um, a whole nother weaving of intergalactic assistance in our journey. So there we go. Um, so wisdom from the afterlife. This is Beyond Belief with George Nury and Richard Martini. What an interesting last name. How can misunderstandings of the afterlife help us navigate existence? Returning to Beyond Belief to discuss his his documentation of past life regression hypnosis, quote, Hacking the Afterlife, filmmaker Richard Martini offers details of his communications through a psychic medium with those on the flip side of life. Sharing anecdotes about actors, musicians, and historical figures. He has encountered my, Mar, Mar, he has encountered Martini describes how anyone can communicate and connect with those who have moved on to the afterlife. Okay, this is 40 minutes and we're going to get started now. Here we go, everybody. fear when we realize that life goes on. We tend to lose the phobias that that we've had for who knows how many lifetimes. Imagine how shocking it was to find his name as the gunner on Lady Bell. The pilot of that plane survived, went to a prisoner of war camp, and he passed away just a couple of years ago. I'm sorry to say. You can't make that stuff up. You can't make that up. Welcome to this edition of Beyond Belief. Richard Martini with us, a best-selling author on books about the afterlife, or what he calls the flip side. He has three films on Gaia, flip side, a journey into the afterlife, talking to Bill Paxton. He was the actor and hacking the afterlife. So welcome back, Mr. Martini. George, I'm so glad to be here. You are always in demand. That's good to see you, my friend. How have you been? <laughs> I've been fantastic, really. I had a hip replaced, but, you know, other than that, I'm just fine. At least you weren't on the flip side. That's true, because, you know, you always wonder, like, when they put you under, are you going to come back? Are you going to come back? It's, yeah. it's a weird feeling. Because, you know, it's very hard to write books from the flip side, but it is fun to reach out to your friends and loved ones from there. How did they put you under? IV? Yeah, they put you on an IV, and I was the uh, anesthesiologist 
physiologist was talking to me. So, Rich, you know, in a few minutes you're going to feel, and then he was doing that, you know, with his hand, and I suddenly was gone. And then I, next thing I knew, his hand was doing this and going. So that was a three-hour operation. Just like that. Just like that. Were you in much pain afterwards, healing-wise? Healing-wise, you do go through stuff, but it's a lot not different. A hip is much easier than knee. Can I have you run around our studio? <laughs> Please stop. Hacking the afterlife, premiering on Gaia. Tell me about this. Well, you know, it's interesting. Um, the first film that I had on Gaia is called Flipside, and it was based on, you know, the research that I've been doing. And it was nine years ago today that I was first on Coast That's right. So happy anniversary to us. Perfect. And so, but as time went on, people would ask me, like, what have you been doing? So I continued to film people under deep hypnosis. I I continued to film mediums talking about the afterlife, and I continued to film people who, through meditation, could access near-death experiences, vivid dreams, talking to their loved ones with no hypnosis. On the flip side. On the flip side, but confirming who they were just by giving them new information. And I've been filming that, so I thought, you know, I should try to put something together. So it really is an amalgamation of the past 10 years of me filming people doing this stuff and and learning new things about the afterlife. It's mind-bending. One of my friends, Howard Schultz, is uh, not the coffee guy, but he was the guy who created Extreme Makeover, good close friend, who passed away subsequently after we filmed his past life regression. And uh, he used to show this past life regression to everybody who came come into his office because he remembered a lifetime where he was a young girl taken out of Denmark uh, and put in Dachau. He remembers this? He remembers. Well, under hypnosis. Under hypnotherapy? Yeah. yeah. And so uh, Michael Newton's method, um, Scott Tatamba was the hypnotherapist. But on camera, live, he's recalling this lifetime in Dachau. I was able to find all the details and confirm what he was saying. But it was fascinating to hear him talk about the choice of that lifetime and why he chose that particular dark lifetime. As he said, I'd had so many lifetimes in the light, I'd forgotten how dark it could be. And then he said, right. But he said it, it scorched my soul. And so it was like, and very unusual, and it's on camera in the film where the hypnotherapist says, is there any way we can help you with the memory of this, the scorched memory? And he said, my guides are walking me into the river of souls, and it's washing away all of my pain from that experience. Now, I've never heard of something like that. I'm literally across the room filming. But what Howard is saying, and what others say in the film, is consistent with all of the other research I've done. Tell me about the title, Hacking the Afterlife. Well, it's not so much, I mean, it sounds like a pretty violent, but, you know, the idea of hacking hacking life tips, hacking things around the kitchen, which is kind of a, a modern term for looking at something through new eyes. So my thought was, by calling it that, by accessing, and what's the point of accessing the afterlife? It's to learn how to navigate the planet. We we tend to lose fear when we realize that life goes on. We tend to lose the phobias that we've, we've had for who knows how many lifetimes. When we access that, and sometimes you can, well, for example, there's a woman with Parkinson's, a professor from USC that was a friend of mine, and she agreed to appear on camera. Very serious case of Parkinson's, could barely sit still. And on camera, you see, See, as, as she is, her talking, movements and stuff. they all disappear under hypnosis. 
And she starts speaking clearly. Wow. And she starts talking about her life and her, her journey. And she accesses why she got Parkinson's. She accesses how she could be healed from Parkinson's. And then as he talks her back and counts her down from whatever that number is, and then when she gets back to one, everything comes back. So it's an unusual exploration into the mind, into accessing consciousness. Interesting. Interesting. You should do that with Michael J. Fox. <laughs> well, of course, when I filmed it, the first thing I did was write a letter to his organization. It's very hard to hear from a – I'm a filmmaker. Yes. It's very hard to hear from some guy who's so, a filmmaker. Who's a filmmaker. And I, you know, I've written, I've written a director practitioner. Like, I mean, I've had like nine feature films, and I, you know, I have the Director's Guild, et cetera, et cetera. But I'm not a doctor, and I'm not a scientist, but I am an observer. And I am a documenter, and so I'm. I can show him on camera. This happened. The difference. Yeah. Yes, and my feeling about that is, if if I had that affliction, I would do a hypnosis session every day, every morning. Me I would too. have somebody come over Me too. and just say, "Look, for the whole duration of today's thing, you're not going to shake. You're just going to talk normally, and you're going to take your time doing it." Now, I don't know why that works. I don't. Think it's, it's I don't it's not psychosomatic, but but it does work, and I've seen it, and it's on camera, and that's why it's in the film. There's a moment in your film, Hacking the Afterlife. Josh Davidall describes feeling his consciousness outside of his body. Was here's my consciousness, and and then and I was just kind of like, wow, what's going on? What's the story? Because that was I was so used to hearing that voice. Yeah. And then I looked down, and that was and that was probably the next thing I saw. So the first. The thing I saw was sort of the landscape and the, the, the amazing scape of, of yeah. the top from it. But then I looked down and saw my body. And I and what I immediately remember thinking is seeing your dead body and, and immediately going into the habituated thought of going, Jesus, that's bad. But if the second I did that, there was another part of me that went, hang on a minute, that's not bad. <laughs> that's not, it's not anything. It's just, it, that's your body. I. I'm still me, and I hear my voice, and I'm, I'm, you know, cracking wise in my head. But I don't have that body. What else don't I? And, and then I started going through this life checklist, and I, I don't have guilt, and I don't have shame, no. and I don't have pain, and I don't have history, and I don't have all of these things. I really owned as a physical. Were you there when he had that? I, I was there when it happened, but I did. I wasn't aware of it because we were both walking around Mount Kailash with Robert Thurman and a tour group. And it wasn't until recently that I was talking to Josh and he said, yeah, I had a near death experience when we were in Tibet and on Mount Kailash. And I said, well, why don't I film you talking about it? Knowing that I have this kind of odd technique where I ask people to access a memory, a near death event, and I walk them back into the event to see what they can remember. And in this case, I had never heard from him what his story was, and he tells it live on camera where suddenly he's gone to the ground and he's floating above and he's looking down at his body and he's becoming aware of all of these things. Yeah, he's he's pretty glee about the thing, isn't he? Well, he's a pretty glee guy. He's an editor who went to NYU Film School and he cut the film uh, flip side for me. But, you know, what's really fascinating about Josh is a little further on in the film, I ask him, have you ever had any other lifetimes that you can remember again he's not under hypnosis we're on zoom 
clearly, right. just chatting. And he said, yeah, um, um, and I asked him to just pop whatever pops into your mind. And he suddenly said, okay, I'm seeing myself in World War II in a bomber. Uh, and I said, what's your occupation in the bomber? And he said, Gunner. And I said, and what's your name? He said the guy's name. And I said, and what's the name of the, the plane? Because, you know, every plane that flew in World War II, uh, not only has a name, but a manifest. Yeah. And somebody has recorded them. So he says, Lady Bell. And I, my, of course, jaded Hollywood guy, I go, you mean Memphis Bell? Thinking he must have seen the movie. And he's putting this in. Because I, I can't, I can't be less jaded than I am. But, but no, he said, no, Lady Bell, Lady Bell. And, and so I looked it up and I imagine how shocking it you was it? to find his name as the gunner on Lady Bell. That was not the plane he died in, but he flew in Lady Bell. I don't know how many missions, but eventually he then transfers to another plane. And in that plane, he's shot down over Germany. The pilot of that plane survived, went to a prisoner of war camp, and he passed away just a couple of years ago. I'm sorry to say. You can't make that stuff up. You can't make that up. And it's live on camera. So, you you know, people would – some, you know, people try to – uh Parts it or pretzel logic it to a point where they say, well, this can't possibly be. He must be reading his mind. But Josh, literally on camera, the glib guy that he is, suddenly recalls this event. And it turns out to be absolutely accurate. Tell me about Jennifer Schaefer. Well, so I get an, e- I get an email from a Facebook account. Somebody wants to be my friend. <laughs> you know, you get everybody those. Wants everybody, and so you get those. And I, I, I looked at her photograph, and I thought, oh, what is this? But I said yes. And, and then she said, she texted me a photograph of her saying, he said yes. She's a medium. She had been a stockbroker, but she started becoming aware of people's deaths, people around her, people who would come to visit her. She started working with the Colorado Bureau of Investigation, members of the Federal Bureau of Investigation, in uh, missing person cases. So she does that nationwide. She does that pro bono. And somewhere along the line, people started seeing her because she's so, she's like having a cell phone to the flip side. Right. So, right. and when when she first contacted me, I thought, I I don't know what a psychic medium is, but I realized that a psychic predicts the future. A medium is like a cell phone to the, the other side. side. Yeah. And so what I did was about six years ago, I said, well, why don't, why don't we just see, well, I said, you know, you do missing person cases. Well, let, maybe we can talk about Amelia Earhart because, as you know, I remember that I had spent that. like decades like researching her, and, and I didn't even tell her Amelia. I just said I'm going to look for the most famous missing person. So I spent three hours in her office. She knew as much about Amelia Earhart as I did, and from that point forward, I realized, oh my gosh, a great medium is like a cell phone to the other side. So for six years, every week we get together. And film an hour of me asking questions to somebody on the other side. Could be a friend of mine, could be a friend of hers, could be somebody who passed away in the news the week before. And then because of the COVID, we decided to put that online. And so we've been doing that for a year now. And you do it through a podcast as well. Hackingtheafterlife.com. Let's look. Just to clarify what for people tuning in for the first time or the 500th time, this is a person that uh, Jennifer and I have talked to before, that I personally have talked to via other people before, who is not somebody who incarnates and not somebody who has 
ever, let's ask him, have you ever in Kyber been on the planet? No. No. And, and you also described yourself, and this is a self-description, not coming from me and not from Jennifer, but as somebody who was the librarian. Mm-hmm. And in. Can I share with you what he's showing me? Please. Yes. So he knows I, what I'm going to ask, so go ahead. So as you're talking, he's showing me, he's making me feel coincidences. Like he's the one that knows every meeting, everything that happens here and elsewhere. And so it's like everything crisscrosses. I can't explain it. It's like the lights. So like us meeting each other, like everything, making all these things happen. But seems like coincidence. He's showing you his actual blueprints. Correct. Would you say she's a medium, Rich? Yeah. A good I mean, one? she's a fantastic one. And I've had many of my friends go to see her. I've had, uh, you know, all I can say is, you know, the, the proof is in the pudding, which is I've had her talk to friends of mine on the other side that I only know the answers to the questions I'm asking. Right. But and I've been able to use her in this really unique way. So, for example, a friend of mine's father was in hospice care with dementia. And maybe a month left to live. And I decided to access his higher self through Jennifer while he's still alive. While he's still alive. And I wanted to ask him what his experience was like. And in the course of our conversation, first he, he proved to me who he was because he remembered me as a kid. He remembered all the things I did and he talked about them. Who would know that? Nobody would know that. He talked about the toast that he used to feed his dog in the morning. Only I know that. But then I said, what's it like for you, Jack? Jack Tracy, what's it like for you? And he said, well, about 10% of me is still in my body and 90% is already back home. He said, it's like leaving a foot in the pool, like your leg, you're dangling your leg in the pool. So that idea of using a medium to access the higher self of someone you love is is a tool rather than something mysterious or magical or beyond you know our comprehension. You can literally... A good medium can put you in touch with pretty much anyone on the flip side. That's dramatic. It's it's a game changer. And, you know, people contact me constantly about, you know, why don't you look up this murder or look up that event? And Jennifer, like I said, works with law enforcement. And most of her day is talking to law enforcement people around the world. They've got a case. They give her the outline of what the issues are. They totally respect her and they ask her to come up with details of what, so they can follow it up and do the detective work. She's very good at that. But any great medium will tell you they, they're interpreting. They're seeing an image and they're trying to tell you what they think it means. Now, for example, Jennifer and I do these things where this podcast, she'll say so and so is here and she'll say he's showing me a picture of this and I'll say, and you're, at first thought you think, why are they yesterday? Steve Martin showed up and, and of course he's still on the planet. She's still here. Yeah. yeah. So she says, why am I seeing Steve Martin? And I said, wait a second. Is this related to my friend Charles? And she said, yes, that's correct. My friend Charles Grodin passed away this past year. He was very close with Steve and he had actually taken me to Steve's house a number of times. We like, you know, my girlfriend and I spent the night at Steve's house. And he wanted to talk about Steve's new show. So Charles's way of introducing the topic was to show her an image of Steve Martin. She brought him to the 
forefront. And then I started talking about it and I said, so what do you think of his show? And he wanted to say, look, Steve, I'm a, I still exist. You can hear me, but I'm you're here. trying to not hear me. Have you ever tried to communicate with Robin Williams? Robin Williams started showing up and a very unusual event happened. I, I was working on the book, Hacking the Afterlife. Hey, I've used that title before. Yeah. And, and at the, at the time there was a chapter about Robin Williams and it was my, uh, experience with Robin where I'd had dinner with him and I knew Jonathan Winters, et cetera, et cetera. So it was all about me, 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 me. And when I got done with the chapter, I thought, you know what? This is just too much about me, not about Robin. And so I took it out of the book and Jennifer and I were having our meeting once a week meeting. And she said, Robin Williams is here. And I said, Oh, okay. How's he doing? What does he want to say? He wants you to put his chapter back in the book. Jennifer could never have known that. I had not told anybody. I had just wow. edited it out. No one had seen it. So I was like, <laughs> and then when the book came out as a joke, I contacted Jennifer and I said, I need a quote from all the people that we talked to in the book. What does Robin want me to put in the cover as a quote I from him? It. And his answer was that he said, love, love. I said, what does that mean? She asked him, he said, love what love is. Love why you're on the planet. Love why you're on the planet. Love who you are with on the planet. Love, love. And now it's become as much as I can. I sign off my letters that way. I love that. I love that. That's great. <laughs> I love you. You've dealt with a lot of celebrities on the other side. Let's talk about, let me throw some names your way and show sure. me what it's like. Elvis Presley. Elvis Presley. Now, Listen, how crazy is that that somebody would tell you that Elvis Presley is knocking on our class? But Elvis, and so I ask the same questions to whoever shows up because I'm not interested in the celebrity part of it. No one's a celebrity on the flip side. We're all, there's no hierarchy. But when Elvis shows up, I say, so what do you want to talk about, Elvis? And what his answer was that when he passed away, the first person who was there to greet him was a child that he didn't have. And he wanted to bring that up because he said, I felt so much love from that wow. child. And he said, you know, my life, people, I didn't have that kind of unconditional love. I had a lot of ad adulation, but I didn't experience it. And I want to talk about that. And I want people to know that they, when they pass over, they may experience that, a child that didn't come to term. Well, he sang that great song, I Believe, that had to do with the child and everything else. Oh, I didn't know that. Classic. So, I, you know, I, so I, when somebody comes up, I try to avoid this, you know, because I work in show business and I know what that means. I know that, you know, everybody puts their pants on the same way and you got to put the makeup on and get to the set. And, and, you know, seeing yourself 40 feet high makes it seem different, but you're just who you are. And the same thing when you get to the flip side, you are who you chose to be as well as who you were in previous lifetimes. Absolutely. So Elvis, you know, a fantastic musician who, and he talked about his relationship with Colonel Tom Parker as well, which is fascinating because he said in a previous lifetime, the roles were switched where he was the one who controlled. He was the manager. Yeah, he was the manager who wouldn't let him do anything. What about the CNN restaurateur, Anthony Bourdain? Well, just after he passed, Jennifer and I were having lunch together. He took his life, right? Yes, he did. And so when he came forth, and I, you know, I didn't invite him. Let's just put it that way. Jennifer and I were having lunch, and she went, Anthony Bourdain is here. And I said, why? 
And I excoriated him for checking out early. And at some point in our conversation, she said, he's throwing, he's throwing his hands up like, why are you grilling me? But I wanted to know, why did you throw away such a wonderful journey? And you know what his reply was? I was badly misinformed. He said he could, he thought he could end it all. He thought that once you did yourself in, that everything ended. But that, you know, that's a lot from Casablanca. You know, I came here for the waters. There are no waters in Casablanca. I was badly misinformed. It's a funny line. And then also, he's such an erudite fellow. So when he shows up, he mocks me for the questions that I ask. So I'm asking him a question. He said, really, that's that's your question? That's the best you can do. And right? sometimes I'll say to him, if we're talking to somebody else entirely, I think we were talking to Frank Sinatra. Again, celebrity name, but of course, on the flip side, not. And I said, well, what? Well, Anthony, you're here. What would you ask Frank? And he said, I'd like to ask him. Not a question from me and not a question from Jennifer. But he said, I'd like to ask him how he was able to handle the fame. What did he do to allay the fears and the solitude? Anthony also had taken many drugs, as you know, in his youth. And sometimes drugs, drug use, heroin, stuff like that can screw with the ability to feel joy and and that is something that people talk about on the flip side, or they, they constantly refer to it, feeling unconditional love and feeling joy. And so people here on the planet, sometimes medications force them into that feeling, and sometimes it's their life does, whatever that is. But the point is, and his, this is so important because he said, I said, well, so how do you want to tell people to stop doing that? He said, meditation. And I said, what do you mean? Did you meditate? He said, no, idiot. If I did, I'd still be on the planet. He called you an idiot? Yes, he did. And I was like, oh, this is hilarious. But, because it sounds like him. But his point is meditation can cure depression. If you look at the research from Richard Davidson at the University of Wisconsin, he showed that meditation can change the shape of the amygdala, amygdala which is the, the regulator of serotonin. Yeah, that's right. And it can cure or alleviate symptoms of depression. Med means measure in Latin. So it's not like you have to get a robe and you have to become a monk or get into a yoga pose. Learn how to meditate. You can just do that simply through the breath meditation. But the point is, is Anthony's saying, and I've heard it consistently from people who took their own lives and are asking them, so how do we tell people not to do that? And he, they have all said some version of learn to meditate. Meditation allows you to get outside yourself and not care so much about Ending. The great entertainer, Prince, you dealt with him. Well, and Prince showed up right after he had passed away, the purple one. And I listen, I part of one of my weird part of my career has been a music critic at Variety. So I got to meet him. I got to be backstage. And, you know, he was a certain a type of great talent. Great, unbelievable, great talent. just so talented. And, but, and so it was startling because after he had passed, he showed up and I... I wasn't that big of a fan. He OD, if I remember. Well, right? and here's how he put it. There's versions of how people uh, do themselves in. Sometimes it's through smoking. Sometimes it's through excessive driving too fast when you're drinking. In his case, he said, quote, um, da- uh, jumping off pianos killed me. And, and I said, what do you mean? And he said, I love to jump off pianos in my show. That hurt my ankles. And that eventually hurt my hips. 
And I had to take pain pain medication to alleviate that pain. And that eventually got him addicted to opioids. And so that's what did him in. Not so much that he wanted to check out. But I did ask him this question. Was this one of your exit ramps? It's a question that you can ask when you have conversations with people. And people do say that when you're planning your life, you may have points where you're like, okay, I've done all I need to do. It's time to go back and plan for the next one. He talked about a previous lifetime where he was not given a voice, where everything he tried to do in his life, his previous lifetime, he wasn't able to express himself. And so this was like a gift for him to express himself. Uh, I've got a book I'm working on now about music in the afterlife. Mm-hmm. And he's prominently featured in it because he's somebody who talks about frequency, about about modulating frequency or accessing people on the other side by sort of retuning your filters around the frequencies so that you can access loved ones. One of your favorites, Amelia Earhart. Where is she? <laughs> Amelia showed up on our podcast about a month ago. And, and the reason that was so fascinating for me and for Jennifer is that she's, Jennifer started off the podcast by saying, there's someone here who says he's a movie producer. I could, I might be able to know him, but I had no idea. I said, do you know his first name? She's like, I don't, I can't get it. I don't know who this is. And I said, well, let's ask him who brought you here. He said, Amelia Earhart. And I immediately went to my vast trove of Amelia lore. And I said, wait a second. Are you, is your first name Carl? And he said, yes, Carl Lemley, who passed away in 1939 who was responsible for Universal Pictures, had gone to Amelia Earhart and offered her a picture deal where she would play herself. And he hired her to write a screenplay. Nobody does. And he wrote, she wrote a screenplay with Mary Pickford. Her husband talks about it in one of the books he wrote after her passing, after her disappearance. I'm sorry. She didn't pass until 1944. But the point of the story is Amelia was there saying to Carl and Jennifer was picking up on it. Amelia was like, I told you they wouldn't get it. I told you this would be harder than you thought, but it wasn't because we got it like that. And I asked Carl, so what do you do over there? And he said, you have no idea. We create the most amazing adventures. We have all these fantastic things because everything's a mental construct. You can have movies. You can have anything that you can possibly imagine. He said, when we get bored, with doing that, that's when we decide to come back. Now, when you said she passed in 1944, yes. how? She died of dysentery, according to Amelia. As you know, I've been to Saipan and the I've... The plane found, crashed. Well, she didn't crash. Uh, but in a nutshell, what I've happened? been researching this for, as you know, quite a few long time. She landed her plane. She 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 was trying to get to Howland. She took a turn. She went, the plan B was to go to Gardner well, Island. She, she had, missed. she had somebody with her too. That's she? right. She had, uh, Fred Noonan was her right. navigator. Right. She missed Gardner because she was 200 miles northwest of Howland when she realized she was running out of fuel. She didn't run out of fuel. She landed the plane in Millie. Eyewitnesses who saw her land the plane. Pieces of the plane found on Millie Atoll that have been verified by an NTB, NTSB, uh, investigator. She was picked up by the Japanese. She was taken to the military headquarters of Japan, which was in Saipan. And she was imprisoned there. Fred apparently was executed for being a spy. 
because they were on a mission for Roosevelt they to were, find out where the were Japanese were building naval uh, facilities, and they were. She was allowed to live. She lived for seven years. I interviewed at least 15. There's over 200 islanders, but I've interviewed 15 islanders on camera who either their parents saw her or they themselves saw her while she was in cart, while she was living there. And then I interviewed a dozen GIs, U.S. Marines. They aren't prone to making up stories. They all said the same story of finding her plane, finding her briefcase, finding her passport. What about finding her? And destroying the plane. Yes, and finding her. And so there were two uh, GIs, a guy named Hanson and Burks. They dug her up in 1963. The way they told the story of Fred Gurner was that they were sent out in the jungle, and they said, what are we doing out here digging up bodies? And they and the CO said, did you ever hear of Amelia Earhart? Don't ask any questions. Now, here's where Jennifer Schaefer comes in. When I when she told me that she was looking for missing persons, I interviewed her. And we got to the end of the interview with Amelia. And she said, by the way, the two GIs who dug me up, they only found an arm. Jennifer could never have known that. Only I knew that. Only you knew that. But what's interesting is when I... George, when I left her office, the phone rang. It was the NTSB investigator from Seattle saying, I just went over all of these incredible uh, details about her life, and everything you've told me is accurate. But when they dug up her body, they only found her arm. This is literally 10 minutes after Amelia had told me the same thing. And then six months later, I found it in a UPI news report, 1977. Hanson and Burke said. Has it been verified since? Well, Hanson and Burke said in this UPI thing that they they dug up her uh, partial rib cage and her arm. So I found the evidence of them saying that's what they found. Now, what did they do with her arm? They turned it over. Did it get uh, destroyed in the Battle of Okinawa? It's possible. Did it get sent to the CIA headquarters and sits in a box? It's possible. The truth is, Amelia's body was moved by the Uh, nuns who buried her. And Jennifer showed me where she was reburied. Now, here's where it gets mind-bending because I just come back from Saipan. She drew a map of Saipan, a place she's never heard of, and drew the location I had been. And she said, that's where her bones are. So I'm ready to go back and dig her up. The actor Charles Grodin, who passed away in his 80s, had a chance to be on the Merv Griffin show with you. (laughs) (laughs) The funny story is I was in a restaurant in Hollywood, and I was sitting not too far from a a megastar, a really famous Hollywood personality. And as this person was walking out of the restaurant, a man stopped him and said, uh, Oh, I know you. You're on television. Wait, come over to my table. And he had like seven daughters with him. And the person, this megastar, went over to the table and very politely shook his hand, signed an autograph, like kissed a couple of the girls. Sweet. You know who that star was? No. It was you. <laughs> oh. It was, the most, it was right after Chuck. Right after we show. did the friendly show. We know what you were like. Even you. I did that. And Musto and Frank Musto But see, uh, he came on and told me that whole friendly stuff for 90 minutes here about, oh, you've got to be friend. But see, I've been that way all my life. It's in fact, you know, so I got bored with him. I got leaning so close to you. <laughs> <laughs> because I like it. This is Which you may not like you. That's all I mean. Go ahead. He's got an aura about that. What a wonderful guy. You have dark hair in the afterlife, don't you? I look a little bit more like Merv now. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, you know, Charles Grodin, such a funny comedian and such a good friend. 
his comic idea was anyone can do a talk show. So I'm going to take on my friend Richard, introduce him as the most charismatic person in the country today. And Merv will just act like he's a guest. And in this segment, Merv does this thing of like, I'm only, I'm only used to sitting next to superstars. And so I told the story that I had prepared because I had seen Merv at a local restaurant signing autographs, but I didn't say his name. And I said, you know, there was this megastar who was super friendly and super nice. You know who that was? Merv. And he was like, no. And I said, it was you. And then he remembered that moment. So it was a way of turning the tables on Merv. But, you know, a comic thing. Absolutely. Which leads us into, I produced the Charles Grodin show. I was one of the producers on the show oh, for a while. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And and uh, I saw James von Prague on uh, Larry King. And I said, you know, let's bring on James. Uh-huh. Let's see if he can talk to our mutual friend, Chuck's and my friend, Luana Anders, who had passed away. And so he came on. And that segment is in the movie where oh, live on camera. And that's the moment I realized that she still existed because – uh, James Van Prague said, there's a photograph on your refrigerator that's the essence of your relationship. He also talked about my martini glass collection. But he said, that photograph is what she's showing me. And George, only once in my life have I ever put up a photograph and said aloud, oh, look, the essence of our relationship. It was me and her in Italy eating cookies and laughing. When he said that, I knew beyond a shadow of any doubt for me, not for anybody else, that she still existed. And and that's led us to this moment today. Then I talked to Chuck two days ago. Again, my friend who's on the flip side, who came through to Jennifer, who wanted to converse with me, who wanted to, like, you know, tell me to lose a little bit of weight, which is always, like, the thing that he should be doing. Whatever the thing, you know, anyway, part of our podcast. And I, of course, still love the guy, but it allows us to realize our loved ones haven't gone anywhere. Absolutely. On the flip side. What's next after the flip side? After uh, this, I've got uh, a book coming out. I'm going to be finishing up, and it's about musicians. And I've just focused, because the last one was about architecture. Musicians who have passed on? Musicians who passed on, but also asking them, how are they still creating music? And what's it like over there? And, uh, for example, Jimi Hendrix, the great greatest guitarist of all time, he shows up quite a bit in our research, and I'm not really sure why, but where people will say, I'll ask them, so who was there to greet you when you crossed over? And they'll say, Jimi Hendrix. And I'm thinking, why? And it turns out that he loves to play this role of somebody who helps somebody on to the flip side because they recognize him instantly. Sure. They know who he is, and they're like, this can't be a dream. I'm actually on stage with Jimmy. And and that's their way of, of anyway. So it's it's a lot of different musicians. Goodbye. Can you get people convinced that there's an afterlife? You know, I think it's a reflexive experience, which is if you haven't had the experience skydiving, then you can talk about it as much as you want. But unless you jump out of a plane, that's when you know that you've experienced it. When a loved one comes to you and shows you or demonstrates to you that they still exist, then you know it. Um, but it's very hard to convince somebody whose filters are very thick and, and up. Apparently, the human brain has these filters. We all have them. Yeah. Some children don't. Some people just prior to passing lose them. Mediums don't seem to have them. 
but you can bypass them with hypnotherapy, meditation, or mediumship. Anyone can do the same. And I think it's worth exploring. You're one, you're one of the best when it comes to it. Have you ever been in a contest to prove the afterlife? <laughs> there is one. Uh, some guy in Vegas put up a million dollars. And uh, I'll be taking my private jet home after is, the show. Is it over? No, I, it's over, but I don't know who's won. But I, I got to tell you. Uh, did anybody win? There, somebody will, let's say. But uh, what I did was I focused on Ian Stevenson, the professor at the University of Virginia, yeah, left yeah. behind the combination lock test. Okay? And I'm going to reveal what I learned on camera so that your viewers can do it themselves. My theory is that I can access Ian Stevenson through Jennifer Schaefer or any medium without saying his last name, without her knowing anything about the combination lock test. just pops up. And I said, I want to talk to Ian, and I want to ask him a question about a puzzle. And there's a puzzle that he's aware of that that he knows the answer to, and I want him and, to and show it to you. else knows that answer. That's correct. And so Jennifer said, I'm seeing Einstein. And I said, okay. Is the name Einstein the answer? It has to be six letters. She said, no. He's showing me E equals MC squared. And I said, Bingo. so E equals mass times constant times constant times squared. the speed of light. There's the six. Hmm. Well, the constant speed of light. Maybe that's what it is. What it but is. those are the six things. But the answer is the, and he said, it's spelled out. It's the, that equation spelled out. And so anybody, like you just said it differently than I would have said it. So whoever can figure out what the comment, because it's uh, on the Wikipedia page, the method that he used, you know, for the mathematics. So like E is uh, number four and et cetera. You can figure it out. So anybody can learn how to do this. I reached out to the guys at UVA. I had them try E equals MC squared. It didn't work. But that didn't stop me from but talking to Ian, you see? Exactly. So if somebody else can figure out what that means, E equals MC squared spelled out, and maybe you're correct instead of saying the it's constant. Mass it's equals. Mass equals. No, wait. E <laughs> energy is energy equals, equals mass, mass times, times the speed of light speed squared. Speed of light squared. squared. See, I, I said constant because it's MC, but you may be right. Yeah. C's. He might have. It's whatever Ian used. But I'm, I'm just saying, get a medium, find a medium, ask them the same, ask Ian the same question. And if you see a visual of Einstein, then you'll know he's talking about the same thing. Mm. We can all do that. And I think we all should. Richard, thanks for being on Beyond Belief. George, thank you so much for being here. And I appreciate you. Appreciate oh, your show. I love the work you do. Hacking the afterlife. One day we may be hacking you. Thanks for watching Beyond Belief. Oh, my goodness. We're at that bewitching hour, everybody. And Brother Dougie, I give up. We tried Rainbird 2, and I'm not sure. I think we called her on a regular phone this afternoon. And uh, I don't think we can take a chance and call her on that other line, especially <coughs> since I don't. Think she's there. So, mm -hmm. uh, Rainbird, if you're hearing this, uh, maybe you can give Doug a call and that will solve the problem. Otherwise, we are going to finish up here and read a little bit from our sister Caroline's 
message to the light workers. This was put out yesterday, and it says they're this week's guidance from the ascended masters, the galactics, the earth elementals, the fey elders or fairy elders, the angelic legions, archangels, and other divine beings known as the collective. And so it is, uh, from the, from Caroline, the challenger, channeler. She says, this message is an excerpt from the May 10th, 2022 Ashtar Legacy Conference call. The collective started this message two weeks before the tragedy at Uvalde, Texas. Though, of course, there has been great loss of life elsewhere in the world as well. When they explained that at times difficult events wake people up mm-hmm. to great truths we might otherwise not have faced, I felt some foreboding as though they were saying something was about to occur for us here in the United States. Now it has several times over. I hope you will take this channeling as a sign that however dark these days may be, the light is yet ever greater and still holds the victory, however it may appear right now. On the May 25th special abundance call, On the special abundance call, the collective shared that those who died on May 24th, 2022 in Uvalde, Texas, are part of a special soul group who came in for the purpose of assisting millions of people in awakening on different levels of our consciousness. I know that that will not make sense to us and may sound unthinkable. You may feel angry hearing that. Yet when you consider the power of their souls and that these dear ones are now joyfully returned to the higher realms with no loss of their beautiful divine energy, it begins to make sense at least on a heart level. And yes, all of us have done something similar in one life or another, though, uh, and this last gentleman, he was saying, you know, we're not afraid anymore. Uh, this last gentleman we were listening to, we're not mm-hmm. really afraid anymore. Though to those around us, it would only appear to be a tragedy. And so as the songwriter says, we are here calling all angels, the Starfleet command, <laughs> to help us through the last of this third dimensional experience. Here is the message. I pray higher assistance for all levels of your spirit now. Greetings, dear ones. We are very pleased to have this time to speak with you today, as always. This is such a beautiful community of light. And as you join together, 
via what many call the internet, that internal telepathic heart-based connection that people share around the world, you join with many millions of others who have likewise come in to hold and to reflect and to anchor this powerful higher light that is pouring onto the planet. And as well, to hold and to reflect outwardly, to transmit outwardly the light that all of you are. We have been speaking with a number of beautiful light beings in human form, as all of you are, in sessions and in other contexts, and reminding them that what they reach for now is a form of communication and understanding, understanding, overstanding that takes place in the high heart. And that bypasses the constrictions, the narrowness, the very restrictive mental programming that the left brain has experienced for millennia. You've been very strictly trained that if something doesn't appear logical and acceptable, our Spock brains, uh, to our rational thought, it probably doesn't exist. If one is following a purely left brain orientation, then taking in and accepting certain ideas or facts will work as a sort of fortress around one. Then other things, which will occur to one intuitively, will seem to be unacceptable and imaginary. This is understandable. Yet we are happy to say that the great majority of the human race is reaching beyond that programming, beyond that narrowness. Even those who seem to cling to the old structure are exceeding that on a cellular level. And after a while, their inner life will catch up with what is happening to them physically. You can't be alive on the planet right now without absorbing all of this beautiful light on one level or another. It seems cruel, all that strange, all the strange things happening to the earth, the flooding and the fires and the desertification of some regions, the pain and loss of armed conflict, and similar tragedies. And we can absolutely guarantee you all of this shall be healed. You will have to say to your logical left brain at times, your rational aspect, don't just take in the facts because you don't know all the facts. What I am sensing in the heart space flies well above all of these facts and figures, all the data that the left brain collects. You're going to have to say to the brain at times, yes, I hear you. You are informing me that right about now would be an excellent time to panic or to go into a rage or give up all hope. And we would say that when those little earthquakes come, those moments when you can't quite believe one decision or another has been handed down, 
or one atrocity or another has been committed, that is when more people choose to wake up. So there is a rhyme and a reason if the left brain is looking for one. You, you can always, you can always say to that very rational aspect, you don't have all the information about what's occurring right now. And in all of your mutterings, all of your additions and sums, can you come up with the reason why so much is happening in the world right now? other than a love of chaos and destruction? What comes after that chaos? What comes after the era of destruction? So, in that moment, dear ones, you challenge the left brain to drop the precepts that have held you back for millennia on this planet, and you ask it to look beyond to look to the stars, to look at Earth as a part of this beautiful galactic federation. And in time, the intergalactic confederation of worlds. And to think on this beautiful and powerful sun that has been transfiguring and transforming so powerfully over these last 100 years. And now you see it all coming to fruition. Yet let's look as this let's look as this song at this song for a moment. Because before we we talk about the sun, we're going to talk about angels for just a moment. Calling all angels by Jane Silberry with K of Lang do you know what that means, Rama? Mm-hmm. Uh, K. DeLang. The oh, Katie Lang. Katie Lang? I think so. Okay. Do you know? Is that a person's name? Mm-hmm. Okay. The songwriter, Jane Siberry, talks about putting first one foot, then the other, as you step out on the road, asking How much weight? How much? That's the first question. How much do I have to bear in this life? And then how long that is? How long and how far? And how many times before it's too late? How long do I have to go on in this third dimensional reality? Many are asking. A reality which has been fading into a fifth dimensional reality yet which still holds much density, anyone could admit. And how many times does one have to experience the fragility of one's humanity before they realize that they that that fragility is the last word? Yet we would challenge all of you to understand, understand, overstand. It is not the last word. Yet the songwriter, seeing what humanity goes through, and perhaps what she herself has gone through, calls in the angels. Calling all angels, calling all angels. 
Walk me through this one. Don't leave me alone. Calling all angels, calling all angels. We're trying, we're hoping, we're sure. We're not sure how. This is a big question. Because intuitively you understand that the light data coming into the earth is transforming you in crucial necessary ways. Speaking audibly as far as your cells are concerned and your spirit self. Speaking to you through tonal vibrations, through colors, through absolutely beautiful geometries and empowering shapes that remind all of you who you really are and why you are really here. Yet still, you see all this and you say, yeah, that's wonderful. But how much longer? The songwriter goes on. And every day you gaze upon the sunset with such love and intensity. Why? It's almost as if, if you could only crack the code, then you'd finally understand what this all means. You have had those days, dear ones. If I could just crack the code, if I could just figure out why am I on this earth? At this amazingly hard yet transformative time. Yes, it's an honor to be here now. Be here now, Ram Das always wrote. Mm-hmm. But what's really going on beneath that surface? So I can see enough of the help we're receiving. If I can understand enough of the energetics that billions of us are receiving now then I'll relax. Once I crack that code and see the final summation, I'll know what's happening. I'll know at what point our liberation will occur. I'll know how we can create it. It'll be one great and beautiful moment. Yet you haven't cracked the code. And this is why for centuries people have talked about living on faith and believing that they will be shining and victorious by the end. Yet beliefs are something you're handed, and faith is something you're guessing at. It's that inner sureness, that Gnostic or knowing sureness that you are working toward now. Then when you see in some beautiful moments as you awaken from a dream one morning and you see for an instant as you're awakening a glimpse of of the beauty of the new earth, then you have to ask yourself what the songwriter asks. Ah, but if you could, do you think you would have? Do you think you would trade it all? All the pain and suffering. Ah, But then you would have missed the beauty of the light upon the earth and the sweetness of the leaving. We would say the sweetness of the leaving this time will be a little different. That letting go and moving into the light, all of you have been through it hundreds of times. You have left the body and floated upward into pure light. And then through the tunnel of light. 
as you move through it, you see your loved ones and suddenly you realize, I'm home. And what you feel strongly, dear ones, looking out upon the earth and all of you beautiful light beings at this moment is that you have decided en masse in a predeterminative way that you would like to experience some of the beauty of home of the higher realms here on earth. All of you decided, why do I have to wait to physically die before I go back home? Before I see only goodness, positive intent, healing, support, love, encouragement, celebration, joy all around me. Yes, there are little moments on that of that on earth right now. Yet what if we freed the earth to feel that way all the time? Billions of souls gathered to decide now was that the time, and understandably so. Look at the astrology. Look at the era. Look, you are moving into the Sat Yuga. No one could hold you back. You said, this is our moment. And the beauty of this song is that you begin to realize, I am both human and divine. I call upon the angels for a rescue mission, but I remind me, but to remind me, I am a representative of home, the higher realms in a human body. I carry it with me. Everywhere I go, this vibration I carry introduces to the loving, lovely environment or to that dreadful one. Here it is, fifth dimension and higher, unfolding before your eyes. So, you call upon the angels as friends, dear ones. You call upon them as soul family. You call upon them as a sort of backup to your rescue on earth efforts. Not viewing them as rescuers and saviors, although some will break a rule here or there, to otherwise in human affairs. If a guardian angel sees that an event is about to occur that would pull you off your path, then they will intervene, and they have done many times for all of you. But when the songwriter says, walk me through this world, don't leave me alone, we're trying, we're hoping, we're hurting, we're loving, we're crying, we're calling, because we're not sure how this goes. These are the words of those who are ascending, because even though each of you has ascended before now, you are probably feeling, yes, but I don't remember. I have no idea how this goes, so you're going to have to walk me through it now. I don't think we're going to get through all of this, so I'm going to just jump toward the end. I'm going to just jump towards the end. Okay, so um, we are transmuting the heavens, the density that the songwriter speaks of, into pure sparkling light, turning into raw energy so that you retain the wisdom, self-knowledge, the beauty the understanding of these experiences and you release 
all the density. Remember to drink a lot of water and get extra sleep, dear ones. These are powerful solar rays flowing to you now. Yet this great master, the sun, flowing light to the great Lady Gaia, your planet, is powerfully your friend and ally in all of this. And so we send you much love, dear ones. We know you have suffered much and you feel the losses and sufferings of many others. Know that in all of this, you are never alone. We are, as always, honored to be amongst you. Namaste. And mm. since we have figured that Lady Master Rainbird is with us in spirit, I'm mm. going to pass this talking stick to Lord Rama. What do you have for us tonight, Rama? Um, this is Alan Watts' Nature of Now. All right, here we go. Nature of now, everybody. I may have played it. I can't remember. Play it again, Sam. If you listen and only listen, 
close your eyes. Where do the sounds come from, according to your ears? You hear them coming out of sounds. The sounds come, and then they fade away. They go like echoes, or echoes in the labyrinths of your brain, which we call memory. The sounds don't come from the past. They come out of now. Trail off. You can do that later with your eyes. You can see, like when you're watching television, there's a vibration coming out from the screen in your eyes. And it starts from that. Because we see the hands, And then they move. We think that the movement is caused by the hands. But the hands were there before, and so can move later. We don't see that our memory of the hands is an echo of their always being calm. They never were. They never will be. They're always not. So is the motion. And that, that is recollected as the trailing off echo like the wake of the ship. So just as the wake doesn't move the ship, the past does not move the present. Unless you insist that it does. And if you say, well, naturally I always move on the past. That's another one. So then, you become aware that this happening isn't happening to you, because you are the happening. The only you there is, is what's going on. Just feel it. And disregard these stupid distinctions that you can I mean, stupid relativism. And feel it genuinely. When you feel genuinely, you get down to rock bottom, all that isn't there. That's a game that's been erected on And it isn't determined. In other words, you get this odd feeling of a synthesis between doing and happening. In which doing is as much happening as happening, and happening is as much doing as doing. You're not very careful at that point. You claim yourself God Almighty in the Hebrew Christian sense. <laughs> like Freud has let his babies feel that they're on the And in a way they are. I am omnipotent insofar as I'm the universe. But I'm not omnipotent in the role of Alan Watts. Only cunning. <laughs> well, it's time to go, everybody. Mm-hmm. We'll take this one to our dreams. And um, I'm going to put uh, my consciousness into the higher realms as I dream this dream awake, this Memorial Weekend.
and expect miracles and magic. Right, Rama? Ditto. <laughs> All right. So, Satnam. Satnam Ji. Ahomitakuyas. Thirteen thank yous. Honey in the heart. No evil. And live long and prosper, everyone. And may the force be with us all. Indeed. Namaste. Namaste, everyone. Aloha.